This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 1000, the final episode. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 1000. It's actually the last episode of the show and also the 10th anniversary episode. Uh, so it's been 10 years of the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Uh, I've been waxing poetic for the last uh, few episodes just about what it's like to be ending. Um, and actually, we get a lot into that in this particular episode, what I'll do next, uh, what kind of prompted the, the thought of ending, um, which was not an easy one. Um, but uh, you know, I think when, when I had the 900th episode, I kind of felt like, you know, a uh, thousand might be the end. Um, it was a nice big round number. There's something nice about being able to say that this was like a complete 10 year journey. Um, and I didn't want it to end at like some weird number or some like weird time. And I felt like if I was going to end it, it would kind of have to be on a centennial for the episode or for the series. And it just felt like otherwise, I don't know. It just feels like it would just be petering out or what would be the point? Like how, what, how do you end the show? Um, was maybe an existential question that I had for myself. Um, and I felt like if I kept going, I'd be signing up for at least a hundred more. Um, and then I talked about, you know, and, and this is, it's, you know, a lot of people don't believe me. Um, and you'll hear this on this episode. Some people think I'll be back, um, you know, that I won't be out of the podcast game for long. And I would say to them, I have other appearances in other podcasts. That's, I definitely won't be gone, gone, but the show is ending. Um, but they think that the comic shenanigans might return at some point. If it did, I would imagine it would go down to a once a week um, uh, schedule, if even that. Um, I wouldn't keep the reviews up anymore. Like I just I had a I had a pattern that had been set since the very early episodes, and I wanted to continue that. And I wanted it to be the show to be the way it had been at least for that first thousand episodes. It's funny now, um, and I'll mention this in a hopefully in a, in a future segment that I haven't recorded yet. But in case I don't, I'm saying it now. Uh, it's interesting that on Apple Podcasts um, you can only list 999 episodes, which means um, this episode is actually as much as it's episode thousand. There's two other episodes. There's a there's a, a B side episode. Oh, I think in the like 101 or so around there. And there's also a point one episode. So technically speaking, there will be 1,002 episodes, which means there are three episodes which will never be on Apple Podcasts again. And have just recently been uh, pushed out. They include the pilot and the first two reviews episodes that I did. So uh, those will no longer be there. But everything else is on the archive. Um, and again, I I hope to keep it going. Keep to keep uh, you know getting them hosted and paying for that so that you know the podcast can still live on and people can still check out those interviews and find them. And um, you know, there's people all the time where I'll put up a link and I'm like, oh my god, I didn't even know you had a podcast. Now it's ending. I'm like, yep, but there's hundreds of interviews for you to go back and enjoy. So, uh, anyways, I have enjoyed this journey and. I'm going to have some of my favorite people on in a moment um, in different segments. I have Dan Gabosden of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. I've got Ron Friends coming back for a, for a goodbye. Um, we've got uh, Nathan Strzok and Paul Scores, which are on for like two hours, basically doing a, an episode um, that happens to be a segment of this one talking about some of our favorite Spider-Man covers. And they end up being like a lot of 90s books. Sorry about that. Um, you know, I love a lot of a lot of covers, but I, I kind of picked the ones that I had a real emotional connection to. And that happened to be the ones I was, you know, kind of first reading when I was younger. So I apologize in advance that uh, they're not super diverse in terms of 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, they're a lot more centered in the 90s, but that's just who we were as people um, and why we 
you know first came into the hobby and loving comics so they're there on the show eric anthony of the cave of solitude podcast joins me again curtis finley and uh, some others uh, tucked away at the end so uh, again thank you so much for listening to this podcast if you've been here for a long time uh with the show i really appreciate uh you fo- you know following along on this journey um if you're you know a relatively li- recent listener there's a lot you can go check out in the in the uh, the back catalog this episode is really really long so uh kudos to you somehow if you get all the way to the end of it um because uh, there is a lot there. Uh, before I do sign off, I do want to mention um, I had obviously for a long time always mentioned that if you know if you put a, a comment, I would read it on the show. And I, I think I've read them all on the show in the past. But I did want to thank uh, those who did end up um, you know supporting the show in, on iTunes. There weren't a lot of comments, at least on the the US one that I can see. Uh, but I do want to thank those that were able to put ratings and reviews over the years. Uh, so I'm going to thank them. Uh, I've got Virtual Age. Um, had a post from uh, 2013, February 12, 2013. So really new into the podcast, less than a year. Um, Virtual Age said, great show all around, five stars. I love that I found this podcast and look forward to it each time there's a new episode. They have a rotating schedule of comics, hero clicks. Well, that was way back when. And other topics that really pump out new episodes. Well, that's true. Uh, always great discussion between all the panel members that keeps a brisk pace and doesn't wander too far off topic at any given time. They've got a fan in me. And not only was he a fan, he's also been on the show. I believe that is also AJ Reese. Uh, and then we had What a Blast, five stars from January 2014. Great, great show here. This is from KMAC2887. The weekly comic reviews are awesome for keeping me up to date on books I might not be buying while still giving solid reviews on books I might be on the fence about picking up. Thoughts in a little Canadian humor, and you've got one hell of a show. That's one of the few times someone actually liked the reviews. That's always nice. Uh, As Guardian Pop said, Super Pod, five stars, January 2014. Uh, this was one heck of an excellent show. Knowledge and viewpoints spot on. It keeps me updated to World of Comics, but my soft spot is HeroClix content. Love me some plastic talk again. That was one thing that eventually went by the wayside as I kind of, you know, fell out of the hobby, not on purpose, but it just kind of happened naturally. Uh, then we have uh, Earl Lloyd saying, my favorite podcast, five stars from July 2016. Love the podcast. Wish you could do a follow-up ep- podcast to episode 258, the Marvel Epic Collections podcast, or episode, I should say. What are your thoughts since that episode? Have their story selections met your expectations? Which stories would you have chosen, etc.? Personally, I've been quite happy with their selections, but what are your thoughts? E.H. Lloyd, USA. Actually, we did a lot of episodes in the Marvel Epic Collection, so hopefully Earl got uh, his his fill over the years. Uh, a podcast like unlike any other, five stars from Sly Cat in October 2017. The range of variety you can get from this po- from his podcast is great. I mostly listen to the comic interviews. Well, I love those as well. Uh, fantastic interviews and great questions. A podcast for those who are looking for variety and glances into the comic stories we love to read with words from the writers and artists we adore. Highly recommend. And we have from May 2018, uh, Trumbo Gun One said, "Finally, a podcast for the longtime comic reader, devoid of the lazy hipster criticism that seems to dominate the landscape. The host puts the focus on the topic and/or creator, taking time to go for the comprehensive portrait within the context of comic history. As a lifelong comic fan and one-time comic retailer, gems like this podcast really feel like coming home." Darren Thomas, well, thank you, Darren. And then the last one, uh, which was February 2021, uh, was uh, from Doug Rewald saying, Wonderful collection for comics fans. Another five stars. I first heard Adam on an episode of the Epic Marvel podcast, so so decided to look up his show. What a pleasant surprise it was to find an absolute treasure trove of interviews with creators and others from across the industry. Listening to these episodes has helped me to better understand the -the behind-the-scenes activities and thought process surrounding some of my favorite comics, while also introducing to many more series and creators. I also appreciate that Adam is a thoughtful and respectful 
respectful interviewer, which results in guests often returning to the show and being willing to talk about areas that they might otherwise shy away from. I highly recommend the show to any comics fan and think, thank Adam for all the hard work he's put into this passion project. So thank you, thanks again, Doug, for, uh, again, such a, a nice comment. Uh, and thanks to everyone who took the time to uh, give it a, a, a review. Um, again, there, there may not have been a lot over the years, but uh, they always meant a lot to me when I did see them. Uh, because of Apple being the way it is, I didn't always see them immediately because I had to kind of change what I was looking at to make sure I was looking at the right version of the store in order to see those or the, those ratings and reviews. But um, I was very much appreciated them when I did get them. Um, and I believe there was also one from the rating, yeah, one from the uh, United Kingdom, also from September 2013, from Lacrosse, just saying, enjoyed the show guys love hearing the hero clicks thoughts and wishes keep it up i guess it's something we didn't keep up so i do apologize that we weren't able to kind of keep that moving uh so again thank you so much to everyone who's listened to the show and supported the show um i really appreciate it it's meant a lot to me um it's been a fun project there's you know more things to come in some way uh which i mentioned later on in the episode i will also be uh you know showing up on the cave of solitude podcast and the epic marvel podcast from time to time more frequently on the epic marvel sorry on the cave of solitude podcast because i do a, a monthly book of the month club uh with eric anthony who's on the show as well so uh, make sure to check those out uh you can always email me even though uh the show is going away you can still email me if you are if you do want to drop me a line or say anything about the show at comic shenanigans at gmail.com uh you can still rate the show on itunes you can i guess you could subscribe but there's no new episodes um although i guess that way if you're subscribed eventually if i do come back you'll be you'll see it immediately so um there'll be that and uh again you can always check out the archive check out the, all the great interviews i've done in the past um I, I say great i shouldn't say that but all the many interviews i've done in the past that i've really enjoyed and uh, really taken a lot away from um uh, some of them, my favorites are definitely zeb wells uh zeb has been just tremendously giving with his time and also insights into his process in his mind and what he thinks about uh, how he you know, approaches comics and feels about comics, which has meant uh, it's been a lot. And actually, we've it always felt like we went a little bit deeper in terms of um, a lot of kind of not mental health per se, but just mental pro- projection and and how we perceive each other and and ourselves when we do work, which I thought was in- really interesting. And even my last conversation with Chip Zdarsky really meant a lot to me, which I actually I mentioned a lot in my um, in my segment with uh, Dan Gavazdan in this episode, just because it was I had I think just just recorded it like the day before, um, so it was very much top of mind. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. I will get out of the way and let this um, this this mammoth centennial final episode uh, roll out in front of me. Uh, but thanks again for listening. Let's jump right into uh, the first segment with Dan Gabosna. Enjoy. Dan, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Congratulations, Adam, on a thousand episodes. Um, I know, but I feel like the past three times we've done this, all we've done is talked about the eventuality of this episode, and now we're here. Um, and uh, man, I can't believe it. Uh, for one, which I feel like I say every year, and two, like you're telling me that you're going to stop this, and I don't know if I believe that either. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's the plan. The plan is this, this is actually not only is this the last episode, this is the first segment of the last episode. So you get to start wow. the festivities. Um, it's exciting because, you know, you've been on every centennial since the, the 300th episode. Uh, you started with 298, which is, you know, a nice, good way to start uh, as a Spider Man sure. fan. And then you were there for all the centennials. I've moved past Amazing Spider Man numbering now. So now I'm charting a new course. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to think it's been 10 years. Like, when this episode drops, it'll be the 10th anniversary of my first episode, uh, which, you know, which is funny. I did it with my wife, and then uh, she was like, this is just, you know, we're, we're not actually posting this. I'm like, nah, and I posted it, and there was, that was the pilot. That, that was the, the start, and... Uh, Yes, a thousand episodes later. Although to be pedantic, um, there was two in the in true Marvel fashion. There was a part B episode and a point one episode. So technically, okay. it's a little Fair bit enough. more. <laughs> but we're yeah, still going to well, celebrate my, a thousand. My show is lame. We count the point ones as Do you? actual uh, full episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's uh, easier because you didn't you didn't like start with a numbering, right? So like when you just gather them up, it's a little bit easier. Whereas I had like a strict numbering system, and then I like built in these like wedges, and I don't I don't even remember why I did it to be honest. Uh, we started with a numbering system, but we abandoned it like thirty episodes in, <laughs> um, uh, which I I can't tell you the reasoning behind it. I'm sure it was for a good reason. I I, I don't know. I mean, like we also changed the name of our show, mm-hmm. like you know after those thirty some episodes. So what are you going to do? Um, so Adam, okay, like every podcaster's dream life after podcasting uh you know like i mean it's a it's a it's a true thing like anybody that like wants to get into podcasting every podcaster's like no don't like just don't you know like and um i you know technically we could all stop at any time but we have some sick desire mm-hmm. success or not to to keep going what are you looking forward to doing with your with all of your time post-podcasting. Uh, I mean, I think that's probably why I ended it, because it wasn't that much free time. But um, I don't know. It, it'd be interesting. Like, I, I I sometimes guest on the Epic Marvel podcast, so I'll still occasionally show up there. Uh, the Cave of Solitude podcast, I show up every month for, like, a book of the month club. So, like, I'm not totally out of podcasting, but I'll be out of kind of being the one doing it all and doing all the work. And you know what that's like, you know. Yeah. Just the, the, I don't maybe spend as much time on it as I know that you do with your editing and being as pristine. Um, but it does take a lot of mental energy as well and putting it together and getting things. And that would be nice to kind of excise that mental energy. I think stopping myself from having to feel like I have to be on top of every comic book ever. Um, because for like a long time, I used to review... 20, 30 books a week on my show, and then I had kids, and it was a lot harder to do that, and then it became like two to four. I'm like, kind of, why am I doing this in some ways? But like, I still like talking about books, but it'll be interesting to kind of just enjoy books and not have to worry about talking about them anymore. Um, and seeing movies, I think, will feel weird because for a long time, I mean, the pandemic has probably eased me out of that, but I used to go to movies with a lot of people. We'd sit around and we'd podcast about it afterwards. That was part of the experience, and now I'm not going to have that, and that's going to be weird but that being said i haven't gone to a movie with a great group of people in a long time let alone seeing a lot of movies so i feel like that has at least been eased into but uh i think that'll be the part i miss the most is going to a movie and being like i don't have a venue to talk about this because you know for so many years i would just see a movie and i would just think about it to myself and that'd be it and then having the podcast and being able to actually go deep dive with people was really exciting and fun um, my wife would say that she found that more stressful because she found that she'd be sitting in the movie thinking about what she wanted to talk about as opposed to just enjoying it. And I can see that side. And so now when we go see a movie together, she won't have to have that stress. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think for me, I, I started my stuff with like the idea of like, oh, I like I need a venue to talk about this mm. and and writing about this stuff only 
exercises so much of that. So yeah, yeah, I think like a lot of my continuance is just like just having a desire to talk about it with someone somewhere, and with internet strangers, it's just not enough. Like you know. um, so good. I mean, I, look, you're always invited on Amazing Spider Talk if it's Spider-Man related. And, uh, yeah, well, hmm, I have a feeling you'll find a way to exercise th- those <laughs> muscles uh, in, in some way. You seem, uh, I don't know if enterprising enough or, or at least social enough that you'll you'll find a group of people to surround yourself with mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's not hundreds of random people that download your show on the Internet. That has been the fun part, is randomly having people find stuff. I mean, like, I, I, I am under no pretensions. I know that your show is much wider in scope and, and, and reach it, uh, compared to mine in terms of its uh, its audience. And I'm always very, you know, oh, envious and jealous a little bit, I'll be honest. Uh, I, I wouldn't be. The numbers are not as big as you think. Still bigger than mine, but I, I get yeah. what you're saying. But uh, but once in a while, like, um, you know the guy, Josh from Panels to Pixels, the other day? Sure. He, he had put up a picture of... Um, these two books he got and I was like oh man like one of those was stuff said by two more was publishing I just talked with the guy so I linked my interview I'm like oh you know that's a really good book I, and he's like yeah I picked it up because I listened to your interview I'm like oh like I forget that people listen and actually make some decisions based on things that I, conversations I have with people so that's the part I forget about and it's nice to kind of get a reminder sometimes when people be like oh I picked up that book just because you talked about it with this guy and it sounded really cool so uh, that's the part that was really rewarding about the experience I, I think is that those types of things and also as you know I mean a big part of my show became talking to creators and when I look back that only started after about two and a half years of the podcast I don't know what I was doing for the first two and a half years I did other stuff Um, I was closer like I lived in closer proximity to one of my best friends at the time so we did a lot of episodes together but over time he moved away it was a little harder to you know kind of get things to go together and so I remember listening to, I think, Comic Geek Speak and those two places and thinking, actually, it might have been your show, too, that made me think, well, why can't I talk to somebody? And, like, just, you know, throwing feelers out there. And You've made fun of me over the past for having, like, kind of a rabbit's foot because of some of the guys I've been able to talk to. And no, speaking of jealousy, like, <laughs> like you always pull, pull off the amazing pulls that I've been trying at for forever. I mean, <laughs> I was waiting to show up today and have you be like, oh, by the way, I just talked to Dan Slott. Like, I know that. <laughs> That's been your white whale, but uh, uh, my white whale too. But uh, you know, you're already pulling people that I've met in person and agreed to have come on the show, and yet they're they're doing your show and not responding to my emails. So I, I think you just have a lighter touch than I do, which is probably probably to your benefit. I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I, what I think is interesting about our shows is that you know yours is very is obviously is Spider Man centric, and so for better or for worse and I think maybe some people are like well they're more daunted to talk to specific you know Spider-Man people I don't know why oh no Spider-Man fans are the worst fans in fandom <laughs> so so like I don't blame them for a second you know like I, I am very proud that I don't receive emails for my show like I like if I get one person a week writing into me that's like a miracle and really? I consider that I consider that a blessing because it's like if they're not saying anything, they're just quietly enjoying the show. That's true. Um, I mean, it'd be nice to hear from people. But you have but, the spider um, slack for that, right, too? It's like, true. Yeah. It's true. It's true. But, like, consider, like, how vocal Spider-Man is on Twitter. True. Like, that those people aren't writing into me every episode when Mark and I say, ah, the marriage isn't everything. <laughs> like, and then, our, like, we get firebombed. Like, I'm very grateful that that's not the case, you true. know? Um 
Yeah. So a question about your podcast, So, I, I, which we didn't technically say the name of it, the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. Definitely my favorite Spider-Man podcast that there is. There's a lot of them out there, but yours is definitely my favorite. Um, I don't even know what's out there. What, like, what, what are we competing with right now? Well, there was this, well, I actually don't even know if it's active anymore. There was a Spider-Man crawl space for like a long time. Yeah, those guys are still going. I know okay. that. I mean, and and I just prefer you. I'll just say it. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I just don't know. I, I need like I need to reinvest in it. But anyway, uh, yeah, go ahead. But go a question ahead. I guess I have for you. So, if you were ending today, with what's the like? You know, is there an episode or something that happened on an episode that's particularly special to you, or that you're like, I can't believe that happened? Oh man, um, I was ending today. I mean. I think I'll say a lot of the same same ones that I say whenever I come on the show, which is like, you know, like we had John Romita Jr. on recently, and that was really nice. But it's anytime there's a personal touch mm. is what makes it really special. Like, Ron, you know, Ron is, is a great dude, and, and he makes his time on the show always very special. And I'll forever, you know, be humbled that he and I get to talk about Kid Who Collects in, in, in the detail that we did. For sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've had a lot of really random people on the show, and it's been kind of neat, like getting um, um, on. I mean, I could just uh, list any number of them, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I could, uh, the annual episodes are like favorites of mine, like something that got like born out of like just bizarre <laughs> coincidence that like it's happening on the show. Um, uh, uh, a Ralph Bakshi mm. is something that like he I've always been a fan of his animation and finding an avenue to talk to him because I taught his grandson um, in my in my classes <laughs> you know uh, those kind of things are really strange and like Mark Guggenheim like you know he's a really nice guy I, like I love a lot of his comics but he was never someone that I expected to strike up a friendship with and to the mm-hmm. point that he invited me on the DC backlot and like uh, for his Arrow shows and the Arrowverse and, like, uh, took me out to breakfast. And, like, things like that are, like, cool things that only would have arisen. Um, going to Stan Lee's memorial um, that was closed to the public uh, was something that will forever be with me. Um, so, I mean, yeah, in which case I got to talk to, like, a bunch of like cool celebrities in the line um, and had a couple of people on the red carpet notice me like from <laughs> the red carpet and who would listen to my show and that was really weird yeah so uh, um, I don't know man uh, those are good answers there's I mean really it's all about my friendship with Mark and 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 now Alan um, who is taking over for me right now on the show but uh yeah, I know. What about you, man? I mean, I, I, I got two questions for you. Sure. Following up on this and the previous conversation, have you heard from listeners now that the show is coming to an end? And what are some like the highlight moments for you of, of the a thousand yeah. episodes? Um, I've heard from only uh, only like a couple, but uh, you know, people actually who ha- were 
people who had listened to the show, communicated with me about it, and actually then did a few episodes with me. So they kind of reached out to say, you know, congrats on a thousand. I, do, I think a lot of people are like you, don't really believe I'm done. Um, I think my <laughs> wife kind of thinks that way too. She's like, why are you ending? Like, you know, are you sure? Um, and who knows? Um, like I did for a long time think, oh, I'll just do a format change. Um, I would go down to one episode a week and just, or like, or less. Uh, I wouldn't do the reviews anymore and would just kind of settle back and just kind of focus on interviews and that kind of stuff. And, and maybe someday. I mean, Adam, nobody has a gun to your head saying you need to do two episodes a week. Oh, I know. Well, yes, you're right. But there was something, there was something nice about being able to say, you know, 10 years, a thousand episodes. And as we, as you and I had said, the last couple centennials, the closer it got, like once it was like 800, I was like, well, you kind of have to do 200 more. And once you get yeah, to 900, yeah. like, well, you know, it's only a hundred more to a thousand, but there's something about that. I was like, well, I don't want to end on a thousand and fifteen, you know, like that just didn't seem right. And to, uh, as an OCD kind of comic collector, something seemed really nice about just a thousand. Um, so that, I guess, was part of that thought process. It, it was not a an easy thought. It was definitely something I went through a lot of permutations on. What would this be the right time? And the more I'm coming to it, the more I do feel more at peace with it. I think when I record the final segment for this show. I'll probably feel the most difficult to let go because um, that'll be the, the end. Like that, and actually, yeah. it's interesting. I spoke with Chip Sadarsky yesterday, and we talked. Actually, it ended up being a lot more philosophical than I originally thought it would be because uh, you know he's actually living out on a, a small island in off the coast of Vancouver right now in, in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, so he's not in Toronto anymore. He's like living you know just on an island, uh, <laughs> writing I mean, his that comics. Very Sadarsky like. It does. Doesn't seem surprising. But we were talking about it, and at one point I asked him what it was like. And how emotional he felt when he ended Sex Criminals. Because we had talked about how that was his big foray into comics. That's how what made you know uh, brought him on the scene. That he had really good relationships with the, with fans because there was such a strong connection people felt to those characters into that world. And so you know how, what it was like for him to be able to say goodbye to that. Not that that's anything like saying goodbye to my podcast, but it was just interesting to hear him say goodbye to that and how each. Each time, like each step in the the final issue process, was him having to oh, say goodbye again and again. Like you know, he sent off the, the PDF to to a Matt Fraction, and that was like a moment of of him having an emotional uh, not breakdown, but like you know, feeling very emotional, and then getting the proofs back, getting the actual issue in his hands. Like all these steps um, really solidified that it was over. And so I feel like that's the way it'll be for me. Is that you know, when do, I'm cutting the episode, do you have like a beer ready when you click the upload button? You're just gonna. <laughs> And, and just have a beer or, like, a cigarette? <laughs> uh, I had not thought of it. Now I, now I probably will have a gin and tonic as a, as a celebration. I, but uh, I think you have to. You have to. <laughs> yeah. It'll, it'll be, you know, it'll be something. You know, and, uh, you know, at, at least, you know, that'll be 10 years of my life that I got to, you know, put a, wrap a bow around. And it, I, don't, I have to look on making sure that, they, you know, they continue to be hosted because I want to make sure that the episodes are still up there and... You know, my eventual plan, and I think I mentioned to you this before, is that you know I eventually would like to start transcribing some of those interviews and maybe you know self-publishing some of the books of the interviews. I mean, if not for nothing else, just to have them on my shelf as a record of something that I'd spent you know a quarter of my life on at this point, um, which is kind of crazy to think about. But you know, I, I think back, and when I started, I don't even know why I started the podcast. I really can't remember. What, I think it was more like, well, other people are doing it. Why can't I do it? Um, which is not a great reason to do something. But eventually, <laughs> you know, I found the thing that made me love it more, which was the interviews. That was being able to talk to people that I never in my wildest dreams like. When I look at highlights, I mean, I got to have Chip Sadarsky in my house for three hours just chatting about comics. Like that's 
a pretty surreal experience that never would but what, have happened. What you didn't realize is he was casing the joint. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this then. Like, you know, you have amassed all this knowledge from – I mean I, that's the thing that I always take away, Adam, from listening to your show. It's like, oh my god, Adam knows way more about comics than I've forgotten about comics, <laughs> you know. Um, and you've also forgotten more about comics than I've ever known about comics. And no, for sure. And, uh, you know, but then you also had all these people on your show that you've been interviewing Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, more than I'll likely ever have on my show um, just by pure volume. Um, What have you taken away from this? I mean, like, is there any kernel of knowledge or insight that you have kind of gleamed from meeting all of these people that are creators? Um, I don't know if I could boil it down like that. You know what? I, again, I'm going to go back to Chip Sudarsky for a second because I just spoke to him. And his was so interesting to me because he was saying how the pandemic kind of changed how he viewed comics because he felt that they were kind of pointless. And that, like, because he, he felt like, you know, the pandemic was happening and then he had everything with George Floyd in 2020. And he just felt like, and I'm just, you know, writing stories about people punching each other. Like, what am I doing that helps anybody? And he's like, yeah, I know it's people's entertainment and that does help people. But it was it was really interesting to hear, not a crisis of faith per se, but like, you know, kind of like he had a moment where he had to kind of take stock of himself and he, and he was really hard on himself. And that was really interesting to kind of see, like Chip Sadarsky to us, you know, he's comic book famous, you know, and he's this larger than life fun personality comes across as always, you know, being very witty and very self-deprecating. And, and if you ever follow any of his social media, that's the feeling you get. And then when you talk to the actual guy and seeing how vulnerable he was, and actually that's the real takeaway is having, being able to talk to some of these creators who I love and definitely, you know, uh, put their work up really up high and hearing them be that vulnerable has really been humbling in, in a certain way, like talking to Zeb Wells about mental health and how he felt about being an imposter and not even being good at anything about comics. And then coming back to comics was so fascinating because in our first conversation, he was like, I don't think I'll ever be asked back to the table, basically. And then I talked to him three or four years later and he's back with a vengeance. And I'm excited to talk to him, hopefully in a couple of weeks, to talk to him about this newer, newest run of Amazing Spider-Man and to see how he's dealt with you know, that sense of being an imposter now that he's literally running the show. Like, maybe Beyond didn't feel that way to him, but now he's really, you know, captaining the ship of the Peter Parker train, or Peter Parker ship. I'm curious to see how he feels about that. So that's been really interesting to kind of to get to know some of these creators and understand, I mean, obviously they're just like us, we know that, but to really understand that on a different level um, has been really interesting. And again, to, the fact that you can have that kind of conversation with someone to really feel like they're opening up to you and that there is something there. I mean, I joke about three hours with Chip Sidarski at my house, but, you know, there were times in that conversation where I was like, well, if he didn't want to be here, he would leave. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not keeping him here. Like, I'm not keeping him from the door. If he wants to leave, he can, but he's choosing to stay. And that's very humbling to feel like, you know, you can you can bond with these people that, and, and Ron Friends is a great example. I've talked with him, I don't know, like 15 hours about his work and being able to have those conversations and really start to feel like you know someone has been really cool. And again, it's something that's very unique to comic books, that comic books is such a you know small industry in a lot of ways that you can actually talk to people. You can reach out and touch these people in a way that, you know, I can't tell Tom Cruise I liked his last movie, but I can tell you know, uh, Zeb Wells that I liked his comic and he'll actually read that likely and might actually, might actually respond to me is an, that's something really unique to us that we sometimes take for granted that we love this industry, but also it kind of does love us back sometimes. 
I don't know. G- given how much Tom Cruise watches audiences watching his movies, <laughs> if you turn around in a theater, you might be able to tell him. Oh, well, that's possible. Uh, but yeah, no, that's really great to hear. I'm 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 interested in that. Uh, I have not listened to that interview we did with Chip. Um, but it sounds like it really like found a way that that thing he was wrestling with found its way into his Daredevil run, which is very about like like the role of violence mm-hmm. with these characters and um, like their relationship with police and law and things like that. Uh, so that's really interesting to me. Um, you know, e- even something like Stillwater is really kind of about like a culture of violence and. Uh, and you know, I guess like senseless violence that has no consequences to it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, thanks for the answer, Adam. Um, <laughs> it's gonna make make me think about it a little bit. I wasn't sure if it really answered the, the core question, but yeah, it's just I, I, I that's the part I'll miss is being able to have those conversations and you know those co- they're so interesting. And you talk about my my knowledge level the amount of research that did go into some of those interviews was pretty crazy because it was like okay you've read you've written all these comics I'm going to read a lot of them and I'm going to come to the table with as much of this as possible and that was also always fun to kind of pick out the weird things that showed up like if you look at the Grand Comics database you look at well what's the weird thing I can kind of zero in on and talk about that probably no one else has ever asked you about like uh, I, I hate to keep going back to Chip Zdarsky but again it just happened as we're recording this you yesterday. clearly don't you clearly don't <laughs> you're very proud of this interview it, it worked out well and I enjoyed it but one thing I was able to talk to him about which was I was going through the list of his, his work and I had forgotten that in late 2017 he did a series of variant covers called Chip Zdarsky you basically teach us how to draw something. They're so, great. I love them. Which are fantastic, but I, I I kind of remember seeing one of them and just kind of put it out of my mind. So I was going through them. So I, I was like, let's talk about these because I'm pretty sure no one's ever asked you about these. And that was, you know, kind of a fun that you know tangent to go on. What was what was the process was like of even doing one of those and uh, you know, the idea that, you know, he was gonna do some variant covers and then this idea came up. Um, so that was, you know, again, I love that kind of stuff is being able to pick at the little things. One of, I guess, one of my favorite moments is being able to go through, I believe it was the clone conspiracy backup by Ron Friends with Ron saying, because I love that. I was so sad that I never saw any original pages from that come up for sale, sadly, because I would have bought one in a heartbeat. And I remember talking with him about it and noticing a couple things. And he was like, that was my choice. They didn't want to do that in the script, but that was something I wanted to do. And him appreciating that I noticed because that was something that he did himself. And that was a nice moment that I got to have with Ron, that I liked something and I happened, you know, brought it to his attention. And he was like, that was you know, one of the things I pushed for that was not in the script and that was wholly for me. And that was a nice moment because you know everyone wants to feel appreciated. And that moment, that was something that was his and not Dan Slott's script. And I was you know, pointing it out without ever knowing that that was something that came from him. Um, and actually going through a next for five hours or whatever we spent on it, a book that probably no one has ever spent that much time thinking about it before. Uh, but we spent like five hours talking about this book and being able to go through it and finding out that that was a book that because Tom DeFalco was writing two other MC2 books, that was a book where Ron got to do more of the heavy lifting. He got to do more of the plotting and be more involved in it. And that's where he had a lot of stuff to say because he was more involved than normally during their collaborations was really special as well. And again, I would never have known that when I asked him to talk about A Next, but it came out in our conversation. And that was, you know, again, a nice special moment I got to share with Ron. Very cool. Very cool, Adam. 
So, but you still haven't answered what you're going to do with all this free time. So <laughs> I'm going to listen to more podcasts. Obviously, I'm hoping for more of yours. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm hoping for more of mine too. But uh, uh, I just had a, a son, and Adam and I were talking about this beforehand. Um, are your kids into comics, Adam? Uh, my son is. Uh, he's he really enjoys them. Um, he's it's, he's he's reading Heroes Heroes Return Captain America as we speak. Um, actually, the second volume just came out, so I showed it to him today. He's like, "Yeah, I want to know what happens next." I'm like, "All right," um, but yeah, no, I, I share a fair bit of stuff with him. He really likes comics. He's it's crazy because when I started the podcast. He wasn't born yet. He's about to turn nine next month. Um, my daughter's you know three. Um, and that's, I guess, a big thing too, right? Like, and now I have two kids. When I started the podcast, I had zero. Then I had one for a long time. Now I have two. And, you know, it just, there's a lot of mental energy that goes into the podcast that could be used elsewhere. And uh, I want to, you know, also read more comics. I mean, that's a big thing I plan on doing is just getting caught up more. I have stacks and stacks of comics I just haven't had a chance to read. So I want to get back into, you know, reading more comics. And as I said, kind of reading more podcasts, listen to more podcasts about them. And I'm still going to be around. And, you know, anything you need from me, I'm there for you, Dan. Like, I have always loved your show. Any involvement I can have on your show, I would jump at the, you know, jump at it and any opportunity I have before been on one of your uh, your alternate episodes for I think Absolute Carnage we talked about um, yeah so yeah I mean uh, I'm going to be around I'm still going to be you know in the podcast ether and any chance you let me to do anything for your show I'm, I'm more than willing because uh, I do love your show I do think it's a, a really worthwhile endeavor and I'm always uh, happy to listen to it well, that's very nice of you, Adam, but we're really here to celebrate your show. So um, I, I want to say uh, maybe this is where we kind of bring this segment to a close. One, I've been I've been honored to have been invited on the show for as many times as I as I have been. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I turn to my wife now and I'm like, I have to go do a podcast. She's, I'm like, who, uh, who with? You know, and I'm like, Adam, you know, I do every year with him. And I, I look forward to it. You're always messaging me like, uh, do you think you could carve out some time? Please. <laughs> like, I, I look forward to our yearly check-ins um, on, on the show. I don't know if listeners get much out of it, but, I, you know, I'm a fan of Adam Chapman and Comic Shenanigans. So, like, I, I, I really value, one, your invitation to me on the show. And I also really value your contributions to comic history. I've learned so much from listening to your podcasts. And, and personally, I am slowly work my way through all 1,000 or whatever. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure I'll ever get there, Adam, but, uh, but I can certainly try. Um, do, you, do you have and, a favorite interview you've heard of mine? I'll put you on the spot. Oh, that's tough. Um, there was one several years ago that I remember thinking, this is really great. And it was a Spider-Man creator of something really niche. Oh, my gosh. You've interviewed everybody. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. which one was it? Um, I mean, obviously, I listened to all your Ron Friends interviews, uh, like the minute they come out. It wasn't Peter David, but it was someone related to that. Hmm. I'm, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to dig back through it again. I mean, like, uh, for me, it, it's I, like when, if I can't get someone on the show and you have them, I'm there straight away. Hmm. And it's funny because you always ask Dan, "What would you?" Want, like want me to ask them and I'm like well I want to ask them things so I feel weird about having you ask them <laughs> also because I know that you're going to ask them things that I would never think 
to, to ask them just because of your kind of like indexical knowledge of them. Um, did, did you did you hate listen to my my Roger Stern interviews? No, I loved those. The Roger Stern interview was so good. Uh, look, the, the reality is Adam has been trying to help me get Roger Stern, and Ron Friend is trying to help me get yes. Roger Stern on my show for years, and he's agreed to it I think half a dozen times, wow. and then backed out last minute. Uh, so I don't know what it is. You have some touch, but the Roger, maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. It's just like, I've like mentally blocked, but uh, the Roger Stern interviews are excellent. And of course I would want to do one that was much more Spider-Man oriented, but like you really got at a lot of what I, uh, would, would have gotten there. And like the real bummer of it is Roger Stern is a great interview. Mm -hmm. Like, he was really excellent on your show, and his number one complaint when he responds to me is, "I don't think I'll be any good." And it's like he I, does say I, that he when he listened yeah. to it back, he was like, "That that was okay," and like it was great. Like, what are you yeah. talking about? But I get that. Yeah. It's interesting because I've had a few people. David Michelini was one where you know I interviewed him, and then a couple years later, he was just not doing interviews anymore. And yeah, he said the same to us as well. And like somehow I got in there under the wire. And for a while, Tom DeFalco had actually stopped doing podcasts for a while. Same, yeah. And I was like, you know, one of the last to, to kind of get him. And I was like really happy about that. And then when he did the, the next one, I think that was during that hiatus where he hadn't really been doing podcasts. So I was just lucky to have him back because, yeah, he did. It's interesting. Those guys actually, you know, I'll go back. I'm going to do a tangent and then I'm going to let you go back to your day. One thing I am very thankful to have been able to do is that there were, unfortunately, were a number of creators I got to talk to before they passed away. And so that's going to be really special to me, that I got to, like, I got to talk to Norm Brayfogle before he passed away. I got to talk to Justin Ponzer, probably my the best colorist I've ever seen. Uh, I got to talk to Brian Augustine, who worked with Mark Wade so much for so many years. So I got to talk to those guys before they passed away. The only one I missed um, that we were supposed to schedule, and then something got in the way, and then he passed away, was Paul Ryan. Um, which is kind of a bummer. And actually, Tom Lyle, we talked about it, but he kind of had declined politely. But the fact that I got to talk to some of these people for, before they passed away, first of all, I was just happy to have that moment that I'll always be able to kind of go back to, that I got to tell people, again, what their work meant to me before they, they passed. And also, for all future interviews, it did make me think of the fact that it is kind of, you know, in my own small way, part of the historical record, that they are telling stories that maybe they've never told before in some way, and that, you know, that's why if I ever put them together into a book, that's really the focus, is to try and preserve these stories from people who are not going to be around forever. Um, you know, because who knows when some, like, Justin Ponzer was young, like, some of these guys have been really young, and then they just pass away, so that's been really rewarding, is being able to have those conversations with people, um, and then kind of go back to them and say, like, this is, you know, this is something special I got to have with this person before they left. Well, that's one of the other nice things about your show is not only has it kind of guided me to comics I probably wouldn't have looked at otherwise, um, like a, a next, like uh, you know, I, did you I read it? I, I read, I started reading it. You know, I got distracted by some research, but like I at least checked it out, and that was something that I, you know, was kind of a blank spot. It's not being marketed to, to you in any way, no. but also that like for a show like mine. All these guys that I have on, all they get asked to talk about is their Spider-Man stuff. True. So, like, if I can get something original, it's kind of rare because a lot of these guys give you that, like, Stan Lee script. You know, like, yeah, yeah. here's the story I've been telling everybody. But, like, something like you where you can get into the weeds, you know, it gets a little more honest, I think, on your show. Um, and so I, I, I've always appreciated that. 
Um, and maybe that's how you get the people like Roger Stern uh, coming on. So maybe um, I got lucky. I, think I don't Roger, know. Roger listened to my discussion with Ron Friends about how Goblin lives, and I think that's part of what cinched it for him. Mm, mm, mm. So, I have to send in my Hobgoblin episodes. Yeah, I mean, or even just the episode you did on the Kid Who Collects Spider Man. Like that's first of all a masterclass. But I mean, it shows your reverence. It shows how much you love the work. You're not there to. That's always the thing that was in the back of my mind. Um, I remember I talked to Devin Grayson, and she was at, after the interview. She's like, "That was really good." I was really worried about the interview because I guess the previous podcast she'd done being kind of like an attack piece and she hadn't realized that and mm-hmm. it just didn't go well and so we had our interview she's like that was really fun like I really appreciate that she's like my prior experience podcasts have not been great um, but you were just very honest and we had a fun discussion and I, I always remembered that that they don't know what they're walking into and that you know some of them do have their guard up they don't know what questions they're gonna ask, you're going to ask and you do have to kind of make them feel more comfortable and then just kind of and you just have a good conversation as a result I mean, my thing is always just like you got to want to actually know what the answer to the question you're asking is. True. You, you know, like whatever that answer is. Like, uh, I don't know that we've ever really become be, been combative on Amazing Spider oh, Talk, but we I don't definitely think you ever asked. Have. But we've definitely asked people about things that like of their work that we don't like. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, you know, Christopher Priest was on the show. You know, we asked him about like what he did in regards to the Hobgoblin, and like Mark and I are very vocal about that. But like he was a nice guy, and we got answers from him mm-hmm. that I don't think were truthful answers, but we got answers. You yeah. know, um, and yeah, I don't think I would ever want to be. Uh, combative uh, with, with someone on the show, which is why it bums me out that we can't get like Dan Slaughter, or whoever, to come yeah. on the show because I think they might be worried that we would be aggressive. For but sure. really, I just want to learn more about the comics that I read. I've uh, become more understanding about comics and creators over time. I mean, I think generally a lot of people do, but I find like when I had Chuck Austin on the show, I really had to think about it and be like, you know, I did not like his X Men work when it came out, but was I too harsh on it in certain ways and it really made me as a fan kind of stand back and say like you know I I think part of for his run I had to separate art from story but when I first read it I was younger and couldn't do that and I think when I got older I was like well hold on there's there's parts about the story that are fine but I got bogged down on the art I didn't like and so maybe I conflated the two and it was interesting again to try try to understand that no one sets out to make a bad comic but some comics just aren't going to be for you, or it's going to be, you know, it's going to not oh, necessarily going to work. Like I had a Devin Michelinie interview where he talked about Avengers 200, which is one of the most reviled issues. And that was fascinating to hear someone be able to say, like, I screwed up. It should have been better. I had no time to work on it because they changed it at the last minute. And this is what happened. And yeah. not try to sugarcoat it. And again, being able to ask those questions has been cool. Yeah, I think that's kind of why I'm giving um, Nick Spencer some time away before I start bombarding him with emails because, like, I want to kind of separate myself from my reaction to his Spider-Man run, which was, you know, quite negative uh, by by the end of it. Um, I think most people felt the same. Yeah, and it's 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 weird because he used to be a patron of ours, and um, he like when I met up with him he said like that like my show was a like he listened to it when he was planning the run and it was like a large part of his writing of Spider-Man process and I'm like well like then who wants to talk to me after I beat up his work you know but I hope like we always communicated 
you never know why these things fall apart. Like, you know, that run is so weird in that, like, you have Peter with an engagement ring and all this stuff that just never happened, and you just you can't place blame on any one thing. You know, everybody wants to create a good comic, and so Nick emailed me and was like, I know you're not liking the run, uh, and I wrote him back and I said, you know, uh, it doesn't matter if I'm not liking it. Like, I, like what I want is for you to write the run that you see in your head. You mm-hmm. know, like hopefully you get the chance to you know to deliver on your vision, and then whatever we can judge it. You know, but uh, like a compromised vision, I think is the one that always kind of falls apart the most, and. Um, I think that's what we ended up with there, but uh, I am curious to eventually, once I feel like we can offer him a more safe space to to come in, and I imagine he has a lot of baggage related to the run. You know, mm. maybe we can get him on the show, but um, yeah, I, yeah, it's a good point that you made. Like, you know, uh, being a little bit different as a podcast than maybe some other places, um, allowing you to get some some people on the show who feel comfortable. I mean, that's why. People like Ron come back so many times. Is he knows it's a safe place where he can talk extemporaneously, you know, about any number of things. But exactly. uh, yeah. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much. I've taken too much of your time, but this has been the, the first chapter of episode a thousand. But I think you kicked it off in a nice way, and we got a little philosophical, a little bit deep. We talked about podcasting, which is what we usually do. So uh, you definitely li- lived up to expectations. Hey, well, thanks for having me on. For uh, I can't believe I'm saying this the last time, but I know our podcasting journey is not over together, Adam. And uh, congratulations on a thousand. It's really uh, unbelievable. I haven't even crossed the 400 mark yet. So I, I, you're coming I, like, close on 10 years, aren't you? We we are coming close on 10 years. I think we're about nine and a half years at this point. Okay. So I'm hoping that 400 aligns with like. 10 years or so and we can do a big extravaganza where we kill our aunt and then reveal that she was just an actress. Well, that happens later. With a bomb in her head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Well, thank you so much again. It's always great having Dan on the show, and I really appreciate him jumping on for my 1,000th episode. Uh, Next up, we have Paul Scores and Nathan Strzok to talk about some of their, or some of our favorite Spider-Man covers of all time. Enjoy. Welcome to the second segment of the thousandth episode of Comic Shenanigans. I am still your host, Adam Chapman. I'm joined by two co-hosts today, Nathan Strzok and Paul Scores. Say hello, gentlemen. Hi, everybody. <laughs> this isn't going to be like um, the 1,000th issue of a comic where they throw together a bunch of almost non-interconnected stories by different artists, artists of varying quality, and it just kind of feels like a hodgepodge and doesn't really feel coherent or meaningful. This is exactly what it's going to be. Oh, okay. I, I feel like you haven't been uh, you haven't been uh, listening to the pra- past Centennials. That's basically what it, it... It is a big kind of extra big grab bag with uh, with more guests, and uh, because it's the final episode, even more so than normal. Um, I will actually mention that uh, as of today, this is uh, Paul's 70th appearance on the show. Uh, wow. And he narrowly edged out Nate, who is today uh, Mark's number 68. Oh, no, I didn't get 69. Dang it, I need to get up one. <laughs> 
so you guys were above and beyond the uh, the co-hosts who had the most appearances. Uh, third third place would have been uh, Tibor Mate, uh, clocking in at forty five. I'm even surprised at that number. I couldn't even like seventy. Uh, like I have a thousand. It's a small drop in the bucket, but I didn't think it was that high. That's crazy. Wow. I would say that, like, Nate, um, it's interesting, like, since 900, I feel like nine, uh, Nate kind of piled on appearances. Um, because <laughs> <that's>, like, <laughs> you sound like my father. It's like, <laughs> too many appearances, too soon, all at once, you gotta ease it back. I hate seeing you so much. There, there can, were, I tell you, can I tell you what my favorite episode was that we did? Ooh. Okay, sure. I'll with you. Yeah. My absolute favorite episode that we did together, we had the pleasure of doing... <laughs> No, well, the, the, I, that, that leads us into the, my favorite one for the three of us, but um, my favorite one we ever did was when Adam and I had the absolute pleasure to interview Kel Dodd. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. After I met him at that toy show and he agreed to the podcast with us, and that was just an absolute hoot uh, to, to speak to him. Um, I think, if I recall, like that, those were the early days of doing like creators and other stuff like that. Um, yeah. That was the like, early, early phase of that kind of stuff. Uh, and obviously, like the greatest one we ever did together uh, as, as the three of us had to be the retrospect on the, uh, the saga of AVX and going through the, <laughs> the million issues. <laughs> Uh, that I had uh, one one at a time, and uh, breaking that into an eight part miniseries. But um, yeah, the, my fondest memories of, of doing this together with you guys have to be probably those two episodes uh, for sure. That was great with Cal, but I'm so glad you asked those Capcom fighter game questions, and he was like, I don't know. And um, and now he's going to be back to a household name, right? As we see yeah. the X-Men 97 show come back in 2023, that would be really cool. For sure. It's interesting. So that episode with Cal Dodd, that was episode 564. So it was wow. a long time ago. It was already almost four and a half years ago. Yeah. Wow. Just crazy. Well, we started. I started doing interviews... Uh, like on a regular basis around episode 250 actually um, and it's funny because Kelly sometimes will remind me that for a while I called it the summer interview series because I didn't think I'd be able to continue it um, and then I just kept doing interviews for like you know eight years or seven and a half years so uh, but at the beginning I was just like I'm just going to keep this rolling as long as it'll last this is the summer of interviews and it just went on a lot longer than I ever thought it would yeah, that's impressive. You didn't believe in yourself enough, right? And you, then, then you did it, and you're here, and you've interviewed so many people, and you've done, built a great community, and then just in time to take it out, take it, pull the rug out from underneath all of us, right? That's right. <laughs> that uh, that episode with Aviax is, is is very funny to me because yeah, I remember Paul showing up with his short box, and they <laughs> just being like, "What is happening?" <laughs> I don't I don't yeah, think Nate was prepared. No, I wasn't. And that was that was super early days. That's like uh, episodes. I'm just checking now. Episode eighteen and twenty. So that was yeah. back in 2012. Yeah. Like that's that was a decade ago. It was a very different life. <laughs> I mean, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> what a thing to say, but but true, I guess. It is an odd thing to say, but yeah, if you think about it, like you know, I. I was in a different home, so were you, Nate. Like you know, a lot of a lot of the interviews, or not interviews, a lot of the episodes we did at the beginning, uh, Nate had the clear advantage because you were on so many episodes in the first hundred uh, because you were you were so close by. Uh, we didn't do virtual yet; that wasn't something we really did. We never did 
you know, any of these over Skype or whatever, or WebEx or Teams, whatever, um, it was always in person. So you were close by and you came by and we did a lot of Heroclix ones. That was another big difference at the beginning is that uh, I really kind of leaned into Heroclix as well and then kind of focus again uh, as, as everyone kind of moved away or was harder to do in-person ones, uh, I had to kind of pivot and figure out what else, what else to do. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely in a different living situation for sure, and um, I guess pre-pandemic feels so long ago anyway. So many things are different. But yeah, that was that was my my kind of trivia of uh, you know this being a final episode to kind of look at the tally, see how many episodes you guys ended up doing. Is that is a lot of episodes? Um, I mean, I, I guess I've done a thousand and two as of today uh or as of the thousandth episode because in all in classic marvel comics fashion there's a part b episode and a point one episode so technically speaking even though it's going to be episode a thousand it's a thousand and two well um how many of those episodes had to do with spider-man because i feel like not enough did enough of them have to do with spider-man like today is it a lot of them were. I mean, we did. Were they? We did. Well, we did uh, very early on. We did the top five favorite Spider-Man stories, which I should go back and listen to that sometime because that was a decade ago. I wonder if my thoughts would have changed. Um, I I think I disagree with both the X-Men and the Spider-Man list now. I think I would change my top five dramatically. Wow. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's too late now. But I would have said let's do another <laughs> too one. Too late now. <laughs> it was still true at the time, I guess. But now I would have, especially for X-Men, very different answers. Yeah. Mm. Sure. I mean, even so, even with our topic that we're going to talk about today, which is you know kind of our our top five favorite Spider-Man covers, which we did tease we were going to do back when we did the X-Men covers. And when I looked at it, even when I looked at it about five minutes ago, as I was kind of readying images to show you guys, I was like, man, like I made this list yesterday, and now I'm not even sure about some of them because every day I feel like I, I really kind of change my mind on some of these covers. I don't have maybe a bedrock kind of favorites. It's really just you know how I'm feeling in the moment and, and what kind of speaks to me. Um, and in a way that I think the X-Men ones didn't, I think the X-Men ones, X-Men ones felt more static in my mind as to what I would kind of lean into. Uh, Spider-Man, I thought, I think I struggled more than I originally expected to. Um, I did feel like I, I, and I'm a little bit worried about this, but in a fun, in a fun way, um, how much of this is really just going to be our top five favorite Spider-Man covers of the nineties. Like, is that really what this episode is going to be about or this segment? Because how many of the, you know, covers of the 80s, 2000s, whatever, are actually going to be represented in this list. So I'm really curious to find out what you guys have put down. Yeah, I, th- I, hope, I hope and think you'll be surprised by mine. Will I be surprised by yours, Paul? Uh, a little bit, but not very much. Mm-hmm. I have two okay. that may be interesting. But, okay, uh, I, take it, I take it back. I don't want to set it up anything. I, uh, you'll probably be <laughs> nonplussed. I'm sorry. I don't want you to be like, oh, this is nothing. Like, this is a terrible list, Nate. Okay. Well, Nate, I, I want you to, to take the wheel. I want you to show us your, the first one you want to show us today. Like, as we kind of mentioned off podcast, we're not specific. Well, at least I'm not specifically kind of counting down mine, which is actually an aberration for me, as usually I would. But, uh, Nate, if you want to share either the first one you want to share of the top five or if you want your number five pick, whichever way you want to go. Okay, um, I'll just do whatever on this this program here. Give me a sec to actually. Should you start with me because I'm not as familiar with this program. Maybe with Paul. Paul could like go first, and then I can. Sure. Yeah. Let's let's. Uh, Paul, can you take the wheel? Yeah, I can. Yeah. So I have opened my image on my computer, and now I'm going to share screen. Do you have any preamble before you show it? Oh, there it is. <laughs> There it is. So the the little preamble for my my covers essentially are um, 
these are the covers, I guess, my covers kind of tell a story, I guess. Um, they're not in particular, like, not just the best storyline that was in this book or anything like that. These are just, I have really cool memories of these particular books. Um, and, and this uh, comic right here, Amazing Spider-Man 385, it is a Mark Bagley cover. Um, this one pops out to me because this was one of those, you know, when you go to Walmart sometimes and you see, like, you know, a six-pack of comics for two bucks or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. It was one of those kind of grab bags of books and this cover was on the front of it and it struck me it was very 90s you know it had all these kind of almost um image comics looking armored characters you know here with spider-man and a a guardsman there and uh the cover just you know it drew me as i saw it on the shelf and sure enough when i cracked this puppy open it actually had um the full arc that this jury, uh, Spider-Man versus the jury thing was. So it was 385, 384, 383. I can't remember, I think it was four or five issues, the whole thing. But it was all in there, which was cool, because you usually get like, a bunch of random issues um, in one of those grab bags. So I was so impressed. And um, again, not knowing my creators at the time, I was really like drawn to this bagel art. And I love that the, the, the interiors were also by him. So everything kind of all synced up very nicely. So a fun little story, you know, just, you know, Spider-Man versus the jury is being framed for something. These guys are chasing him. I can't remember all the details. Um, but I just love finding that grab, grab bag that was effectively like a mini trade. It had everything I needed in this one grab bag, and it gave me kind of one of my early Spider-Man arcs um, well before I discovered, you know, going to the comic shop, having a pull list, and that kind of thing. It's so interesting because, like, I remember seeing these covers too, right? And, like, it really... And this is just something about when you're younger and you start seeing comics, and you have no real context for which characters are, like, long-running plot lines or long-running, like, you know, villains. And you're like, oh, man, the jury, they must appear all the time. Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny to me because, like, again, because you have no context. Like, it's like when um, I remember, you know, reading Uncanny X-Men and you get first appearance of Maggot. And you're like, oh, my God, this brand-new character. He looks awesome. And then, like, it never goes anywhere because you never know. Um, And I I do love that that element of youth, too, right? You know, just this this excitement um, for what you're about to see. Yeah. I was saying the the best part was having all the issues. That was so cool, right? Never happened again. I bought you know grab bags of that uh, from the same place, same store. Was always a hodgepodge, but that was really cool to get all of them. So why can't you be as cool as the jury? (laughs) Do you? I mean, I I don't remember the last time the jury really showed up. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. There's a to Google. <laughs> no, do you still have these these original issues? I believe I do. Actually, I, I have um, a, like along with my Clone Saga, a bunch of like retro issues. I'm pretty sure I, w- I would have kept these because I think most of my covers I'm going to showcase. I still have the original singles because they were uh, again comics that have kind of that special memory for me. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Need any thoughts? Are you still working out your uh, your kinks? Oh, um, do you want me to present or do you want me to just chat a little bit about the jury? Yeah, do you have any well, any thoughts about the cover, about the jury? Um, I mean, I read that issue as well. I had the issue, I believe, before that, and I don't know where it came from. I believe it was a birthday party, and it was like one of the coolest loot bag gifts that uh, I can remember as a youth, as a child, that they were giving away. He was giving away loot bags that included, included comic books in them. So that was one of my first introductions to... I think one of my first, yeah, the Amazing Spider-Man bag these are, and I remember really enjoying it, and 
I didn't. I, at the time, I'm like, I guess the jury's a thing. I mean, maybe they're a big deal, and they seem like really cool villains. And yeah, I greatly enjoyed that. So um, great pick, Paul, and it's very nostalgic for me. I, I have to say as well, like just going through the exercise of going through all these covers, it struck me just how many of Bagley co- Bagley's covers I just loved. Like they were just so good, and there's just something about the co- uh, the colors on Spider-Man's costume, often on the color uh, around the covers, that really pops as well, and and. Just something to that original coloring, too, that, like, I mean, and I, I, I was speaking with um, a comics historian recently who runs a publishing company called Two More Hours Publishing, and he was mentioning how and we were kind of talking about, you know, colors in comics, and I was saying, like, you know, I kind of miss traditional four-color comics. Like, I, I understand that they can do things with color that we could never have conceived of, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, in a lot of ways, that's good, but there's just something about the vibrancy of that limited palette that I do still respond to that when I look at old school comics, they do hit me in a different way. Um, in the covers that they were able to somehow still, you know, achieve these amazing color effects with such a limited, you know, limited technology has always been quite incredible. Yeah. For a time, you also, the comics were almost like that high budget intro sequence to a show, like an animated show, like the amazing, like high budget, you know, intro sequence. And then once, once the show rolls, it's not quite the same par, you know, I think, you know, like for certain Transformers series and, and, you know, those Silverhawks and and stuff like that, like it was out of this world, the intro, then the actual animation on the show, they didn't quite live up to it because they couldn't (laughs) keep the pace. Yeah. Like some covers in the past had this similar kind of, this wicked cover and then you you turn the interiors and especially with different artists, it felt like you weren't getting what you were being sold to a certain degree but on your spectrum that's right all right nate ready to present okay so yeah i'll i'll, I'll present all right so um this is amazing spider-man what is this i can't even see my own issue number oh it's uh 546 the first brand new day issue Interesting. Oh, wow. sorry i saw that again it was it's steve mcdiven um both pencils interior and he's doing the cover and it's a dance lot issue and i'm not a big dance lot fan but this is a great cover um, I think it's by now, right? But very iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, the, like to rotate this, like for those people who aren't able to maybe visualize this right now, it's Peter pulling a mask on. You can just kind of see the bottom of his smirking smile as he's pulling um, the rest of his mask on. He's going a lot upside or no, alongside of a building, and mm-hmm. he's got his camera swung over his shoulder, and um, he's kind of got two, a few fingers down on the stone. And or on the brickwork, and he's so it's almost like he's crawl running, and then so when you look at it, it's almost like Peter, you know, Peter's center, but he's a little on a, a little bit of on a tilt. And then if you look at the background, you can see how tilted this point of view is, how skewed the world is, and how, where the you know the horizon line would be, you know, very very angled um, from from the you know the the bottom line of the comic, um, and so it's it's just this really cool shot of the camera kind of almost turning to get Peter in the shot and it's almost a little bit of vertigo you get when you start to realize where the horizon is I don't know just it encapsulates this feeling of the the freedom and the defying of gravity that Peter does on a daily basis to me and it's just composed super well I just think it's a it's an excellent uh, piece by McNiven and even though I don't necessarily love the brand new day storyline overall it's, I just think it was a really strong start discovering so mm. and it, it feels very fresh and happy and positive after the very dour uh, previous story uh, which is one more day so that's my that's one of the, my, my top covers yeah I love yeah. the little smirk it's almost like I'm back baby like here we go <laughs> you know 
Um, you have Jonah, you know, yelling at him at the background, you have the camera, like it, it speaks to the very, like, one of those classic old school reboots of the character, and start fresh, but we're going to give you familiar footing, that kind of, uh, you know, hey, can sell when you sing Jewish number one, crisp on the, on the shelf, or new era relaunching, uh, on the shelf. Yeah. And it has everything you need too, right? Because it has um, J- Jonah Jameson in the background talking about a masked menace. You can't really see the word menace, but you can see him pointing angrily. It says Spider-Man Returns on another billboard. It says Daily Bugle above the, the billboard that says uh, masked menace. Um, you've got the character of New York, of Manhattan here with the high rises, with the skyscrapers. And I am a sucker for webbing. Hmm. And all the webbing and the title you know, it's hang, the Amazing Spider-Man is hanging from that webbing, and that's common. It happens with a lot of covers. I just, I don't know, I just think it, it does a good job here completing it and nice textures in the brick. I don't know. What do you think, Adam? Uh, well, one thing I, I, first of all, I agree. It is a very iconic and very enjoyable cover. I also like how, as you said, it, it is very, you know, reader for, new reader friendly. Like, you can just look at this and there's nothing, it's very... You know, it could almost exist at any point in Spider-Man's history. It's very clean, fresh. Um, whereas, not to say anything about you know the jury um, on Paul's cover, but it feels very more of its time. Um, like even their pose, you know, that the jury and Spider-Man had felt very of you know kind of a '90s period. Whereas this feels a little bit more clean and almost inventory-esque, and in that it could kind of be slotted into be the cover to almost any issue. Like it's not. And that's both good and bad. Um, I, one of the problems I had looking at a lot of covers um, in the last 20 years is that a lot of them didn't really have any story or context clues, and I realized how much I enjoyed that. I enjoyed something that made it feel like it was part of the story. Um, like Paul said, it was kind of like you know the intro to get into the issue as opposed to just a pretty piece of art. Now, thankfully, I think this one, as you said, kind of works on multiple different levels. And the idea of freedom and the returning you know, Spider-Man to being a sing- single bachelor, um, you know, kind of freeing himself from continuity, so to speak, it works on that level. So um, it, it it manages to elevate it above just being a standard stock image cover, which we got for like 20 years. All right. Yeah, so that's my beginning point or whatever. <laughs> Your beginning point? <laughs> well, for, for today's discussion, not for Spider-Man, certainly not. I, I was reading Spidey in the 90s and... Um, just after, uh, Max, actually during Maximum Carnage, I think one of my first Spider-Man comics was a Maximum Carnage issue. Hmm. I think it was. Um, Spider-Man Unlimited, what, two? That would have been the last Maximum chapter. Carnage. Yep, number two. Wow. I, it was, that was the issue where, um, after, spoilers, after Venom is defeated, <laughs> and Carnage, and Carnage, no, sorry, Carnage is defeated, right? Um, and he's the Sonic Blaster that he gets from Reed Richards, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Fantastic Four and the Avengers show up to cart him away. Um, I had no idea who these characters are. And I'm like, I, who is this clown-looking guy? Which was the vision. I didn't know. <laughs> clown-looking guy. Yeah, because he has like a red face which, and then like green cloak and yellow chest. And like it was very kind of almost circusy colors. And so I didn't know anything about him. And it didn't give me any context at the time. And I had, there's no real internet. No. There's no internet for me to turn to. And so I... And I wasn't currently at, hanging out with a friend that read comics, that one friend who at the birthday party who gave comics away. So <laughs> I turned to my father, who read Sergeant, Sergeant Fury comics and some Fantastic Four and some Avengers as a kid. Well, he read my uncle's. My uncle collected, and my father would steal his comics and try to read them. And so I'm like, well, he has some experience. And so I go upstairs, and I'm just like, hey, Dad, like, who are these people? And he's like, oh, that's Reed Richards at the Fantastic Four. And, that's, and, and I'm like, who are the Fantastic Four? And so that's how the universe starts to expand to me. Um, rapidly and I think after that he gave me a copy of Amazing Spider-Man 
they reprint um, number one, where Fantastic Four are there and they've trapped Spider-Man. And so that was just kind of like a natural extension for me to go, okay, these people have appeared in a Spider-Man comic that I have, and now here's another one to teach me more about it. So that's that's where I started reading. I just <laughs> this is where I'm starting today for covers. Okay, uh, it's interesting when I started. So as a preamble to mine, um, when I first started re- reading or buying a few issues of Spider-Man here or there, it was I guess the summer of '93. So it's just like it was in and around that Maximum Carnage time. So I had a few of those issues that summer uh, that I had bought, and I had like a couple issues of Marvel Tales, and then I guess like a year and a half went by before I bought any other issues. And uh, for my birthday, I got this cover, this issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And I enjoyed it. It was the first time I ever saw Daredevil. Uh, and he was in his black armor costume, and I thought it was awesome. Uh, it was by Mark Bailey, and everything about it was really cool. And then I remember being like, at the end of the issue, it looks like Spider-Man's about to die. And you're like, well, hold on. Like, you know, where do I get that that next chapter? So I remember going to the convenience store and, like, looking for this this, this book and finally finding it. And that's the, the cover I'm going to talk about, which is Spectacular Spider-Man 219. Uh, it's probably not the, the, you know, the best cover by any means, but it's definitely uh, introduced me to a few different things. It introduced me... Hold on here. I'm just trying to share. Uh, it introduced me to uh, Sal Buscema in a big way, um, who at the time I would say I, I didn't even enjoy him as much as I did later. Um, it's you know very simple, but it's got a lot of text on it, which is very indicative of the 90s. Um, I really liked... The, the Spider-Man font that they used in the 90s when they moved away from the the, the cleaner um, uh, the cleaner text and suddenly had this the jagged text. Um, I really enjoyed that. And again, you have a cool shot of, of Daredevil in the background. You have Spider-Man in the front. It just says the spectacular Spider-Man is dying. Um, it's a very kind of classic-looking version of Peter because, uh, I mean, that's just very on-model. It feels like just a, a few generations removed from J.R. Sr., but like not too different. Um, and I just love how... Even the spider on the costume, just like everything to me, it just looks so perfectly on model. Um, I love the shadows, and it just—it's always a cover that's spoken to me. Even though it wasn't my first Daredevil experience, uh, this was the first—you know—the the one I, I remember the most out of that—you know—those two issues of that Daredevil was in. So the issue prior was two nineteen spectacular Spider Man, or was it a different Spider Man book? So the prior the prior issue was Amazing Spider Man three ninety six because this is right at so the Clone Saga started with three ninety four and Amazing Spider Man so this is already into the Clone Saga technically so you okay. had the first um, you know crossover was Power and Responsibility that went through all four titles and then Amazing and Spectacular became Peter's titles and you had Spider Man and Web of became Ben Riley's titles so this was so the first storyline was Back from the Edge and the Exile Returns. So back from the edge, this is the fourth of four chapters. Going back and reading it, it's interesting because of the four chapters, and I think this is more or less true of the uh, of Ben's books as well, the first two chapters felt like they were part one and part two. Uh, chapters three and four felt like they were part one and part two of their own story. Calling them you know, of a four-part story always felt weird and disingenuous because I never felt like I really missed a lot by not reading parts one and two of Back from the Edge, which I don't think I read for, for years and years, maybe even not even until I got the uh, Clone Saga epics, but I always remembered this one. This was always one that I loved. Okay, I asked, I asked because I wanted to, to look it up for myself. So 396, I know very well. I know that cover very well. I actually was looking through some covers today, and then I came upon this one. I have never seen Spectacular Spider-Man 219's cover, and um, it's, it's got a, a lot of inky blackness, a lot of kind of cool shadow, with Daredevil coming in there with his darker costume. And so that is very evocative. I like that. It's 
uh, a lot of mystery around Daredevil, especially if you don't know a lot about him. And great to hear again that your first introduction, a reminder that your introduction to Daredevil was in the armored Fall from Grace costume, which is like shows how set right in your memory how part of you that costume is. And mm-hmm. while we all know the red one is the most iconic, that this is. It, this isn't the first costume I saw him in, but I love it. I and people will complain and say, "Ah, oh, it's a bad '90s costume." I think it's fun. I think it's a good. I think it's a fun That's alternate great. costume. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It is very 90s, I mean, in every way. I mean, everyone was getting, you know, armor, and you look at, like, Batman at the time when Azrael became Batman, right? So, like, this feels very of that moment. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. It is in tr- it's just indelibly imprinted on my brain that I just, this is my first Daredevil. This is the first time I ever saw him, and this is what he will be. I mean, I love his red costume. I even love his red and yellow, but there's just something about this one that will always be special. It's It makes sense, though, to have armor. I mean, first of all, it's darker, and he's a ninja, and having armor built in makes some sense. Like, not having armor is kind of silly. Having just, like, the same fabric as you would have for boxer trunk, you know, a boxer's <laughs> kind of um, shorts doesn't make a lot of sense. And um, there's no pouches. So it's really not that hyper-90s thing. I don't think – I think that we'll, we'll talk about Ben Riley, I'm sure, and Scarlet Spider. And I know people complain about the little pouches on his ankles, but they're not big. They're not ostentatious. And you, where are you going to carry your gum? Like, where are you going to carry, you know, the, the, the extra – web shooter fluid like it's nice to have a lid of the pouch it's not it's not a crazy cable pouches situation or even a cyclops after jim lee redesigned him situation so mm. i would say you if they were to bring this costume back they it would require very little redesign to i think fit very well with today's aesthetic one thing I, do, I, I want to point out. Thank you for tuning in to the uh, discussion about <laughs> alternate costumes and these right. costumes, everyone. It's a Daredevil costume podcast now. Uh, one thing I right. do love about these you know, covers of this period, and sometimes they do go over the top because there's so much text here, but I do like being able to use text because, you know, the combo covers, especially like the older ones, like characters would have dialogue on the covers like there there was you know truly something happening and they became obviously more kind of artistic pieces and less about you know kind of selling what's going on here but you know if you look at it from you know what is a cover supposed to do it's supposed to figure out a way for you to want to buy this comic so they're telling you right up front he's dying so you're like well hold on a second i want to know what's happening there um, i also like the idea that you know and they don't always lean into this i mean slot leaned into this a lot but you know you have hit you know have spider-man with a microscope and you have a you know a vial of you know something he's going to try like you have this idea oh there's science involved he's a scientist like there's another another layer and for a long time they didn't really lean into spider-man being a scientist nowadays i would say in the last 15 years they have but for a lot of his earlier period they they didn't always like he did stuff but they never really they never built it into the covers or really showed him using his smarts obviously if you read the books he was but um it was less of a you know an aspect that people would have instinctively thought of peter for mm-hmm yeah, and I greatly appreciate that return to, to, to that. The original source material where he's very sciencey. It sets him apart and shows that he can be in a room with a Tony Stark and a Hank Pym and, and not be completely lost, which they played to great, better effect, I think, once he joins the, the new Avengers. Like, not at first, mm. but then as the series goes on, it's like, oh, yeah, he does have a place in a lot of these rooms. And the one kind of, kind of funny thing, uh, looking at that cover as you're talking about it, and I used to, like, 
doodle and sketch tons of superheroes in the 90s like in our class in the high school and stuff and I, I look at especially the design of that leg hanging off the credenza there like very 90s like you know thick thigh goes into the thin <laughs> knee and thick calf and then it has like the very 90s feet not like life old bad feet but the very like you know the heel goes out and the toe comes protruding in and it all triangles up like I drew a lot of my feet like that like the, way, the exact same way in that art or a lot of my characters have the same kind of you know you buff them out and then you thin them up by the elbow or the knee and stuff like it's looking at that going oh my god that's exactly how you said doodle uh, superheroes so and, the, cool. and the foot ends uh, the foot becomes a spade you know like the yeah. thing tool it turns yeah. into the spade where and it's pointed and really just a two triangles kind of hugging and, and just kind <laughs> of off to the side it's not the coolest musculature it's not the most effective <laughs> at telling a story so we just kind of shove it off to the side yeah, yeah. Yep. alright Paul you got another one for us back to me yep I do let's go here <laughs> wow so uh, yeah spider-man maximum clonage alpha um and again this is like the epitome of the 90s uh, like this thing had the foil kind of overlay that went on the front and on the back and it was all shiny and holographic um you have the the, the, the shadow and then when, when you peel back the first layer there is like the, the regular paper underneath and i think you only get like peter underneath it so all the kind of the the, the uh, shadow effect of the various other Spider-Mans of Kane and you've been there are all kind of superimposed in the, um, the foily cover but um, I, this is the only kind of crazy like very 90s kind of funky covers but I remember again seeing this on the shelf and going okay that's super cool I need this comic because it just was you know this crazy thing again beautiful art I believe this is Ron Lim um, that I drew this um, and again I mean I know any better I figured it was I don't know very similar to Begley um, but then Nice big Spider-Man eyes. The, the shading's on point. The proportions are there. Uh, you know, Ben in the Scarlet Spider costume looks fantastic there on the cover. You know, uh, I think it's my, the first time I ever saw, I really understood Kane as I was getting bits and pieces of the Clone Saga uh, as it came out over time. Um, but yeah, an issue that just kind of jumped out at me and was one of the... Um, I, I got very piecemeal stuff um, before, you know, Ben kind of took over fully. But uh, I remember this book being super cool and, and finding it on the shelf randomly was, was an awesome experience. I've also never seen this. Never? You've never seen this? No way. No, I, I want to see it. I mean, I, I must have seen it way in passing. Way better in person. It's way better in yeah, person. Yeah, it must be. It, I mean, I'm sure if I thumb through more. I haven't finished reading through even my my clone saga epic trades yet i'm kind of picking at them as i get bounced around to reading other books um and so yeah seeing this in person i think would really really stand out to me because there's no way they can reproduce this in other in other forms right you have to have yeah. the multi-layered so this would be really fun to see yeah and, I, and again i love uh, ben's costume the scarlet spider costume and i really like Kane's as well i think it looks amazing so this would really have to grab my eye this looks great um for you nate you can find this in the complete clone saga epic volume four Number four, eh? And okay. the, it's interesting how they republish the uh, the cover there because they have kind of just the Spider-Man ones, just with all the different Spider-Men, but uh, Scott Spider and Kane, because they were the under overlay, they're on the separate page, so you don't really get the full effect or even the, the medium effect that this uh, image we're looking at right now is, but um, yeah. that's one you got to see in person. Yeah. Yeah, I want to. Okay, so I'm um, coming over your place, Paul. Tomorrow, tomorrow's good? Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> I just like look at a comic and leave. <laughs> you imagine? I, wow. It's worth it to me. It's worth it to me. That's awesome. Yeah, cool cover. I uh, I do own this one. I uh, don't remember 
how I ended up with a lot of the clone cycle stuff because I wasn't buying it as it was happening. Like I really started, spark, you know, buying things regularly uh, as Spider-Man wise, not till like issue four nineteen. Like again, I had a few issues before that, but I remember picking up a lot of clone cycle stuff. I think on sale at like the Silver Snail near me when they were going out of sale. Uh, sorry, out of uh, business. So uh, I think that's where I picked up a lot of these. So I didn't have it at the time, but I had it, you know, still in the nineties period. Um, and I, yeah, I, I always thought this was cool. I mean, it was a lot cooler than the the Omega. The Omega was fine, but this was this felt like it had a little bit more to it. I am adding this to my app um, to, to look to when I go to find comics and I'm looking, you know, what am I looking for? I'm adding this to that now so I can keep an eye out for it. I feel like there's a lot of them out there. Probably. Yeah, cool. But yeah, and it's interesting because you don't really get a good sense of just how good a Scarlet Spider and Kane image that is on the on the copy we're looking at here. Um, if you do look at your epic, uh, they, because it sets them apart, um, it's easier to kind of see just how good they are. I was about to run upstairs to go grab it, but I was like, I didn't want to like be gone. And then you're like, hey, I have a question for you. And then there's a silence, so <laughs> I'll do it later. Yeah, I'd love to run down and get my actual copy of it to show you the, the, the real thing, too. But uh, I have to take it up and take time. Yeah, and, and and you can show our listeners, too. If they look really hard at their phones, they'll be able to... <laughs> they can hear me peel back the foil covering, yeah. yeah. That's right. All right, Nate, you want to bring us through another one? Um, hopefully you're seeing this now. Are you seeing this? I'm shocked. I'm really excited that you picked this one, but I did not expect it. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear. Uh, you know, as beforehand, I said that you might be shocked at some of them. Some of my choices. I turns out I love Rick, Rick Leonardi, and um, you know, for the X Men covers, I picked one of his, the mm-hmm. famous Storm versus Cyclops one. I thought it was really evocative and really powerful. And I talked about why. And you, you all know that I love a good optic glass splash of that energy. And this one, this is the Amazing Spider Man two hundred and fifty four. Um, Leonardi in all his glory, excellent rendering. Um, I think with another artist, this would have been over-rendered, but he, it's not. And he, there's a lot, of, you can see a lot of lines, and he's just a lot of renderings, and this kind of uh, dark, it almost looks like it's raining, it's not. There's darkness, and there's a dark figure behind Spider-Man in the black costume. It's just a really dynamic pose. Um, he's crouching on top of a, of a truck that's been smashed, at least the windows have, that, like there's been some kind of a conflict or a fight, and then the background is, is that the shade. turtle van? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a, a Volkswagen van, but it, I, I don't it, know that it... It was the Hobgoblin's battle van, which was you know, an established essence at this point. And you can make out there's a, a goblin glider on the personage behind him, so you're like, okay, if you're a, a knowledgeable reader, you're like, it's the Hobgoblin, but it's just this cool shadowy figure, and, and I don't know, it's just beautifully rendered, and it's intense, and as Adam was mentioning um, very long ago, it would, there's dialogue on the cover and so it's telling a story it's inviting the reader is to be part of the story um and peter yelling no not you and now it was of course you have to pick it up and look through the comic to see who it is so i just think it has a lot of elements that make a comic great and i just think it's some wonderful visual storytelling by by rick and and it's drawn beautifully so i really i really like it but I, I, I uh, when I was looking at what was going to kind of make my list, I had a, a few that were right around this one, uh, 258 and 258, I want to say two, uh, or sorry, 251 were on my list. So I was I was surprised to see 254. It was not one I expected. Uh, it, it does have a very interesting 
you know, kind of uh, sensibility to it. Again, it has the black costume, which is always, you know, cool to see in action. Um, and again, it's got a kind of weird, kind of mysterious look behind it, right? In terms of, like, what's this weird darkness that this character is coming out of? Uh, in terms of kind of, again, getting you as a fan to want to read this, uh, again, it achieves it. Because, like, you know, Spider-Man has a recognition of who this person is who's coming out of the, you know, out of the you know, the darkness, but we don't necessarily. Um, so mm-hmm. it's really cool to kind of see how that that's played out. And it's just this gritty, grimy feel to it, which feels like New York, you know, the, how it's been depicted in the 80s. And he's got his spider sense going. And if you know even cursory, as, you know, aspects of Spider-Man's powers, you know, that means there's danger. And this is, it's just, I don't know, it's everything. And it's, it's dark and morose and also very eye-popping. And just that bright colored yellow of the van that he's he's crouched on top of is enough is really the only cover in the entire uh, color in the entire cover and it's just Mm -hmm. i don't know i find it very striking and compelling can i blow your mind a little do you know who's menacing him here right here um it's not the hobgoblin you're saying it is not then it must be demo goblin who was who was created years later (laughs) Uh, who who is it it's jack-o'-lantern Jack Lantern. Okay. Well, he is connected to the Hobgoblin. Oh, very, so. very much so. At least later on, not at this point, but uh, you know, absolutely, there ends up being quite a connection because obviously the Jack Lantern becomes Hobgoblin too. So, um, looking back, it's even more interesting to see how they connect. Now, I will also say I will spoil a little bit for you at this moment to say that I did not pick um, the Amazing Spider. Sorry, just Spider Man number one, Torment, which mm. is a very famous cover. Um, Maybe I hope it's on one of your lists. Um, it almost was on mine, but th- this, I don't know, the feeling of the webbing, like this gives me a similar feeling to the hyper-rendered webbing of uh, McFarlane, even though it's not got all webbing everywhere. There's just something about the way these lines are, these intricacy of the lines with Spider-Man. It makes me feel like there's a web. Well, there's a, a web of darkness all around him and behind him. It, it evokes that similar feeling to me. And... Um, so if we do talk about McFarlane's webbing at some point, I'll talk more about how I, I love his webbing. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I guess I can go again. Um, it's interesting. So, again, looking at my list, um, I really wanted to be, have it be representative of all these different decades. But at the end of the day, it did end up becoming a lot of 90s. Um, and this one is definitely a very 90s cover. My backstory to this one is that after the issues we just talked about with the Amazing Amazing Spider-Man and Spectacular, um, for whatever reason, I didn't pick up another issue of Spider-Man for a while. I had read some that a friend had, um, and then finally there was a new issue on the shelf, and it just looked so cool. And I think it was the same day that I had had issues of Untold Tales of Spider-Man stolen from me from school. So I went to, my mom was like, well, go repurchase them. And instead I bought Sensational Spider-Man number zero and the comic I'm about to mention. Um, And... So it has a, a special place for me because I remember, like, you know, I paid my own money for this. It was really exciting. It was the beginning of something new. Um, and then I didn't really, again, I wasn't buying comics on the regular. So I don't think I ended up actually reading Spider-Man on a regular basis for about another year. Um, and when you're a kid, a year is forever. Um, so yeah. it felt like, so in my mind, it feels like a lot longer than just, you know, a year between that Daredevil issue to this one and then a year from this to when I actually started reading Spider-Man on the regular. But when you're a kid, again, a year is everything. So I'm going to share that up now. Uh, this particular issue, 
uh, is issue 407. I went back and forth on it, and I told uh, Paul about this previously that I kind of wasn't sure which one of the, of either 407 or 408 that I might choose to be on my list. Um, but ultimately, I did go with Amazing Spider-Man 407, um, which was part of the, quote-unquote, The Return Of uh, series of books that came out all that month that every Spider-Man title that month had the return of uh, in the spider symbol in the left-hand corner uh, to show that, you know, the Sp- Spider-Man was back and we were done with uh, Scarlet Spider having his own series of books uh, that only went two months, uh, but we had a two-month event, and now we're back to Spider-Man being back, but it's Ben Riley as Spider-Man. Um, and this is, might have been the first time I really remember seeing this version of the Ben Riley costume. Um, I love everything about this, even though, again, it's very of its time. Um, I love the angle of Spider-Man kind of swinging in and kicking his, his foot straight through Sandman. When you're a kid, you're like, whoa, what, what's going on here? Um, you have you know a very Bagley version of Silver Sable in the background, um, kind of watching over everything. Uh, but there's just something about the kind of the power of Spider-Man slamming into Sandman um, and having this menace that always you know kind of made me coming back to this issue. Uh, the whole issue is one of my favorites. Uh, it's so much fun to go back and read, uh, even if I haven't you know don't remember everything about that that era because it's meant to be this kind of launching on point. Um, it's very easy to get into, but it's maybe not the again it's not the best cover, but it's one that I've always really enjoyed. And uh, yeah, I just find it so striking how that costume works. Like Bagley was one of the guys who really made the Ben Riley Spider-Man costume pop the most, and seeing it here is seeing it on full display. Only a dollar fifty. I missed that price. <laughs> right. I I really like the colors on all of these. The return of Spider Man or Spider Man Limited or mm-hmm. Amazing Spider Man or Spider Man. I like the the thematic, the similar theme or the same theme of the colors. So even though the titles themselves and the fonts is different, and the artists of course are different in each of the books during that month, um, there was a feeling like yeah, you could see all these together on the stand, and they would speak to a collected return and it reminds me of you know the heroes return colors those especially the golden the golden alternate the variant covers mm. um really feeling like it was heralding something special and even though they're across different books it has a united theme so i like that this isn't my favorite cover of those of, the, of those returns but it is memorable as well which one it was is. Um, I, you know i really like john reader jr it's not my favorite john reader jr cover but mm. Um, the, the return of Spider-Man, which, which J.R. Jr. does. Um, he's not even really facing the camera, as it were, but I just I like the composition of it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, very good cover. Very nice colors. It's vibrant. These have a variant that had, like, the the text lettering was, was shiny. Do you remember? Or am I, I remembering that incorrectly? I don't think this one was. Hmm. Trying to remember that period, I don't think so. I I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I, I wish comics were this cheap again. I think the Canadian price was what two dollars and five cents. Yeah, I bought a random issue of Avengers the other day because it was a connection between uh, the Jane Foster focused book by Aaron. So I just bought the one random kind of one shot issue, but it cost like six dollars. <laughs> yep. Well, I haven't bought it yet, but uh, I believe Amazing Spider-Man 900 is like $10. So, yeah, that's fun. Who's next? That would be Paul. Well, back to me, yeah. Okay, stand by. 
This is where you would regale us with preamble as you're getting it ready. <laughs> so this one's kind of a, a, a cute story. So I got into it, obviously, more Clone Saga era Spider-Man, so I had to kind of go back to this. Um, so Maximum Carnage. This particular trade um, is where I experienced Maximum Carnage for the first time, um, and it was actually a friend of mine who kind of... Um, knew about this storyline and kind of said, hey, we should get this trade. I'm like, okay, what's it about? Goes, oh, you know, Venom and stuff like that, and there's symbiotes, and it's a really cool story. Let's go get it. Um, so I remember that my grandmother took us to the store, and me and my friends spent, I don't know, half an hour trying to explain to my Ukrainian grandmother uh, and, and allow her to buy us this book. And I had no idea what, what was inside of this book, right? And she's looking at this thing, seeing this creepy alien dude, you know, floating over the city. It's a wonderful cover. Like, it's um, very creepy. It's all dark. They reused this for the Maximum Carnage video game, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's... You know, as far as she's concerned, this could be the two degree is a violent bloodbath in, in the comic. But you know, my, my poor grandma, she wasn't buying it for us, which was amazing. Um, and I think I, this is the one thing I don't still have. I think my friend ended up keeping it in the end. Um, I remember, but my first experience with Maximum Carnage was kind of yeah, taking my grandma to the store, kind of convincing her, no, no, it's just you know, it's comic superheroes. You know, we try to flip through and show her pages that weren't obviously graphically violent or anything. And she kind of hummed and hawed, and then she says, "Okay, boys, here you go." And and and, uh, and off we went. So, uh, kind of a cute story with that one. But uh, Leo, looking at the cover again, um, beautiful. I'm not entirely sure who um, is the artist on this piece, um, but again, really, you know, um, gorgeous. How the red all blends, you know, seeing it all him taking over, you know, turning the town red. The type of kind of stereotypical kind of thing you hear with Carnage uh, throughout his tenure in the Marvel universe. Because um, this is his first kind of really major coming up party storyline, right? Like everything about Carnage kind of all flows from this um, going forward. But that's kind of my cute story with Maximum Carnage. Very nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very arresting, right? It's yeah, I'm curious where they came up with it, like where they got it from. Yeah, because the like the shot of the city looks like a photograph of the city that's been tinted red, and then they've got I don't think it's Bagley. I don't know. Another an artist has drawn or painted an image of Carnage, right? And he just kind of superimposed or added on top of it. I don't, I don't really know. It doesn't. It's just, it doesn't, it's just like a trading card than a comic cover, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't usually see a cover like this with any kind of photorealism hmm. uh, from that era. I, I can't. I don't know. I have not looked up this question before, so I can't really. I'm just poking around now. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I mean, classic, and I think a lot of people have seen this image before, especially those who were in rental stores and uh, in, in the '90s and, and poking at the, the the Mega Drive or Genesis game or the Super Nintendo game and going, "I want to rent this," and then crying bitter tears when they realize they can barely get past the third level. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think if you look for Maxim Carnage, it's a whole different cover. I think this is the cover of the original trade, and that was it, if I'm not mistaken. That is the cover of the original trade, but I think. Let me go grab my card. It's di- like the epic uses something different, but the uh, yeah. but like there's been a few maximum Carter trades that have used that cover. Okay, it's very yeah, it's very striking. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking at my cartridge right here, the Super Nintendo cartridge, and it's it's the same. Yeah. 
same. It's been it's been cut off, of course, because they have to make it fit in this particular like rectangular thumbnail, Correct. horizontal yes. rectangular uh, rectangle. But you can see the it's the same image in the tops of the buildings and everything. Yeah, they just yeah. used to do. And it's super clean too. Like it's like Spider Man, Max from Carnage. There's no like. And there's no like even the creators are not on the cover nothing as it's super clean it's, it's almost mysterious in a way like here's this book you know come check out what's inside you know yeah horrifying and you can see you can just hear a bobcha going like i don't know about this and <laughs> why is it so red and we just got fighting the red scare and all this stuff and <laughs> trying to convince her to get it yeah cool am i next I guess you are. Um, I have more Tom Lyle content or art in my, in my, I guess in my, my broader list and a much broader list. But when it comes to just because I really love his work, but when I was thinking of covers that were most evocative and ones I really want to share, I, in my honorable mentions, I have another Tom Lyle one, and I have some other ones too. I could have added. I decided to go with this one. This is Spider Man number fifty one, and I just, I just feel like the certain elements here. The colors, the good, the, the coloration on the pants. This is Spider Man um, or Peter, rather. Like, looks like he was. I mean, does it look like? It looks to me that he had, was wearing jeans and a coat, and now he's kind of slid his gloves on and is pulling his mask down over his face. I guess you'll think that I have some kind of, I don't know, habit or pattern here in enjoying covers where Peter's yanking his his mask down over his face after <laughs> the Steve McNiven cover. But I don't know, just the the feeling of expediency, the feeling of panic, I associate a lot of that when I think about Peter um, and Ben. And perhaps it has to do with my own personality and feelings of panic and dread and having to, feeling to be thrown into a situation that I'm not ready for. And this kind of these kinds of covers encapsulate that for me. And so it's, it just feels, um, you know, this plume of smoke coming up from underneath him. It's a lower angle shot up at the uh, going up the side of a building. There's a full moon behind him. He's uh, Tom Lyle loves a full moon. Full moon's behind him. He's <laughs> jumping and going, ready to swing down on a, th- on a thread of, of his webbing and or a strand of his webbing. He hasn't even got his shoes on yet. Or he's sorry, his shoes are knocked off. He's kicked his shoes off, I guess, and getting ready to pull his boots on. Eventually, still has his coat on. Doesn't have the full costume on. He might even just go into action shoeless jeans a coat and then his gloves and mask and um the colors are really really good i, I feel um the feeling uh, the dynamicism uh, the the bulging knee and thigh kind of area that, that tom lyle to me is, is famous for he loves a good squared knee and so one of his knees is squared off and um just great energy to me and good colors and it, it tells quite a story. I don't even have to read any of the words on the page for me to kind of go like, wow, I, what would make someone have to spring into action so quickly? What's the smoke coming from? That kind of a thing. So I just, to, to me of all the Tom Lyle pieces, all the Tom Lyle covers rather, um, there, there are other works of his art that interior pages that I like better than this, but this is just, I don't know. I just feel like it has it all. So I picked this one. But if it was Unit, there's like a massive epic or omnibus sale at Ollie's, and you got to get there as fast as possible. Yeah, it's just, yeah. You're just racing out. Get yeah, there. Yeah. Well, I have felt that way before. Yeah, I mean, I've had lots of dreams about that. The kind of same thing too. Isn't that weird, odd? But like, oh man, have we all had that? Like, there's a super sale going on of some kind of action figure or comic or video game. Am I the only one? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. Okay. It's, it's interesting how many like there were some really good 
shots in this period, uh, not just in this issue, but just in this period in general of, you know, Ben Riley wearing like a leather jacket and just like jumping into action. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this cover is extremely evocative. There's just something very desperate about it. As you said, like the fact that he's not wearing shoes, that he's just, again, pulling that mask on. But the, before we had that smirk, it felt like it was a little bit more like he was taking his time. This feel You can feel the desperation. Uh, you can see that, again, the smoke makes you feel that desperation as well. So it definitely feels like there's something is happening and you need to, you know, you need to pick this up. You need to read it. And if you read the text, it, again, really uh, pushes you in that direction that you need to see what's going to happen because this is a clone. This isn't even the real Peter, but something's, you know, something's going to happen to Peter if the clone doesn't get there in time. Mm-hmm. That's funny. And the mask is the mask, but because the lines are so sharp on the eyes, it almost looks like he's intense. He's focused. Like they're almost angry eyes, you know, mm-hmm. as he's kind of whipping out there and, and showing that, that little extra bit of desperation as he's kind of pulling the, the mask, you know, hard down on his face. Yeah. I like it. So that's what, my third one? Yeah. So my third one is a weird one um, because it's it, it's not um, kind of a mainline Spider-Man book. It's Marvel Tales featuring Spider-Man, uh, which is issue 288. But what it was, it was, it was actually reprinting um, an issue of Amazing Spider-Man. Um, in this case, it was reprinting Amazing Spider-Man 280. So 280 came out, I guess, when I would have been like one or two years old. Uh, I believe it was from 84. Uh, but when I was picking up you know, issues of Maximum Carnage uh, off the newsstand in 93, they had Marvel Tales was running, actually, or it might have been 94. I can't remember the year. Um, so this cover I'm going to show is... Co- so actually, I'm going to show two covers. I'm going to show the original cover. I'm going to show the cover, actually, that I speak to more because that's the one I actually owned. Um, so first, I'm going to show this here. So the first first cover that I'm showing is the cover that this is an homage to, or basically it's it's a different version of. So let's see. So this is issue 280. It's a great cover on its own. It's a Ron Friends cover. Uh, you got like, a lot of villains. You got that first appearance and only appearance for many years of the Sinister Syndicate. Um, you have you know Beetle, Rhino, uh, Speed Demon, Hydra Man, Boomerang. You have Spider Man, you know, kind of crouched over Silver Sable, who's been injured. Um, Spider Man, if you can tell, is actually injured as well. He's got his arm in a sling, um, and you have you know this brand new team that Spider Man's about to fight. Uh, very cool image. I definitely enjoy it. However. Um, it's not quite as, as 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 important to me as the next cover that I'll show you guys. Let's just see here. So this is from Marvel Tales, and there were some really good covers that Marvel Tales had uh, in in this period. Oh, I know it. I have one on my list. Oh, really? I'm excited for that. Yep. Uh, so this one is uh, by Scott Collins, actually. Um, you know, who later on would do a lot of other work. He did Annihilation, the first Annihilation miniseries. Uh, he had long runs on Flash and other books, but uh, I guess he did, you know, covers for Marvel Tales. They were just kind of uh, getting these artists to kind of put together these these titles. Um, you know, it was just a reprint title, so they didn't have to do a lot of work on these types of books. Um, obviously, you know, it picks up from the same general idea uh, that Ron Friends had, but it has a lot more stylistic uh, bent to it. Um, it. It means a lot to me because, again, it was one of the first Spider-Man issues I actually paid my own money for. Um, the issue before it, I almost put that on my list. I think it was actually a Tom Lyle, uh, 287, which has a, a jack-o'-lantern and Silver Sable on the cover. Uh, but less of a Spider-Man cover because he's just kind of a, a silhouette. So here we actually see Spider-Man kind of jumping into action. You have uh, Silver Sable looking a lot less uh, helpless than she did in the Amazing Spider-Man cover. I love the detail on Speed Demon as he's kind of speeding into, into frame. Uh, Boomerang looks cooler than he has any right to be. Um, I would say only the, only, uh, the Beetle actually evokes, 
evokes uh, more of a classic Beatle from the 60s vibe, uh, less of the kind of more aerodynamic version that we, had, that we got in the 80s. Uh, even, you know, the Rhino looks cooler from the back in silhouette than he actually did uh, from the front in the other issue. And I guess the only one you don't really have any sense of who he is uh, is Hydro Man, because, I mean, I guess you can kind of see his watery hand, but there's a little bit less of a profile given. But uh, So I've always loved this issue, I uh, love the cover, and it just really sticks out in my mind. And again, there's something really cool about the colors and it's interesting because then we pick it up and again it's reprinting a book from 10 years earlier which has a much you know different color style and even art style so it's a little jarring when you get into the issue but uh, i've always enjoyed this cover it's really cool beetle's hands the perspective on them is kind of crazy they're they're massive (laughs) um i I don't as he's drawing things on this cover where as beetle might have been first not realizing how the depth perception kind of had to work and it was kind of interesting to see how both of them have this incredible amount of steam happening all like it's almost as if that's hydroman's powers that cause this steam (laughs) bath to happen more so than you know liquid and apparently at a circus that's a tent still left there by the text there um, and this kind of picket fence that they're fighting over. But, yeah, a very excellent cover, and, and you're right about the colors. I, um, we've done a couple of uh, GF cons with uh, Aaron Archer, who is a kind of a toy designer, mm-hmm. and he's walked us through kind of, you know, we're doing, like, um, building characters and, and deciding on, you know, um, what characters to add and how to design them. And colors are a very big deal, right? Because you your main characters are these colors. What kind of other colors do you add in from the supporting characters or the villains to help supplement um, everything so not everyone looks the same and everyone can stand out in their own kind of unique way? So it's very curious to see the you know, rhinos all gray and you have like the purples and greens in one and kind of the, the purples and blues with boomerang and then, you know, a speed team as a whole swath full of colors you know spider-man's black right now so you can kind of go match with anyone silver sable very bright in comparison so it does have a very um interesting take on how you kind of balance out everyone uh it's such a big group and make everyone kind of stand out in their own unique way i love this cover this is great i am not very familiar with it um but i I would probably look for this also just to have a copy of it. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Adam, th- th- these aren't these fingers of the beetle. This is from like his earlier appearances, right? When he had these like like long suction cup fingers. Yeah, that's what it, evo- it evokes more of that sense, even though he doesn't have them in the issue itself. Yeah, but it's like the artist is like, I like them. Exactly. So I'm going to draw them that way. And I love the color of the sky. It makes it feel like it's dawn, um, sunrise, sun rising, and then the the position of the camera here is over the shoulders of, of Rhino and Hydro Man. And so you can see Spider-Man is surrounded now with villains in the back, villains in the front in a way that wasn't true of the original cover. Um, I really like that one. Sorry, what was the number again? I'm going to add it to my list of things to look for. Oh, it was, uh, well, I just had it up here. Hold on. Uh, Marvel Tales is 288. Okay. Thank you. I'm really curious what the print run would have been on a, on a reprint book in the 90s. Like, I'm actually surprised it went on this long. Like, it, 288 issues of a reprint book is kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, I'm not No, I think it's Paul. me, right? Yeah, I'm after Mr. Chapman. Okay, cool. Uh, okay, so my number two. Uh, While you're doing that, though, I'm looking at 286. That Tom Lyle cover is that the one you were thinking about, Adam, with the hobgoblin's face? Uh, no, the one two eighty seven. Two eighty seven. Sorry, go ahead, Paul. 
No worries. Okay, uh, so for me, Amazing Spider-Man 415. This is uh, Ben Reilly Spider-Man versus the Sentinels. This is Onslaught Impact uh, number two. Um, again, one of my favorite parts of Onslaught is seeing Ben go toe-to-toe with the Sentinels and, and you know, watching you know the Sentinel come uh, by Bagley here, you know, head on and Spidey's almost like oh my god what do I do against this thing you know like I love you always love that taking your toys out of the toy box and seeing you know your your X-Men villains fight Spider-Man or, or Doctor Doom fight something else you know kind of mixing and matching not always fighting the same rose gallery so this is a really cool departure um, to see Ben you know kind of take on the Sentinels and what that meant and I always remember I think I think at least in this particular issue but you know the whole shot of him taking kind of the the, the manhole cover and whipping it and, and decapitating the one Sentinel uh, just trying to survive basically not really knowing how to take on these robots so I uh, always love this cover love the way uh, Bagley was able to draw this Sentinel I think it's just outstanding very uh, 90s animated series style of Sentinel as well um, just coming right at you like as a, as a massive threat and I just I've always loved this cover one of my favorites um, coming out of both, you know, not only onslaught, but as as part of the whole clone saga as a whole. It's like two of my favorite things together. It's 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 just so good. Um, I absolutely love it. I very much agree. This is one of my honorable, honorable mentions. Um, really like the the spider on Ben's back. Um, I haven't really looked at this the the right way ever. I've always looked at this as Ben is kind of. One leg on it, maybe two legs on a building, looking down at a sentinel that's leaping up at him. But it's the other way around. It's Ben looking up a building, and a sentinel is falling down on top of him. Which yeah. I don't see sentinels ever. That's not a thing. But I guess because it's so twisty turvy, the world spun around, and you're in a Spider-Man shot now. That uh, perspective is can be any any direction. But I love the colors, uh, fun composition. Gosh, that spider on Ben's back, though. Like, Bagley does an incredible rendition of the Ben Riley um, Spider-Man costume here, and I, and I really, really enjoy it. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he, he no one did that spider on the back like Bagley did. <laughs> like, there's just something about it. Like, uh, one of my honorable mentions also kind of prominently featured the Ben Riley Spider-Man costume with the spider crawling across the back. And there's just something about it, um, which, oh, that that's part of why I, I think it was such a perfect costume, because it felt like... You know, if if they had never gone back to the original, I wouldn't have missed it necessarily because it kind of remix this remixed a lot of those ideas, but just made it a little bit more modern. And so, like this spider just feels more natural. Yeah, this is what I want. I mean, the with this to the recording of this podcast, they had uh, I don't know what do you think is recent. A few months ago, they, Hasbro released a Marvel Legend Ben Riley costume. Um, mm-hmm. Spider-Man, and I just couldn't get behind the spider. It just wasn't right. It doesn't look good to me, and I, I didn't buy it, but I'm like, if it looked more like this, I snatched it up. Yeah, I think that the Japanese one that me, Adam, got is has does a better job giving yeah. it that, that bigly look, for sure. It's a yeah. bit more comic accurate, so to speak. Yeah. It's a nice figure. Even, like, I mean, I have the action figure of that guy from, like, the 90s, and they did a good job then. Mm. Maybe I should seek that one out, then. You can't have mine. Okay, fine. <laughs> Great cover, though. Good, 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 good call, Paul. Well, thank you. It's good job drawing this, Paul. Thanks for right. <laughs> it's interesting. I do like it, but I, I don't put it as high up on my list uh, of Bagley covers. Um, I do actually. I don't love the Sentinel on it, 
And I, it's less of a problem here, but I think in more in the issue itself, I just didn't really like how Bagley drew the Sentinels. There's something missing, or something that didn't quite work with me, and I, I couldn't figure out what it was. But I do feel like a, near the end of his title, which is, this is part of it, I think this might have been his last issue, or maybe one more issue after this, it did feel like he had less in the tank for Spider-Man. Um, that there was more shortcuts, shortcuts being taken in terms of some of the art. Not necessarily on the covers. I mean, the covers were still pretty good, but generally speaking, his covers are always great. Just some of them are better than others. Uh, whereas the interiors felt like he was starting to take shortcuts. Which is, if you go back and read Amazing Scarlet Spider, you'd see the same type of shortcuts, where he was not spending the same amount of time on making no, those, those issues as solid. Yeah, those are rough, yeah. Speaking of better than others, my choice next is Spider-Man 72, which is <laughs> same month. Also, Onslaught Impact 2. Um, this is, and, and, and I love the sticker on this. This month's must read comic. I don't think they ever did that again. No. And I would yeah, say I it was, wasn't. <laughs> you would say this wasn't the most must read? Not that month. I mean, maybe a, like, <laughs> like Onslaught is in the middle of happening and you're saying you have to read this? <laughs> if you care about Onslaught, I guess that's true. But if you care about a really excellent story that is magnificently drawn, I pick this one. I think this is. As far as a comic goes, I mean, one of my absolute favorite Spider-Man comics. So I, I love what's inside of it, and I love what's outside of it. Um, the Sentinel rendition isn't maybe the strongest part of this piece, but I really love the crunched building. It's Spider-Man kind of swinging away, holding onto a thread. It's uh, John Romita Jr. Um, again, the Ben Riley costume uh, swinging up and away from the Sentinel that is crushing a rooftop, trying to get to him. The glowing, the menacing glowing eyes of the Sentinel are, are quite horrific, hmm. as is the inhuman gaping maw. It's, 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 it's screaming something almost, you know, inceptible um, from its mechanical mouth. And it's just, it's horrific because of how close it looks like Ben got to being killed or how close you always seem like you're getting killed by a, by a Sentinel. His eyes, the Sentinel's eyes could be powering up to shoot a laser blast. Like, it just, it feels... Frantic. It feels more frantic to me, even than the the Bagley co- um, cover that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really, really love this issue. Uh, it's it's so gritty and grimy. There's so much rendering by Ramita Jr. in this of sewers and muck and crushed cement. And um, yeah, to, to feel the what life was like on the street level, as it were, for street level heroes. Um, you almost can't get better than this when when the Sentinels attack to kind of see it through Ben's eyes. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. made it so great because even in both instances, both covers, it looks like he's like retreating from this. Normally, he goes, you know, Spidey goes and heads on, no fear, I'm going to take this on, and encountering this new threat he's never even seen before, has no idea what to do with it. And in both instances, he's like, you know, backpedaling a bit, saying, oh, and assessing the situation a bit more than being than being headstrong into in, into it versus giant robots. And while the spider isn't as magnificently centered. Um, as the last piece, this I, it's still a great spider. Ramita Jr. does a fine, very fine looking spider. He he does a good job of of drawing this costume, and I love even the colors, the glint off of his web shooters, his bracelet web shooters. You can see from his right hand in particular, this is kind of mm. glint almost of the light. This early CG coloring, um, I don't know, uh, it's quite evocative. But again, this, the thick black inks right that come with Ramita renderings of the legs and the arms and the musculature is just. Chef's kiss. 
uh, there is something. I mean, we we sometimes make fun of Romita Jr. for his blockiness of characters, but there's some, when he does a sentinel, it's supposed to be blocky. It's supposed to be kind of like you know not awkward, but like there's something very blocky and robotic about it, and he really nails that. And as you said, it, it looks very inhuman, uh, kind of coming at you in a way that you know the Bagley one felt more like the the sentinel was almost like a superhero, like running you know ju- or uh-huh. jumping towards you, whereas this feels more like this this inhuman monster is grabbing something and you're just trying to like survive and kick it uh, <laughs> the best you can or try to get out of the way. So I, I do feel like in terms of really capturing the horror of what Sentinels loose in Manhattan should look like, this one probably is a stronger candidate than the other one. I agree. <laughs> and this is also pretty clean for JR. Like it's not overly <laughs> scribbly, right? And the proportions <laughs> on Spidey look good. Like it's, it's, You can tell he took actual time on this one, right? Like, versus some of the more sketchy stuff that uh, we tease them about. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, the the band is really good, and the caved-in rooftop and destroyed water tower is just, like, meticulously rendered. And to some extent, the face, but then the perspective starts to get away, and I feel like the shoulder rendering is not so good, and the arm is not so good. Like, it's like, I wonder if the hand and the rooftop and the Spider-Man were kind of first, mm-hmm. and then he's trying to kind of finish the cover and spending maybe a little bit less time on the shoulder proportion on the, on the uh, um, I guess, the short, the short, uh, the shortening of it uh, in terms of perspective. And I don't know, um, I'm, I'm not going to slag on any thing that he's drawn i think that even his fast stuff is better than a lot of people's slow stuff but uh, oh, fair yeah, enough yeah. there's there's something to be said yeah for like the stronger parts of this piece and some of the weaker parts but i just all in all i think it's really good uh, to, uh totally uh, like off topic for a second but you just made me think of this nate and so i thought i'd relay a quick uh anecdote from chip Sadarsky uh on his most recent episode he did with me he was talking about how when he was working uh with mark bagley at one point on spider-man life story um you know he he had to like Bagley came onto the project a little late, and so he was trying to keep up. And he fe- he felt like to his horror, like his nightmare uh, was that he was being chased by Mark Bagley. Like he had to write script pages fast enough for Bagley because at one point they were getting like two pages a day uh, coming in from Bagley because he's just he's a machine, and yeah. you know, and he was you know. Bagley was worried they wouldn't be able to keep up, and Chip's like, "You're a machine. Like, what's wrong with you?" Uh, but they, they, one of his his nightmares was that you know uh, Bagley would be so fast he would catch up to him and not have script pages to do. So he was just it, it kept him writing faster uh, because he was just so terrified of uh, Mark Bagley running out of track. Yeah, and Romita Jr. is the same way, right? Like he's he's so incredibly fast, and the fact that he's been doing mul- he has done multiple right in the eighties, right? Was he doing multiple books in yeah. more than one book a month? Mm-hmm. Just incredible. I mean, Bailey at one point was doing, I th- well, maybe not for a lot, but I think he was doing Thunderbolts and Spider Man, or maybe he was just finishing Spider Man and then doing Thunderbolts. But it always felt like it was at the exact same time. It might have been a month or two off, um, but like, yeah, he's a guy who can do it. Like he did a you know a ten to twelve page weekly series for a year like that's insane like no one else working in comics these days could do that mm-hmm. or would want to <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's too much uh so i'm gonna go back way 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 back for mine uh for my next one um it's interesting i think before i even saw this cover I saw basically um, a, an animated series adaptation of it um, in the 90s series. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of Spider-Man in the animated series called Turning Point. 
um, and it was just a very taut, exciting uh, episode uh, where you know Green Goblin and Spider Man fight, and then you know Mary Jane gets dropped through a time dilation portal. You know things that happen in the nineties. Um, but one of the things that happen in their battle is that uh, you get to have this 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 takeoff of this classic moment uh, where. Uh, you have Green Goblin going through the air with Spider-Man, you know, towing behind him, but he's Peter, and you can see the costume kind of coming through. And so that's the cover I chose. is a very classic cover of Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, let me just pull it up as we speak. This is Amazing Spider-Man 39, which is the first issue by John Romita Jr. Um, and this is just extremely classic Spider-Man. Um, you know, and this 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 two-parter, 39 and 40. Um, I don't know if you know if it could be more. You know, monumental to Spider-Man's history. Uh, you have the unmasking of the Green Goblin. Uh, you find out it's Norman Osborn, who really hadn't been in the book very much, but now we know who this mystery character is. Uh, it's one of the first times that someone actually found out who Spider-Man was and didn't think it was a ruse, uh, because that had happened before. Like, Doc Ock had unmasked him in front of people, but they're like, oh, uh, it can't be the real Spider-Man. It must be, you know, Peter's just trying to do something for some reason. But this was, unequivocally, this villain now knows who Spider-Man is. It's a, it's a real game changer. Uh, I can only imagine what it must have been like to be a kid and open up this issue and see this cover. Um, what does this What does this mean? How does this happen? Uh, what's going to happen next? So it's very exciting. Uh, and again, part of my affinity for it is because, again, I saw uh, you know an adaptation of it in a cartoon, um, which I always really enjoyed as well. I guess I'll go for 12 cents. Amazing. <laughs> Pardon me, Paul? Follow that for 12 cents, you know, at the time, given the cover price on this issue. Um, yeah, the, the, this, this shot is super iconic. I've seen it many, I've never seen the actual physical comic itself, but this shot, you know, you see it in trading cards and, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a Spider-Man centric one or a Marvel Universe centric one, it's a very like image that transcends the history like of the character very classic very unforgettable similar to you know um the the, the shot of the black costume in secret wars the uh mm-hmm. todd mcfarlane and all the webbing um there are a bunch of you know classic poses classic covers this is probably you know would be in most people's you know top five of you know most iconic covers in the history of the character who's about to hit 900 issues or something so yeah. um yeah, excellent choice. Even the color on this is very interesting. Looking at it from a perspective, the different mix of purples and greens on the Goblin. Um, Spider Man's pretty. Like, there's, there's, there's a bunch of shading on, on the green on his pants, but you know, otherwise he's pretty clean. Uh, the nice cityscape. Um, but yeah, really, uh, really cool. Really tells a story that you're curious. You you want to get this book and see, you know, what happens inside. They're both unmasked. Oh my goodness, you know, craziness. <laughs> It's yeah. crazy that it's also like again it's 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 a real game changer as well because again it was the first issue that had spy, for Spider Man that Ditko did not draw so this was again a, a big kind of shifting uh, of what this book was going to be already Peter looks more attractive than he looked in the previous thirty eight issues um, that became much more accentuated over the next you know twelve issues or so but then this was going to be a, a, a more attractive looking cast than previous uh, because Dicko was all about like really creepy people and awkward people which was definitely important to the initial success of Spider-Man that he was an awkward person uh, but then he kind of got out of that awkward stage it's kind of like puberty and suddenly he was gorgeous um, and that's and that's because of John Major Sr. Um, you know and, and his impact on the book is, is enormous 
and added to other classic covers that, you know, as Paul mentioned, this is kind of in the top five. What would they be like the final chapter, right? With Peter under the rubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then Spider-Man no more. Um, and then, you know, years later with, um, Mary Jane, not Mary Jane, um, um, Gwen and the bridge, the goblin mm-hmm. throwing her from the bridge, like certain very, very seminal covers. So this is absolutely one of them. And it's an interesting composition too that it's a it's a low angle up at the villain, and you can kind of see the helpless hapless hero, um, kind of you know more more to, closer to the camera, but the focal point is kind of the goblin still. So it is interesting how how he dominates the cover as well as the story in that in that way. Um, yeah, very classic cover, interesting choice. Yeah, and I had never thought about that the importance of the connection to the cartoon in that regard, but. And the and the illusions that they made, the references they made in the in the cartoon. So, yeah, good point. All right, Paul, you want to take us to your last one? Are we are we down uh, to the last one? I think yeah, so. Yeah, well, for me at least, here, yeah. Then we do the mentions, right? So, I feel my last one is going to be painfully obvious. I will throw it up here for you boys. So I have, so I have a bit of a one and a one A um, <laughs> for mine, right? So obviously, I, I don't uh, know what you're going to do. So don't say. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you were going to do. Yeah. That. So the one A is uh, Web of Spider-Man issue one eighteen. Um, my understanding is it is the first appearance of Ben Riley in the Scarlet Spider costume. So the first time I ever saw um, this costume was this comic um so very special to me i actually have a canvas painting of this in art class this very cover i so i don't know about any text or anything i have, I have a green background sort of the gray um and my one leg is kind of bled off the canvas a bit for the reason i couldn't kind of draw it in there but um you know this was you know um everything about this just screamed to me um and obviously i hadn't had a lot of you know previous spider-man exposure to really you know uh know the differences between ben and peter at the time or i didn't really need to miss peter for anything obviously there was a lot of history there so kind of starting fresh with ben uh was a cool place to start um you know now i know a lot more now than i did then but this was you know such a cool moment and uh and to be introduced to ben here um you know i think i had like five copies of this book at one point at one point i think i'm down to one or two now um but absolutely love uh this cover um, and then obviously um, the 1A is this one here, A Web of Scarlet Spider number one. I have this book framed um, in my home. I have two versions. I have the one here with kind of the cloudy background and another version of this cover, which is just a kind of a bright yellow. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure which one would be considered uh, more rare. Um, the 118 issue is Steve Butler, if I'm not mistaken. And this one is by Tom Morgan, uh, if I did my research correctly. Um, but again, this was, you know, and you can see like a lot of, you know, uh, the designs, the, the the detail in this web of Spy- uh, Scarlet Spider is, is, is much more detailed than kind of the more simpler uh, web of Spider-Man 118. But I love the detail, kind of the, the ripped hoodie um, happening around, the, the eye design being very iconic and different, nice and big, similar to Begley. Um, I love the, the detail in the webbing, even kind of shooting out at you. Um, I kind of semi trace this and, and sketch this out and i practice a lot. a lot a lot of my early ben riley stuff based on those two uh pieces of art you know you kind of have the homage of the the spider-man costume in the garbage can you know spider-man no more here's here's uh, what i'm going to be about scarlet spider almost this r.i.p rest in peace kind of the spray painted in the corner this graffiti 
um, you know, this kind of classic number one with the, the spidey face in it, um, you know, and, and taking the text and just, you know, changing it to Scarlet Spider versus Spider-Man. Like, all of it was really just awesome sauce at the time. I loved every minute of it, so... Um, could not say enough. I, I love how this this picture, this art, really pops. Like it's just very '90s, very awesome. Love the detail, the coloring. Um, you know, by far one of my favorite covers. And again, this is my my early genesis in the comics, so super special to me uh, from that front. This I have seen in your home, so this was not a surprising. But the 118, I didn't. I didn't know that it was as meaningful to you. I didn't know that you were. I think you may have mentioned that you'd painted um, it before, and that escaped me for a moment, so I wasn't thinking about it. But, yeah, I have never tried to track down the original issue, and so I've never really put as much thought into it. But those, those are both really fun. Those are both really interesting stories and, and um, a lot of meaning for you, a lot of personal meaning, each of them. So that's really that's really cool to hear about. And there was 90s feet again in the back of the Spider Web of Spider 118, right? This is what a lot of the feet were very pointy, very spaced. Space, yeah, he can, yeah, he could dig a garden up in a minute. He'd be good to go. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I would say, like, I kind of like the Spider Man more, or sorry, the Scarlet Spider more on the 118, but at the same time, it, everything else is just so kind of bland because it's, it's all about the image whereas as you mentioned on the other one there's so many more details in the Scarlet Spider cover because you have the you know the thrown away Spider-Man costume the fact that you know he's he's embracing this other identity uh, more fully like it, it, it probably is more speaks more as a cover because of the other background details uh, although yeah. I would say I prefer the Scarlet Spider himself on the web of Spider-Man issue uh, it's fascinating to look back at and I, I would love to talk to someone who was around at that time about the decision to kind of split off and you know you immediately bring back the clone and then you just give half of spider-man's books to him like that's really kind of you know surprising um that they would do that and in some ways not just launch a squad spider book right away instead they repurpose spider-man's existing books uh to effectively be a scarlet spider uh, solo title for a couple of months um which is surprising because you know in this day and age i just from this period, I would not have expected them to to do that. I would have thought they would have wanted to flood as many you know Spider Man issues out there as possible and, and you know take advantage of this new character. So it kind of surprises me that they had restraint, uh, but also thought enough of this brand new you know returning character um, to you know kind of you know more or less give him his own book uh, for at least a couple months uh, and again repurpose the Spider Man title. Very interesting. Yeah, it's very aggressive and yet restrained, right? You use that word restrained in a way, but also very like in your face aggressive, almost mm-hmm. almost poochifying him, right? This is like your Poochie <laughs> now, and everyone's gonna be talking about him, and then maybe if they had been a little less extreme, nineties extreme in the way that they uh, conducted themselves or the way that they expressed this character in, in, in the portfolio, the Marvel portfolio, it might have been ever accepted or um, received a little more positively by more Marvel fans. Um, I know there's a lot of people who bad blood or not, not a lot to say, not a lot of good to say about this character, but I hope that we're seeing more and more in modern comics that he can be redeemed and may well be redeemed and people can kind of look back in this period and go, yeah, a lot of weird editorial decisions, but there's a lot of beauty in the, in the storyline of Ben Riley and some cool stuff about his costuming and all that stuff. So hopefully, hopefully people who are fans of your podcast won't be like this entire section of your 1000, 1000, thousandth episode won't be rolling their eyes going like there's a lot of Ben Riley content in here I mean if they know me at all they should expect this <laughs> yeah we will not apologize <laughs> alright Nate you want to bring it home 
with yours? Um, okay, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. For me, okay. So you did a Marvel um, presents or whatever it's called, Marvel Tales. Marvel Tales. So here is the cover oh, wow. of two twenty seven that I I love greatly. Um, and the original cover is where is it? Uh, Amazing Spider Man ninety two. When Iceman attacks, and this is John Romita Sr., Spider-Man swinging kind of more in the center of the page with a very terrified-looking Gwen Stacy, and then Iceman building, you know, this cool little corkscrew ice slide up in the background and shooting a really terrifying ice spear out of his hand and uh, almost, you know, slicing through Peter's hand, but it cuts his, his thread, cuts his webbing instead. Um, and Peter's looking backwards at Iceman. And in some ways, it's really evocative because, you know, it's the screen, the terrified Gwen Stacy um, and the ice beard, the glint off of it, the, the sharpness to it. But I don't think the composition is quite all that strong. And then we go back to the Marvel Tales. And uh, this is an issue that I have had since I was a kid. I don't know where I got it from. But um, and I, I did note <laughs> that the interior and the exterior I was, I was quite young, but it was, was very, very different. I, I was like, what, what is going on with the exterior versus the interior? It's kind of that, you know, Thundercats opening uh, that Paul was talking about. Very different artists. But just something about this composition of, of McFarlane, um, with Spider-Man, hyper-extended, right? There's a lot of these weird hyper-extended legs. His legs are, his feet are almost higher than his head in many instances. They're super spades, these, these, these feet. Um, and uh, he's bent over almost in half, uh, an incredible um, acrobat, and the webbing looks really good. I love the McFarlane almost angry-looking eyes, and uh, you don't get a lot of the webbing, so this isn't so good as far as the webbing goes. There's other better McFarlane webbing um, mm. images, but there, there's some. It's kind of the spaghetti, kind of, it's all over the place. It's not straight. It's it's um, full of mayhem, but it's the Iceman is also so good, like, the way it's show, showing Iceman shoot that ice blast at him, and it's almost like cracking up against the side of the comic, mm. and then shattering into a million pieces. And his ice slide is like an ice dragon with fangs, as it kind of like sharp pieces coming off of it as it slides up towards you, and the energy effect, and, and almost the, the the sun flare coming off of Iceman's. Um, glittering ice attack it's just so much energy um and i would just stare at this image i don't know over and over again all the time looking at it pouring over and i read the comic a million times but i would always come back to how much the cover really just excited me and it was so different from the interiors and i i wondered who this you know artist was and i, I just i was very young at the time but um marvel tales 227 um probably one of my most read and cherish comics is good. I still have the comic. I, I put it in bag and a board, but it is it is shredded. It's torn and <laughs> uh, bent around the edges. There's not like a straight piece of paper left in it. Um, but I, I, it's a childhood treasure, and I think the art is really really evocative. I really enjoy the McFarlane art here. What is that purple circle? I can't make it out. This going around is, is that yeah, it's like, like an energy. energy. Yeah, it's like an energy effect. That's the, him generating this. Um, that's what I take it as the ice, and it's kind of all this the, glinting. The sun is glinting off of him, and yeah, it's it's very cool. And like I like that 
you know, the, these are off the beaten path. Like, you know, these aren't your typical, most people probably will have never seen these. Um, so I like seeing this type of stuff. And McFarlane had a really interesting run of covers on Marvel Tales. Uh, and a lot of artists did. Like, again, like, because it was just kind of other work that people were doing. So you would get Rick Leonardi, you would get, you know, Scott Collins or Tom Lyle or McFarlane. Like, you had all these different artists that kind of did these covers. Um, I And it's interesting to, like, were you... Like, when you were a kid, where you were like, why is the interior so different? <laughs> yeah, thinking? I was. I just didn't know. And I, I must have been, like, I don't know, eight or even younger or something. I don't know how old I was. But I was young enough to kind of go, like, it's clearly different. And I, I respected a lot of the stuff that was going on with Ramita's work there. There's a few panels that are still very strong in my mind about what I like he was doing uh, with Iceman's tricks and grabbing the, the back of Peter's. I can't show you right now because this is just a cover. But, like he zaps these two ice kind of like lassos almost and they wrap around the ankles of Spider-Man and then he like Peter arches his, his uh, back his body back and then smashes these kind of loops that have been tied around his ankles like there's some really fun Romita panels in here but it just it was so different from the cover and it was again like I said like the, the beginning of a cartoon that was so dynamic and in your face and then the rest of the episode was just so so different and so um, to me I you know, I, d- I don't know really how to work through that as a kid. I, I like them both, but I really like I prefer the cover. Mm. And um, I, I, it's meaningful to me, and I'll read it a million times, but I didn't know what the little signature in the bottom was. I didn't know that McFarland was one of the hottest artists alive. <laughs> there again, no internet. My dad knew what an Iceman was, and he knew what a Spider-Man was, but my dad couldn't have told me who McFarland was. He wouldn't have been able to. He might not have even known about what the, repr- the nature of reprinting was. Right, so... It was my only conduit into you know some kind of knowledge about the Marvel universe because I didn't really have a lot of friends at school that read comics. That's so. uh, it's, it's yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And again, I I love the the personal touch of you know not not having any idea what this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you read it and read it and read it and enjoyed it, and it's still. I, I I need to find another copy. I should find a copy that's not as destroyed as mine, and maybe maybe yeah, do what Paul did and get a framing of it or something. There you go. Yeah. So my next one is a weird one. Um, it is, a, it is a 90s book. I went back and forth on which, you know, which ones to kind of include. And I wanted to give love to a book that probably no one's ever thought of um, or looked at or in terms of the cover. Um, it is, uh, let me just pull it up. It's from uh, Ejectively Spider-Man, shortly before it was cancelled in 98 and replaced by, as part of the kind of relaunching of the books that happened at that time. I've always been really um, a big fan of that weird period um, when the Clone Saga was over, but you, you had this kind of post-Clone Saga prior to the kind of relaunched uh, books, and that's when I really started reading comics, and so I love that stuff, um, and so I'm going to show this here. This is Peter Parker Spider-Man uh, 95. Um, it says it's the most intense Spidey story of the year. Uh, it's a JRJR cover, um, so you have, you know, they're... they're it, they are in an elevator uh, that is falling, um, and it's Peter and Norman Osborn, you know, fighting each other with the the specter of Spider-Man kind of above them. 
um, which I actually don't know why that, that Spider-Man image is actually there. It's kind of a weird uh, shot, but I just, I've always really liked seeing Peter and Norman kind of go at it um, in their you know civilian lives. It's inter- it is an interesting issue, not quite as action-packed as the cover would have you believe, um, but it is you know basically that you know um, Nitro the bomb burst um, tries to assassinate Norman Osborn while he's at a you know getting on an elevator, and so you have Peter and and Norman and a few others are trapped in this elevator, um, and you know it's Norman taunting Peter. Uh, at this time, he was kind of in his evil businessman phase, not a outright goblin phase. Um, and you had Peter ha- trying to struggle with, you know, do I reveal myself as Spider-Man to save our lives? What do I do in this situation while also being taunted by his, you know, his his worst enemy? So I've always enjoyed the issue, but uh, in particular, I've just I've always liked the cover. It's kind of a, a weird one, um, but it does feel like there's you know an intensity to it. And again, I like the you know the text uh, saying it's the most intense Spidey story of the year. I like that it has that kind of it's free fall. I like this this whole kind of aesthetic. It's it's an odd one, um, and it's probably no one's picks for like the best covers, but um, it does make you feel something, and it does feel like it's you know there's action going on inside. I'm not very familiar with this. There's interesting colors, the the yellow and the light streaming down, and yeah, that I I don't know what to make of that superimposed. I almost thought it was like a, a reflection in glass, right, and that mm. like. And that he's reflected on the outside. I don't. I don't really know either. But it, it is a fun punch up. And I know you love this era, right? You've talked about this a few times, and like how this can be recollected. I know, like in the epic um, forums online, it's like, yeah, like how many, how many of these issues are really represented? That period between the end of the Clone Saga and between um, the, the kind of restarts of a lot of these series in the early two thousands. And so, I guess, has this been recollected anything yet, or, or are we waiting still for oh, that? Oh gosh, no. <laughs> Okay, so this is one of those kind of lost issues. It is one of the orphan titles. Yeah, there's there's only been a few trades that they ever put out that was again of this period. There was Identity Crisis, Spider Hunt, and the final chapter. So this is kind of falls outside the purview of those particular ones. I just I love those books. I don't have the entire period because I was only picking up I think Peter Parker, Spider Man, and Amazing at the time. Uh, so I don't have the sensational Spider Man issues. I don't have the spectacular issues. I have a couple of them here and there, but not all of them. Um, but I would love to pick them up at some point. But yeah, it's a very neglected era because again sales went way down clone saga was ending and uh you know uh marvel's going through bankruptcy like it just was not a time to that people really had bought these books and so there was low print runs uh, i don't think a lot of people have read these issues at all um and so yeah i'm very partial to it if they ever do a proper you know collecting of the period i would happily buy it um it's just some of my favorite spider-man books to this day i i just i take get so much fun like even a week or two ago i was showing zach i'm like oh man you gotta read identity crisis and he just kind of looks at me like okay uh, like what is this but he, but then he read it and he, he was he was reading through like spider hunt and stuff and there's a lot of fun material in there and again there was there was four books and uh you know there's just a lot of material happening and you had mike ringo was you know on sensational spider-man you know jr jr on peter parker spider-man i'm trying to remember who was on amazing at the time i think it was it was it was joe bennett actually for a little while it was first it was steve scross um, then it was Joe Bennett and a lot of fun stuff there. So I, I'm extremely partial to this period, even though I know mm. that most people are not. Mm. Cool. I, I did not expect this one. This is not, yeah, for sure. Didn't know this was coming. It's a weird one. But I love the John Romita Jr., so. Yeah, the, the, it's interesting. I had a bunch of John Romita Juniors I kind of looked at, and but this one just, uh, again, because I was a kid, you know, I, I was, I'm trying to remember what year this was, 
I think I was only like 12 or 13 years old. And again, I don't have a lot of comics at this time. So when you only have, and this is the part I miss um, in some ways about when you first get into comics, when you only have like, you know, 12, 20 comics, you read those comics over and over and over again. And I even hear you guys talk about those issues, you know, that you've basically read till they don't exist anymore, or they're falling apart. It's because you didn't have a lot of issues. You didn't have a lot of choices. <laughs> so you just read it them. It wasn't because they were good, you're saying. They weren't well, even very good. I mean, you liked, like, the, you, you, liked them as well, you liked them as well, but you just didn't have as many. Like, you know, Zach has read, pro- or at least flipped through at the very, very least, like hundreds of comics. So I, I'm very curious what, what will stick with him as the ones that he really likes because he doesn't have just the five books, you know, he can read. Like, my dad had no, basically no comics, but he had like, you know, one or two maybe. And I remember those issues, I read them like over and over and over again till again to the point where they they just kind of dematerialized in my hands uh, but I only had a couple options so um, I'm very curious about how that impacts especially you know nowadays you have so many trade paperbacks and ways to get these things you can get them digitally and you know you can read these things in a very different way whereas we couldn't do that I'm also curious like I was listening to a podcast and this guy was talking about how you know he got into comics when he was a kid during the Dan Slot run, like the first kind of major Dan Slot run. So he's obviously much younger than us. He's like in early 20s, I think, now. And he was saying, like, one of the first things he did was, like, read the Marvel wikis. I'm like, that didn't exist. That wasn't a thing we had access to. Like, I can only imagine what that would be like now to be able, you know, if you had a question about anything that ever happened in an issue, you could find it out you know, very easily now. Whereas we had no idea. We had editor footnotes and that was it. And we just had to, yeah. you know, build up the stories in our minds, which I actually prefer. Um, you know, it's cause, and again, things like that matter. It's like when you heard a song on the radio and then you'd be, you know, listening to try and find out, you know, who, who does that song? So you're listening through all the, the blocks of audio just to hope that they will mention, well, that was this and this and this. So you can figure out who did that song. Like you had no way of figuring that stuff out, but because you, you know, it became a journey. It became, uh, you know, a quest. It became something that was ingrained in your mind, and you remembered it more. Whereas, if you were like, "Oh, I really want to know what song that is," and then you look it up a minute later on online, you're probably never going to remember that song again. It's not part of your your journey anymore. It, it was it was a brief moment that you wondered about something, and then you found the answer. But whereas in a pre-internet world, you quested for things, and then they meant more. So you're saying that scarcity and preventing immediate gratification. Uh, is the is the recipe to a happy childhood, and <laughs> and the opposite of that is just uh, not as not as satisfying, perhaps. So let's take away some of your comics. I mean, maybe Zach should really <laughs> let's just destroy your, or maybe put into storage a few thousand of your comics, and we'll leave him with five, and then he'll, he'll grow up right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I see this with video games with him because he'll be like, you know, if a video game is too hard, he'll just move on to something else because there's so many video games we have access to. When I was a yeah. kid, I had like you know a handful of games. I had to keep playing that game. Like, like there was no option, and eventually you would get better. Um, yeah. But you know, you just didn't have a lot of options. So you wouldn't just move on from it because you only have like five games. Eventually, you're going to have to come back to it pretty soon. Whereas these days, there's this burden of choice, right? Like if you know, I own you know what sixty, seventy Switch games. So if Zach plays one that, that he's really bad at or it's too hard for him, he'll just throw it away. Well, not throw it away, but like put it aside <laughs> and never come back to it because there's so many other games. So scarcity is, is good. Yeah. I'm such an old man. I'm like, I want us to have no choices. I want us to have like well, five video games and five comics and like three channels on the TV. Well, you limited us to five comics today. 
I did. Are we going to are we going to move outside of that limitation? Or are we going to talk about the other comics that we wish we could have said but we didn't? Absolutely, we weren't able to fit it. So, Paul, why don't you I, I, kind of lightning round show us some of your honorable mentions? Okay, you want me to to reel them off here? Yeah, yeah, go through them quick. I mean, share them with us. Well, you can share them with us so we can see. Yeah, I do, I do, I do. Yeah, (laughs) share them with us, just not the listeners. No, well, I mean, the listeners, you have to at least say what what the issue is. Yeah, and then they can look it up. Yeah, let me know when you can see it. I can see it. I can see it. Boom. Okay, so this first one was just for giggles, actually. Uh, Superior Spider-Man, issue number two, Ryan Stegman, um, you know, the Doc Ock possessed Pete, surprising um, uh, Mary Jane with a deep, passionate kiss. And I like this because it reminds me of this. Uncanny <laughs> X-Men, 354, uh, Wolverine and Jean Grey going Although out in kind of they, a similar fashion, right? They both oh look God, more into it, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> Whereas exactly. you know, Mary Jane, look of horror on her faces. This is happening, but uh, I don't. I is it horror it was, though, or is it surprise? I think it's surprise. 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 Yeah, just shock. We have horror like, because we know who it is. Done that before. I don't know what she's wearing here, but it's fine. But yeah, this is a kind of when I, when I first kind of discovered Ryan Stegman. As you know, I've done much better since being friends with you uh, nerds, uh, understanding creators a lot more, and, and knowing who's who and appreciating art uh, to a different level. So. Um, Garney work here, back in black. Um, this, you know, nothing to pick about this kind of cover, but, you know, this whole story, this, an amazing Spider Man, I loved it. Um, I thought it was, you know, just peeling out of Civil War, um, was super intense, loved the art, loved the whole story, uh, of that arc. Um, and I guess it's a, it's a great kind of shot with the, with the webbing and stuff of the black, co- Peter back in the black costume. So, what issue, what issue is that one? Oh, geez. Uh, Five. I can't see that. Let me zoom in here. Five thirty-nine. Okay, so that's just Peter's like with the black costume and kind of staring yeah. right at the the reader. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. That is um. Again, more Stegman. So you have this is from Amazing Spider Renew Your Vows number six. Um. Again, you have a mix of Peter and his uh, you know family and alternate reality just mixing up with the X Men. So, except for Jean's kind of wonky hair going on over here, I love the, the Logan and the Cyclops in the picture. Nice optic blast for you there, Nate. Um, so, yeah. I think I, I sought out this cover. I didn't like. I want to go back and like find these books now, um, thanks to that new Marvel Legends two pack coming out for um, Spinnerette and Peter here. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed the, the Secret Wars kind of mini series. I didn't read all of this stuff, but um, I let's go back and kind of read these books for Ringing Your Vows. I thought this was kind of a, a fun cover because kind of again we hadn't had nineties level X Men in a while, so kind of having them here in this alternate reality, um, I thought was a ton of fun. So this is a cover that uh, attracted me to pick up this issue um, and. Uh, Olivier Coipel, um, mm. some Spider-Verse. This is from one of the covers of Spider-Verse, maybe the trade paperback, I believe. But again, appreciating um, other creators uh, get, doing other characters. I love his Thor work, so soon do some Spider-Man and Spider-Verse. You know, I know um, not everyone loves them, the Spider-Verse stories, but I did love the art by Coipel um, in this arc for sure with Slot. Um, so I will give it the green light as uh, one of my top honorary mentions. That is a nice piece. 
Yeah, cover. nice splash page of you know Miles. You got uh, Kane, uh, Scarlet Spider. You got uh, Ben, uh, Ben Riley, uh, Spider Man. You got Spider Gwen, Punk, um, Superior. So I'm not sure what this one's supposed to be, but you got Spider Ham in there. Uh, but yeah, really nice stuff. And just them going to war. That the, the the costumes are kind of you know tattered and beaten up a bit. So they know it's going to be a battle to survive whatever um, you know off panel uh, thing they're swinging into. Very nice. So those are my mentions. All right, Nate. Me, I'm next. Okay. Uh, show a tab, but this isn't the one that I want to show. Actually, um, this is one of them, but I was trying to find out what the issue number was. Uh, so I might as well start with this one. This is Ben Riley, um, Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. It's Ben, ben Riley, Spider-Man, um, and the, it's an alternate cover variant. It just says variant. So I'm gonna. That was from the most recent run, I believe. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. So I don't know if that's its own volume. I don't think. I don't think there's more than one volume of Ben Riley Spider-Man. I think it's its own. Yeah. Volume yeah. So, five so, miniseries. Yeah. So far, yeah, it's five just a, miniseries. Just a miniseries. Yeah. Um, the only thing I, I love it. It's got great colors, but the sticky hands is the only weird thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I. I. I at first, I was like, I don't know, but I kind of like. I, I, I like its uniqueness. So what it is is. Um, ben Riley Spider-Man in his Spider-Man costume, perched on his feet on the side of a water tower, and so I like the watercolor. Colors are really nice. The costume is really nice, and he's kind of like looking down. And what's holding him in place, I guess, not just his feet or his hands, but his hands are attached to webbing, and so he's kind of got webbing attached to each of the fingers on his hands. And I've never seen anything like this before. So um, I don't know if I love the the sticky hands, but I don't hate it and I like how unique it is and it's weird and it's kind of a little bit gross and I kind of like that because he is a Spider-Man. So having him webbing kind of not always looking pleasing is kind of fun. And I just – I like the costume. I think it's a fun um, variant edition of issue number one of this this series. So that's one of the ones I was thinking Mostly of. He changed his mind on the background what it was going to be and I can't make his fingers longer. So let's just put some webs on his, on his fingertips and we'll make it work. <laughs> yeah, you think so? Maybe <laughs> – Maybe he didn't just think it through, but um, yeah, really nice watercolors on this. Yeah, I don't know who the artist is. Does let me see. I'm not sure. We didn't know. And really, Spider-Man variant cover. It should tell me on like Marvel.com or whatever. I do have that Scotty Young one. I think that. Yeah. Yeah, Marvel.com. Um, if I click on it, it should tell you the cover artist. Yeah. Right. Let's see. Writer penciler. Doesn't it's just writer and penciler. Weird. Maybe if I dig a little bit more. No, I think if you I, scroll down, there's I more do issue details. See variant covers. Issue details. Digital. Uh, Keep more. Oh, I thought uh, I had more. It says cover information, and then there's nothing here. Interesting. <laughs> Stirring radio. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> uh, email Adam if you want to know more. Okay, and then uh, Spider-Man Torment. Issue number one of the Adjective of Spider-Man, volume one, issue one. Iconic, love all the webbing, it's out of control, it's a spaghetti mess. Um, also kind of gross, all the spiders crawling all over him, mm-hmm. which is cool though. It's kind of, it's really edgy, that got that early 90s edginess to it. Um, and it's been so mimicked, hasn't it? It's been so yes. copied or so many homages made to it, oh, yeah. including a Scarlet Spider costume one, which I really like. So... Just Black costume Spider Man has so a first we've that, that too. Nate loves big optic blasts and lots of webbing. Lots yeah. of webbing. And I, yeah. and I love rooftop conversations, You hopefully, ideally at sunset between superheroes, yes. 
But nothing at the um, dinner table. Keep away from those. Rooftops, yes. <laughs> dinner tables, no. Yeah, dinner tables, not, not as good. Yeah. So this is um, Amazing Spider-Man 282. And um, it's just a, a black costume Spider-Man of him upside down, uh, waving and speaking to the reader. And it's just very simple. And it's got a gathering around him of all the heroes because of the anniversary issue uh, for Marvel at the time. And um, it's just fun. I just enjoy it. the personality they were able to put into this costume, this mask with that should show no features of any kind, and the eyebrows arched and everything. Mm-hmm. The brow arched is just really fun, and cool, mm-hmm. I like it. So that's two eighty two, and then Spider Man five uh, fi- sorry fifty eight by Tom Lyle. Uh, wait, sorry, the last one uh, uh, two eighty two is that Leonardi? I think so. Yeah, okay, I think so too. Spider Man fifty eight is Tom Lyle, and it's uh, I love the the bros, the, the the gentlemen, the clones, and there's no spider side, of course, but you have Spider Man, and you have Scarlet Spider, and you have Kane, and Kane is fighting off both of his brothers, and there it's just fun and dynamic. I do, I, I like the colors, but I don't like the, in, for the background. I don't like the colors for this composition for this actual piece. I think yeah. it'd be kind of a fun sky, um, sun kind of maybe a sunrise or something. Um, in another piece, but I don't think it's a correct choice here. I think it's almost it's almost too empty, also. So um, maybe I would do something different with that that sky. But everything else is really neat. Yeah, there's so many Clone Saga ones that it was tough to to not take everything Clone Saga <laughs> at, at one point. But I, I did have a cover with uh, Scar Spider on it. I was like, I gotta have a Scar Spider cover on. I, I didn't mm-hmm. pick one, but it's an honorable mention. I did. I do also like on this cover that. Uh, ben Riley has his legs wrapped around Kane's waist. Hmm. An interesting move. Um, oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. His it's legs weird. are flying out to the side or something. He's gr- he's gripped him. He's got him. It's an interesting way to grip. And then I also had Amazing Spider-Man for what is this? For fifteen? Yeah, yeah, the one that, that Paul brought up earlier because um, I enjoy enjoy the onslaught Spider-Man issues. So there you go. Very nice. All right, I will share mine here. Back to the 70s, the rest of Adam's choices. I mean, no. uh, (laughs) I'll go back to 1995. Uh, Spider-Man The Lost Year is number one. I just always love this cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't quite see the details of it, obviously, on an image, but you know it has the foil on it, so everything, the light catches it a certain way, that even the Spider-Man in the the background is also red foil, as you just have a a very classic J.R.J.R. screaming man running. There there are those scribbles. Yeah, there you go. But, I mean, it's just very evocative, and it's very... I don't know, just something about it just feels very urgent. Because, again, he's jumping out of an explosion. Like, there's, you know, the, the, there's no uh, there's no subtlety in a JRJR piece. Like, this is just, you know, hitting you over the head. Can be? Oh, oh, hey. Okay, sometimes. Just not here. No, not there. Not at all. Uh, we go for another one here. It's big and bombastic, and it's like, what's going on? And there's so much destruction, and oh my gosh, i got to buy this issue. It's, it's Exactly. Uh, this one is uh, mid '80s, Amazing Spider-Man 258, which again we saw a version of this on the cartoon, uh, where you had the Spider both Spider-Man costumes, the red and blue and the black costume, fighting over Peter um, with with a kind of a, a weird, crazy effect, uh, which makes it more dreamlike. Um, and again, the animated series used this to great effect uh, to kind of personify the two versions of Peter's uh, psyche fighting each other before he gets taken over by the black costume. So I just always like this, but I'm, I'm I wish I had experienced it or seen it before the cartoon because again, the cartoon came first for me so 
that's colors a lot of how I view certain things. And that's maybe why I, I actually do respond to this one as well. Yeah, it's fun. Next fun up. and weird. Yeah, it's definitely weird. Uh, this one is McFarland. Uh, we got McFarlane. It's three seventeen. Uh, this is a very cool kind of Spider-Man grappling with the uh, the alien costume. I mean, Venom is a character already, but here we have him kind of trying to take over Spider-Man. Uh, this is again, we saw this in the cartoon as well. The idea of Spider-Man fighting with the symbiote and trying to kind of rip it off because in the original versions it was not as sinewy and tenderly right. But by here, by now, at this point. You know, we'd seen more of that in Venom. So then, having a cover where you know pulling all the different tendrils and uh, you know fighting off Venom, it looks a lot more um, I don't know, just more energy to it. It seems again more drastic, more more tension is here. It looks more like he's actually going to suffocate within this costume. Has Venom become kinder and gentler? Read your lips, buddy. No way. <laughs> very, very of the time. Yeah, great, great cover. What is Upside Down Sing doing saying "Hey" in the corner? Well, because it, it says the world's greatest comic magazine, and that's what they used to say about the Fantastic Four. Uh-huh. So he was like, "Hey," <laughs> which I love. I love that yeah. touch as well. Really uh, nice. McFarlane's just good with the liquidy kind of jelly, flimsy, flipping and webs and symbiote gook for sure. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 408 was always one I loved just because it was so stark. Uh, you yeah. just see some footprints in this in this white ba- uh, background, and Spider-Man's just kind of slumped over in it. Even the uh, even the title of the book is kind of snowed over uh, as part of this media blizzard. Um, again, that spider looks fantastic on Spider-Man's back uh, by Bagley. Uh, it's just it really grabs your attention. And again, if you're that's what a cover should be as well is something that really kind of grabs your attention on the newsstand. So you have everything else is so full of color, and this one's just so white, and it's just like whoa, what is, what is happening here? Yeah, it's a nice stark image as well. And last, you like the icy covers. You like the Iceman clutching his dad. You like <laughs> Spider-Man collapsed in the ice. You're right. Uh, now this one, I went back and forth. It was almost on my list. Um, I do love it a lot. Uh, it's Peter Parker Spider-Man seventy-five, the end of the Clone Saga, uh, which is again another JRJR cover. What I like about it, especially in terms of it actually being a cover is that when you just read it, you don't see the back half, right? Like it's a it's a double, right. it's a wraparound cover. So when you first see it, you don't know who the villain is, like, unless you actually go to check the, the back. And so I like that kind of idea of giving it an air of mystery, that if you're picking this up off the stands, you don't see that right away, and don't see that the, it's the goblin. Um, and so I like that it's kind of like a, a bit of a surprise there. And you got the the mashed potato face of a beat down <laughs> Ben Riley, which is actually one of the reasons why I didn't pick this because I'm like I just don't I don't love seeing yeah. him beat. Him. But it's not as mashed potatoy as it is in the issue. Like in the issue, no, it's, it's way oh, worse. It's oh, so man, much yeah. worse. This is restraint. <laughs> yeah. But again, yeah. like Spider Man looks awesome. I love battle damage. So you have like you know. Uh, ben has a lot of battle damage on him. You have Spider-Man in, you know, jumping in with his own costume. And again, at this point, he wasn't really wearing the costume. He had a mask once in a while, but he wasn't Spider-Man yet. Um, you know, he'd been dealing with a lot of things and not really having his powers at 100%. So seeing him triumphantly on this cover, him in a pristine costume, just jumping into action, whereas you have, you know, um, the, the remnant of the, of the Clone Saga era, Ben Riley, just looking like garbage and, you know, totally beaten to hell and about to be destroyed. Um, you know, is a very strong um, indication and sign that, you know, this is the end. Um, this is where it all ends. 
So with Spidey's right hand, do you interpret that as he's slipping into the energy blast from the Green Goblin and then it splays out his webbing into this almost kind of pancake and it kind of blocks it? Or do you interpret that as he's made a little web shield and he's holding the web shield with his outstretched pinky and pointer and thumb to block the blast? I think he's he has gener- he started generating the shield when it gets yeah. blasted. It's just yeah. it hasn't reached its its utmost yet. I don't think he's is he necessarily it? Is, is is he holding it with those fingers or is it ahead of those? Is it? I don't like, think he's holding it. I think it's it's, okay. being, it's being kind of blasted ahead of him. I see. Yeah, I, the angle is super weird too. I think this was something they were throwing together, and oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if you even look at his stretched out hand, it looks like more like a throwing motion for mm-hmm. the bombs, right? Which makes sense because you see the arcs of the three bombs and they're exploding around him. I think the energy blast of almost an initial afterthought to throw in there because he's like, what am I going to make Spidey with his other hand going down here? You know, it's it's interesting. Yeah, how do you go I, from throwing three bombs to suddenly energy blast and the same kind of follow through, right? Yeah, we got him, guys. We got John Romita Jr. Yeah. He, he has no answer. <laughs> we we so, did it. Uh, <laughs> we did. We took an incredible, legendary artist, and we think that he may have something going on here, something that we don't agree with on the cover. I still love him, even though I'm doing little. These are little quibbles. They're they're nothing. Yeah, this is. Um, I actually prefer this closed. I prefer this not two page spread. I prefer this issue just with the, the brothers. I'll call them brothers, even though they're clones. Kind of like in a battle. I don't. I don't need the. I don't think the goblin adds enough for me. Mm. I, I think the rendering and incredible rendering, very interesting rendering choice on, on Peter. All that shading, but uh, very intense cover. Yes. Oh, very intense. I I agree with you. I, I kind of do like it closed because I mean that's how I remember it uh, when I kind of first saw it on the newsstand and picked it up. But uh, but there is still something to that goblin too. Like this would would have been the first time everyone had seen Norman in action as the goblin in 20 years. So this was, this was a moment. Like it had to, it had to work. It had to look powerful. It had to feel like that's not a pretender. That's the real guy. And I do think that they able are able to achieve that here. Mm-hmm. He looks deranged too. The Ramita gets this nice deranged look on Norman's face. Yeah, whole crazy face. Yeah. Well, great. We did it guys. <laughs> we did it. We did it. We finished podcasting. We did. For everyone. Everyone's done. There's no more podcasting after this. <laughs> um, true to form, I was like, okay, guy, I was telling my family, I'm like, it's going to be like an hour, maybe hour 15. It's two hours now, um, so I have to go uh, put my son to bed. But uh, this this is the last time we'll be recording for the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Uh, how do you feel? Do you feel good? you sad that we won't have, a, a, uh, um, I guess, an excuse to do this anymore? Yeah, very sad. You've... Put a dagger in my heart. I can't, <laughs> yeah, I mean, can't quite reach it even to pull it out. I mean, I always thought that you would have, uh, well, the, that Amber would have done a podcast at some point. Um, yeah, we almost did. We've talked about it. There's been t- there's been discussions. There's been things said. Hmm. Let's. That's all I can say. <laughs> things said. Yeah. Well, he's just kind of for reasons. We just kind of we, we dropped off. Maybe yeah. it'll start up one day. Who knows? Yeah. Well, like anything else, it's like commitment piece, right? Like me and my friend, we, we uh, Evan, we, we try to do a, a toys-based one for a bit. And uh, it's it's a lot of work to make sure you have content and something uh, to talk about to attract listeners and be meaningful and then not just be a bunch of guys, you know, rambling on and on, which ends up the shenanigans part of it was always, you know, 
going on tangents and doing side things. So, yeah, it is a bit of an, of an end of an era, and you feel like, you know, we're sad that it's over, and you feel like we could have done more, and, you know, there's two more phases of Marvel movies around the corner that we can't, you know, podcast about. But it's not like we could, we're going to sit in silence and never geek out, you know, as a group again. It just won't be for everyone to listen to, I suppose. And, you know, we don't need always that as an excuse to do even a call like this and just chat, um, you know, on a Sunday night about the current state of nerddom. Um, doesn't have to be recorded. We can still do this. So it, I am sad to see it go, but uh, I'm proud of you for uh, for sticking with it as long as you did and making it, you know, from small beginnings of hero clicks and giving every comic an eight to <laughs> evolving it into meeting some of your heroes and creators and mm-hmm. and Cal Dodd and all these kind of really cool things. And you went out there on a limb and you reached out and did PR and that's huge and that's great and that's no small task. You know, Chip Zdarsky in your house. Like that's super cool. Um, <laughs> that's always you know, the so that's I, always the I, one I go back to. <laughs> yeah, so you'll have these memories of of these things, and then and they'll live on in your recordings forever as well. So you can always go back to them and listen to our ridiculousness, and then have good memories. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the thousand episodes, and I'm, I'm very happy to be part of it. I should go back and see how much actual content there is by time, like uh, how many hours of my life this has been. You do love your numbers. Everything's a baseball game to you, isn't it? 100%. <laughs> it is crazy, though. Yeah, it's been 10 years. I mean, this this episode goes live on the 10th anniversary of that first episode. And I remember recording it with Kelly and being like, don't worry, I probably won't even post this. And I totally posted it. And then uh, then we were off. Uh, yeah, took it from there. Not, not to be morbid, but uh, it seems like your eulogy should probably include some stats about your life. <laughs> You're not Hours wrong. Spent doing X or Y, yeah. Do you, uh, so it's interesting that um, Paul, uh, in terms of being on the show, his first appearance on the show was episode two. So he was there right away. Uh, but uh, Nate, you weren't there till episode six. Mm, it took my time. I'm more of the Mysterio of the, of the podcast. There you go, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, too. Like, so f- right out of the gate, we were doing, like, top five, you know, uh, X-Men stories, Wolverine stories. Spider-Man stories, like, right at the beginning, like, just blowing our load. All, like, <laughs> Whoa. Sorry, Jeez. that was a little aggressive, but just the like, we, we got rid of some of these ideas so quick. The only thing we didn't end up doing, which is funny just because we kept talking about it, uh, we never did talk about, uh, you know, New Mutants. <laughs> we never talked about <laughs> Fallen Angels. Uh, yeah, and, we started the whole Kukoi era uh, uh, secondary stream there. Yeah, that's right. We, we, we For were the record... For the record, I still want to do those things, and I still want to talk about that. And we could just do an informal, like you know, offline book of the month. Just, just chat about, hey, this is what we read. Or just start up a new podcast called Book of the Month, and then just do that instead. And we, once if, a month, if someone else can, uh, you know, handle the posting and the recording, that sounds great. My goodness gracious! I love oh, being on, I love being on other people's podcasts. It's so oh. it's so freeing. It's just oh, I just have to talk. This is great. Yeah, it is. It's pretty good. Yeah, I gotta say. <laughs> As a guest, you know, you know yeah. what it's like. All right. Well, 
Thank you so much, gentlemen, for all the uh, the many hours we've done uh, together on this podcast, and for another two hours today. Uh, it has been uh, a pleasure and a privilege to be able to do the do the podcast with you guys because that was you know at the beginning what I wanted to do the most was just you know because I had listened to other podcasts like Comic Geek Speak and it was just a bunch of you know geeks talking about comics I liked and I, I was like I could do that um, you know and uh, I was very happy to be able to do as much of it together as we did so thank you so much to both of you. Thanks for having us. It's been, yeah. it's been fun. Absolute pleasure. And now it's all rushing back. I'm like, you know, more memories of, like, remember podcasts on vacation? You know, we had a dock at a cottage, and then we had our, our bunkies and stuff. And mm-hmm. I think there was the one, uh, oh, it was like the uh, Jeff Johns uh, Green Lantern kind of retrospective, and I recited the oath to start the show and oh, stuff yeah. like that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Good times. A lot Good of times, memories. Man. It's been 10 uh, years. Like, I started the show, I didn't have a kid yet. Like, it's, you know, my, my son is younger than my podcast. <laughs> Crazy. Guys, all right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. See ya. Cheers. Cheers. If you're still with us, good on you, as we're almost three hours into the show and we've only done two segments. Oh, boy. Uh, next up, we have uh, Eric Anthony from the Cave of Solitude podcast joining me once more. Enjoy. Eric, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast for the last time. Oh, Adam, thank you for having me. I'm sorry it's the last time, but it's a great way for us to promote the Book of the Month Club that you will be returning to on the <laughs> Cave of Solitude, Solitude, Solitude. Thank you for having me, and congratulations on uh, a 1,000 episodes. Good for you. It's crazy. A 1,000 episodes, 10 years, and now it's all over, and now I can retire and only guest on podcasts when I feel like it, um, or in your case, every time you'll have me. Um, excited right. to have more availability there. Um, obviously, Dave is your your real co-host now, so I'll just have to slot into the into the third chair off to the side. Um, I, I'm bas- if we're thinking about you know Star Trek: The Next Generation, he's your Riker, and I'm basically Deanna Troy. Like I'm there sometimes, and I'm not that useful, oh, but sometimes. You sound jealous. Are you jealous? Don't be jealous. Uh, I'm not jealous. I I love your conversations with Dave, and they're always enjoyable to listen to. Uh, so I could not possibly be jealous of such a great uh, camaraderie that you have with another podcaster. And I think I shout you out. Every oh, all the time. Day. There's a lot of love. Yeah. Yes. So don't ever think you've been replaced, Mr. Chapman. <laughs> well, I got to say, it's it's been nice to know that going into my quote unquote podcast retirement. That uh, even though I won't be running my own show anymore, uh, that I have you know an open invitation to be on yours. And now that we do these book of the months, there's this implied every month we're going to be chatting about you know whatever new comic we're talking about. And that's been really nice to know that you know I'm still going to have an outlet to talk about comics um, in a way that's you know someone else will hear it, uh, even if it's just you and your I don't know five subscribers who know I'm sure you have a lot more than that. It's um, growing. Hey, I'm charting in South Korea, Japan, yeah, Britain. Apparently, I'm big and hungry. I don't know why. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I don't know what it's it's uh, where it comes under where they rank it because I, I think I'm under visual arts for some reason under. Um, I think I am too. Apple, iTunes, which is I, I I didn't know what else to put itself under, but yeah, in the visual arts category, and I'm killing it in South Korea, man. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I wonder what it is that makes South Koreans just love your show. I don't know. And where else? Sweden. I charted in Sweden. <laughs> All one person that's listening there. 
hey, you're on the chart. That's great. Hey, man, that, that, that's all that matters. It gives you it gives you that little bit of impetus to keep going. And um, you know what? It's you think that no one's listening, or you think that um, you're doing it for no reason. But every now and then, you you come across that person, like like myself. I listen to your show. That's true. I don't know how many subscribers you got, but we only became friends because I was tuning into your show and nitpick or not nitpicking, but picking through cherry picking. That's it, cherry picking through episodes of stuff that or interviews you had, and look what happened, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. That's how we. That's the thing I can look back on is that what did this ten years give me? It gave me you. It gave me Curtis. It gave me AJ Reese is a, a fan in front of the show. Uh, Tim Riley is in front of the show. Like there are other people that you know listen to it. I, I mentioned this to Dan Gavazdan in an earlier segment on this very episode, but I was saying how. Um, Panels to Pixels is a great YouTube channel I enjoy and uh, Josh from there I was following him on Twitter and he put up that he had two new arrivals and one was this book called Stuff Said which I'm a big fan of it was published by John Morrow from Two Morrows Publishing I recently talked to him about the book so I was like oh that's so cool you should check out this interview I did with John Morrow about this book he's like yeah that's where I found out about the book (laughs) I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, I didn't know that, you know, he, he had listened to my interview about it, and that kind of prompted him to want to try out this book. So uh, that was that was kind of cool. And, again, I do forget that. It's a cool little community we, we kind of create amongst podcasters, but also just comic book fans who are looking for people like ourselves because the hobby, like, we, we've talked about it before, it's very lonely, right? Mm. It is something that you do by yourself. You go to the comic book shop oftentimes by yourself. You're reading. You're not reading unless you're reading to your son, which you have the privilege to do. Um, it's, a, it's a lonely thing. So it's nice to hear and to find friends who get it. You may not have to like everything the same or feel the same way about stuff, but you get why this is cool, mm-hmm. right? Oh, for sure. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were yeah. to be doing, you know, one of those rewatch podcasts where you, you know, watch a TV show and you just comment mm-hmm. on it, what would the show be that you would want to talk about? What you know, we, we we love comics, and that's why we podcast about comics. But you know, is there a TV show that you'd be like, man, I'd love to sit down and rewatch it and just talk into a microphone about how much I like this, whether it's with someone or not? Is there a TV show that would speak to you? There would probably be sitcoms or like something comedy. I don't know if it would be anything overly dramatic. Although, I mean, I guess, yeah, if there's like a good drama series that you were really into for a while that you go back and it, and it um, you kind of see seeds planted and you're like, oh, wow, they did that there. So I remember listening to, I don't know if you've ever watched it. I watched it recently when it was on Netflix, the Sons of Anarchy series. And I started listening to one of the actors started a podcast with one of his co-stars and hearing them break down little things in episodes and uh, performance pieces. And it's like, wow, so many things were done ahead of time. And so it matters a little more when you watch it again. So mm-hmm. maybe something like that would kind of be cool because you, you watch something and it's like, hey, it's, it's, it's good. I'm really into it. But. Does it know where it's going? Does the writer really have an ending? And when you realize that they created like their own version of a Hamlet, for instance, it's like, yeah, let's go back and watch and see all the Easter eggs, I guess we say. But for me, to answer your question, which I didn't do yet, would be um, <laughs> maybe something like Seinfeld. Yeah. Or I know that this is this is um, sacrilege or, or very wrong to say, but I'm a big fan of the Cosby show. Mm. I love... Watching the, I could watch the Cosby Show with my wife probably once a year, just because 
I love how it makes us feel the mm-hmm. family aspect of it, right? And it is genuinely funny in a lot of places where almost an innocent, but like it's done well. So I can why I could go back and watch that. I know it's maybe in poor taste, but uh, it might be the Cosby Show. Interesting. Yeah, that's one of those things where, like, obviously he's a horrible human being, but we've talked about this before. How do you separate the you know the uh, the creator of that content from the content itself? I mean, I remember I used to see Cosby all the time. Like, I used to go see him and sh- like go see him live. Uh, I think yeah. I saw him live like three or four times, and then obviously. Seriously? I was a big fan. I grew up that way. I remember, like, I had a comedy, one of his old comedy albums from, you know, in the 60s or 70s, and I would play those albums, and I loved his routines, and, um, I, you know, I was a huge fan. And then he's a horrible yeah. human being, and it's, you can't really like that anymore. And I remember years ago, uh, I used to do uh, junior achievement days, so I was working with the bank, and we would go into schools, and we'd talk to, like, either grade fives or grade eights, and we'd talk about finance and, and eco- economics, that kind of stuff. And I used to, and then there became a time when I couldn't do this anymore, show a clip from The Cosby Show, because it was all, and it's a very famous clip where Cliff gives his son, you know, Monopoly money, basically, and says, oh, okay, you think you can make it on your own? And then he keeps saying, well, this is what I need to spend on this, and basically takes all the money away, and then he ends up with no money left. To show that regular people, uh, you know, it's difficult to make a living and have the lifestyle that Theo wanted. And so it's a very impactful clip. I used to use it, you know, in classrooms when I would be teaching, you know, home finance and that kind of stuff personal finance and then I couldn't do it anymore because it was you can't show the Cosby show it's not okay um and yeah, it's too bad I, I because it's because it was absolutely. it was a really instructive tool to help drive home a point to, to kids but at the same time you know we're not really supposed to be you know using material that is venerating someone who's really bad and done a lot of bad things and that's difficult yeah I I see that point but I disagree with it too because it doesn't change the message it doesn't change what about the other actor that's involved in it? What about all the other people who played a part in making that show great? It's not just him. Mm. So you'd be punishing everybody else who had nothing to do with his private life for something that is still valuable and wholesome. You have to at some point separate the art from the artist. If he was like R. Kelly, who's making music about betting women and being very profane about it, then you find out, oh, he really is all of those things he's saying. It comes off a little different. But when I listen to a song like Liberian Girl from Michael Jackson, my conscience isn't bothering me because of what he might be. I know Bill Cosby was convicted, but I don't know. I just feel like when we get like that with society, it's like Planetary is still a good comic book, even if Warren Ellis is a jerk. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater necessarily. Not always. You know, that's me. Yeah, no, I, well, it's an ongoing topic of conversation for everyone, right? Because we all have to grapple with the fact that, you know, there's some really bad people who've made some really good things. And how do you, yeah. how do you balance that? And there's some really nice yeah, people who've that, made shitty things. <laughs> yeah, and they get a lot of credit for it because they, you know, they sometimes do comedy for applause. So it, it goes, it cuts both ways. I, it bothers me so much that America's dad, but Cliff Huxtable, is America's dad, not Bill Cosby, Cliff Huxtable. And that's what I keep telling myself because I'm not, that's the guy I like. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was really like that with his kids, but I like what Cliff Huxtable was like. And if I was a dad and someone said, hey, where'd you get your, your advice from? Uh, Cliff Huxtable was a pretty cool dad mm-hmm. when I was growing up. You can't deny it, right? I don't know. I'm going to get canceled for this. <laughs> For me, for me, it was uh, it was uh, Tim Allen, man. He was he was he was the dad on my TV screen. 
I, I guess. Yeah, him too. Like, or Uncle Phil. Yeah, right. Yeah, him too. Sure. I mean, they can't take Uncle Phil from us. Uncle Phil is ours. Yes, Uncle Phil, thank goodness he's, he's safe. He, he, like, yeah, I, I don't think anyone's ever said anything bad about that actor. So, and he's passed already. So, if any shit was going to come out, they would have said it already. Yeah, exactly. So, this is my How about thought. for you. What, oh, sorry. Go ahead. What would your show? What would your show be? That you um, watch? It would probably be Cheers or something like that. Like, part of me would be like, well, it has to be something long running, so I could actually do it for a while. So, on the one hand, that's why I would go with something like Cheers. There are a few Cheers casts out there. Um, there's one of them, like, I would love to be on it. The other one I'm not a huge fan of. Um, i trying to think. Sports Night is a show that I loved by Aaron Sorkin. And I, don't, I don't think anyone's really picked over that, uh, but it's only two seasons, so there's not a lot to review. I don't know. Um, i trying to think. What other TV shows do I really love? I, what's nice about the, this day and age is that so many TV shows uh, do have actual people from that show going back and rewatching it so that, you know, I don't need to listen to two guys talking about Smallville. I can listen to the guy who played Clark and Lex talk about Smallville instead. So That's it's cool. interesting that there's That's more and more of that is happening. Like, you know, a couple of years ago I was following the Scrubs one, but I kind of fell off. But, you know, it was nice to listen to that. I've been listening to one about uh, Boy Meets World that I loved when I was a kid, and now yeah, three too. of the main cast members are doing a podcast, and they're going through the entire oh, series really? together. So you got the characters That's who played cool. Sean... Um, you got Will Friedle who played the brother, and you got Danielle Fischel. So it's three of the principal cast members all going through that series. So uh, that's the one nice thing is that the longer that podcasts are a thing, more and more of these rewatch podcasts are happening. Um, I would have said, you know, five, seven years ago, I would have done a, a West Wing one, but there was an official West Wing Weekly that was already done with one of the cast members of the show. So uh, it, it would be trying to find one that not many people have picked over, like maybe Mash. Like, I don't think I've ever watched all of MASH, and I wouldn't mind maybe going back and, and watching that, or um, I'm trying to think. Flintstones, maybe? Like, there's something really special. You know what I would like to watch? Sure. Every watch would be Family Ties. I, I own that digitally, and I've been rewatching it myself. How is it? How does it hold up? It's pretty good. Um, it, it, you know, it's still very funny. Um, you know, obviously, Michael J. Fox is the breakout star, and so the show becomes a little bit more centered around him, but... You know, it's really interesting, and what I find that I miss most about the kind of 80s and 90s comedies or sitcoms is they don't feel as slickly produced. There's more pauses. There's, you know, there's not a frantic pace, and I feel like these days you don't get that in TV. Uh, you don't get more time for things to breathe, whereas if you watch older sitcoms, there's 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 space there. Like, I, I've never really watched all of Taxi, but I'd love to go back and watch that too, because, again, they're very... You know, different types of sitcoms. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, Family Ties, still good. He's still great. Uh, the whole cast is, you know, really interesting, and the characters are really fully realized right from the beginning. Um, yeah, it's a really fun thing to rewatch. Yeah, I hope they put it. I don't know why it's never been on any streaming service yet, but I would like to watch it. Yeah, uh, one show that I love um, that's never been on a streaming service either, and I would buy it like digitally if I could, um, was uh, Spin City, uh, with also Michael J. Fox. Uh, I love that show. I own the first four seasons on DVD, which are the only seasons he was the main star in. He made sporadic appearances in the following two seasons when Charlie Sheen was the the main star, but I didn't have any real interest in watching those, so I didn't buy those. I kind of regret it now, because I kind of wish I had the whole series. Um... But uh, yeah, but that's another one that's never been on a streaming ser- a streaming service, and it, it's not even available on iTunes. At least Family Ties was. 
uh, family ties if you want. You can pay, I think it's like 50 bucks or something, and you get, what, seven seasons or whatever it is. And I was like, yeah, you know what, I'll do that. Um, you know, I, I like finding content on iTunes that you, isn't on any streaming services and then kind of adding it to my digital library um, because I find I will, I will watch things more often if I, you know, if I can put it on my iPad while I do dishes, whereas I'm not going to necessarily sit down and throw in my Cheers DVDs that I bought when they first started coming out in the mid-2000s, you know, yeah. but I will put it on my iPad as I do dishes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was your question that you had? I interrupted you before. Uh, just a general one. So like, you know, I, I'm not going to be podcasting anymore, but obviously you're still running strong and it feels like things are, you know, more uh, revitalized than ever because you do have a regular slate of, of programming. You have your comic speakeasies, uh, that you do with, with Dave. You have your top five lists you do with Dave. Uh, you've got, you know, your periodic guests that are still cycling through. You've got some of your favorites that are part of that. you got the Book of the Month Club. So it feels yeah. like you've kind of found your stride and your scheduling yeah. in a way that I think for a while it felt like you were kind of looking for that thing. And it almost feels like yeah. this is going to sound silly, but it almost feels like Dave was the thing you were missing. Like, you, yeah. you, you know, a regular co-host that could add some dimension and direction, and then you could fill it in with the other things you like to do. So it feels like yeah. your show is really... You know, solidified in your mind in terms of what it can be and what it is, and also the partnership with uh, his, you know, reading guides, etc., has also kind of given you an extra, you know, kind of uh, pep in your step. Is that a, yeah. a fair read? Yeah, I would say so because I, I think when I when I started the podcast and for a long time it was me and my wife were doing the majority of the episodes of what me and Dave do now, which was a lot of fun. We would do movie reviews, and I would get her to read like. Uh, know graphic novel try you know daredevil just to to get her feel for something that i liked and i knew she liked it herself but making her branch out it was fun but then when um i started to do interviews a little bit more the show was you know changing on trying to do i do am i an interview show am i at my guests show do i do can i do solo episodes which i borrowed from from you the 15 minute 20 minute sort of episodes which i thought like, that's good you could do like something quick doesn't require it, it helps you to stay disciplined and in practice if it were but um getting into that flow just like you said i kind of found now that the thing i was looking for which i just wanted to, to be a conversation type of show but then if i could get one interview let's say a month that'd be great because i like i like making the hobby stay fun where when you're interviewing at some point in time you're working like your reading is work to prepare for conversations mm-hmm. which sometimes can take away from the joy of reading which i never wanted to happen i would say it's interesting i see that perspective i thought for me i, I really enjoyed the research because it gave me direction on like what i should be reading because as you know like i my, my list of things i haven't read is massive but knowing right. I was going to talk to Chip Sadarsky meant like, oh, I can finally really buckle down and read Batman the Night. I can really, you know, I can really get in on these things. Whereas before, it was just like, where do I start? There's just so much I want to read. Even right. today, like I was rereading stuff by Zeb Wells because I was about to interview him. And it, it was great. It was really fun to kind of do another dive into some of those projects. I had read them before, but being able to kind of reimmerse myself and give me kind of a, a reason to was kind of fun. Um, but you're right. At times, it can be onerous because, especially if you don't know the creator too much, or you know a couple projects, but you want to obviously have more in your tool bag so that you're ready to ask them about stuff. So suddenly, you're doing a deep dive into like you know 30 different comics. Yeah, that can be a little bit more you know difficult. When you're doing return you guests, it's a lot easier because exactly. you've done that stuff. 
and I know that you like this because then you can just have fun. You can like you yes. can just ask JMD about philosophy and other things, yeah, yeah. and not really worry about the comic book stuff. Although you still want to talk about it, but you've you've kind of covered the base beats of their of their career, and that's exactly talking to Zeb Wells again, as because he was you know the most recent example on my mind. It was nice because we've already talked a few times. There's already been a shorthand, and now we can just kind of pick up and just do whatever has happened in the last couple of years. And allowed me to be more laser focused and in depth on stuff that was, you know, if I had been covering a longer time period, I wouldn't have been able to do that uh, because I would have had, you know, more projects I would need to cover. Um, so there's just something about that return guest is special. I don't know how I still have stuff to talk about with Ron Friends because you know we've we've talked for nine episodes worth and probably. I don't know, at least 15 hours worth of conversation, but somehow I am always still have new things I want to ask him. He's a good guest, though, because he extrapolates on things that a little bit more than most artists do because he was so involved in the storytelling, like in the, in the relationship that he had with the Falco, right? It was so much of, of the two of them. It wasn't just him drawing what Tom wanted. They met up, they would plot it, and so he had an investment in explaining, here's why I chose to do that. So every panel will have, and he's got a good memory. When a, when a creator has a good recall, hmm. it, like talking when you, the, some of the, the most fun episodes I listened to was when you would speak to uh, Ralph Macchio. Hmm. You know, a guy who's been an editor on so many important books and was in the room for so many important projects and knew all of these, like, legends. And some of them, uh, unfortunately, have, have passed now. Like, Mark Grunewald passed early. And you don't have much documentation, a, a little bit, but not, like, podcast era. Mm. And he would have been such an interesting person to talk to today, Mark Grunewald. Oh, yeah. Because he was the continuity king, right? He's really one of us. That became one of my favorite questions of people who worked at that period was just, like, what's your, what's your Mark Grunewald story? You know, like, everyone had some really interesting interactions with the man. He really was the beating heart of Marvel uh, for like a decade. And so when he passed, it definitely felt like a body blow to the soul of Marvel. Um, yeah. And so, but yeah, that's been really fun too, is just finding out those, those stories about creators because that's when people really light up, right? Because, you know, if I talk to someone like, uh, you know, who worked at, or even Tom DeFalco, and if I ask him about Spider-Man, he's been asked about Spider-Man a million times. But if I actually one thing I loved talking to him about was talking to him about creating the Marvel Masterworks program. Then he lit up because that was something he did. That was his idea, partially to make money because uh, they needed a way to you know make quick money and be, be able to bring out um, you know a, a prestige version of old Marvel books. I don't think he ever thought it was going to last as long as it did. Um, but being but the you know finding that thing that was always my favorite part was finding in the research something to ask that showed, one, that you were really looking into their work, and you weren't just talking about the hits, but you were looking at the uncut gems that were in there, and finding that, that thing that would really make them interested, because that's not the thing they get asked about all the time. Like, I will always yeah. go back to my two episodes, I think like five-hour conversation with Ron Friends about A&X. That was a comic I love, continue to love, and he had a strong affection for, but when I asked him to talk about it, I didn't know he had the affection he had for it. I didn't know that it was a book that he got to plot a lot. 
um, and he got to do more of a plotting lead because Tom DeFalco was doing three different MC2 books at the time, so Ron got to take more of a lead than he usually did in their in their partnership. I didn't know that. I just knew it was a book I loved that no one ever talks about, and I thought probably no one's ever asked him about it. And so we got to do more in-depth than probably anyone else will ever talk to him about that book. Um, and that was really special to me, and he said to me before that he really appreciated the, the chance to be able to talk about a book that did mean a lot to him, uh, personally and professionally. Um, but again, if I hadn't asked, I never would have known that. Yeah. And that's the fun thing about this this little hobby. Like, podcasting is another hobby within the hobby, right? Where if you just give it a shot, you might end up being able to talk to the people who made the books that you really, really love, and you can pick their brain, or you can even just being able to tell them how much you enjoy their work uh, and, and seeing what they're going to do next. It's, I don't know, every fan's dream, I think, and anything that you like, if you could talk to uh, the leader of a band, you know, the lead guitarist, the, whatever it is, an actor, but with, with our hobby, you, you kind of can do it, and, and they, a lot of them enjoy it. They enjoy doing having that thing to do, and and if you do it well, uh, they'll come back. So it's a testament to to your interviewing skills, right? Because you had a lot of people return to the show, like you said, Ron. Friends basically adopted you. They'll take you home. <laughs> I <laughs> so tell you, I might, I, I might have. You exhausted every possible question. Just listen to the 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 Ron Friends tapes on the comic shenanigans, and you got it all. So I might, uh, I'm hoping it actually happens, but I might have the opportunity to meet him soon because uh, I'm going to be in Pittsburgh, hopefully, by at the end of uh, August, early September. So I'm hoping I do get a chance to meet him. The only problem is, like, I don't drive, so my wife and I are driving down with our kids to, uh, to see a baseball game. So I don't know how we're going to work it in because I essentially need her to, like, drop me off and just, like, take the kids on her own for a while. I don't know if that's going to fly. But I just want the opportunity to meet this man. And also, and we, I have actually joked about this with Ron, at some point, I do need to get a commission from Ron. Like, there's just no way I can't have a commission from Ron while he's still able to do them. Um, but I stress about it every time I think about it. Like, what do I do to give to Ron that he's going to enjoy doing that means something to me, means something to him? Like, I put so much stress on it, and I've asked him, I've told him that. And he's like, you know what, I know what you mean. He's like, I never had the, the gumption to ask Sal Buscema to do something for me because I had the same problem. What the hell do I ask Sal Buscema to draw for me that he hasn't already drawn before? Um, so that's, again, another area that Ron and I were able to connect. But hopefully one of these days, I do have a bunch of original pages. I don't have a lot of original art, but I think I have like three or four Ron Friends pages. So I should probably bring them with what me. Would you, want, would you want just the one person on it? Because something that would probably be meaningful to him and cool for you would be the uh, something with Spider-Girl. And so, Peter. So I bought them directly from his his dealer. Um, the, the the pages I have, I have one page that does have Spider Girl, and it's from a Spider Island um, book during Secret Wars. Uh, there was a backup of Spider Girl, I believe. Um, there was uh, two one shots they did during the Marvel's recent anniversary. One on Thor and one on Spider Man. And so on both of them, I got the last page of each of those 10-page stories that he did with, with uh, Tom DeFalco. Um, and then he recently did a, a story in a Thor book, and I think it was like Thor 25 or so, or maybe Thor 26, I can't remember the number. Um, and that one was gorgeous, gorgeous artwork. And I, I told him, like, I want this last page. Please let me know if it goes on sale. So hopefully I'll get my hands on that as well. But 
Uh, it's nice to have a, you know a few Ron Friends pages. The they're the pages that mean a lot to me, and they're really good books. And what was nice about it as well is being able to talk with him about the original pages I own. Like that's pretty cool. Like how often do you get to do that? That you own a one of a kind thing, and you can actually talk to the person who made it. Like that's not something cool. you often get to do, right? So, is he is he one of your top five artists of all time? Um, you know, I think he might be. You know, I. I've, I think when I started the podcast 10, 15 years ago, I don't know if I would would have said that, but the more I've really appreciated and be able to go in and enjoy his work, he may not be the prettiest artist, no offense, Ron, um, but he is one of the best storytellers um, in terms of being very clean, concise, understanding what's happening in panels. And so, like, the pages I own, are they tell a story. Even on those one page, there's a real story there. And not every artist can do that. They can do pretty art, but are they actually telling you a story that... You know, they, no. that without storytelling, you know, storytelling will always trump how great you can make the guy's leg look. To well, me, he, yeah. So, so he's he's probably one of my favorite storytellers. Um, I don't think okay. I, I think he's definitely way up there at the top in terms of what he's able to do with a page, the emotions he's able to portray, the the acting uh, of the characters, and I do think a big part of being on the podcast is I've learned a lot more about how to interpret art. Like I'm not an artist. I'm never going to be able to adequately explain why an artist is great. Um, you know, t- tune into cart- cartoonist fate cave for that. Like they, they understand that. I will never understand that in the same way, but there are artists who I can, I can really appreciate and enjoy. And I've learned more about what art is and what it can do by, you know, analyzing it in a more critical way in the last 10 years. I would say really the last uh, 18 years. Cause I was writing reviews before that. And I was a process of learning more about it. I was talking with Pat Alf about uh, Edgeworld and how he used Guided View and how the scripts from Chuck Austin had to be different because of they they treated every panel like a page turn because they were going to use Guided View and how he did the voice of the sorry the uh, the facial acting to sell those moments. I learned a lot more about the medium. So when I talk to people like Kelly Thompson or Jim Zub about working on the Marvel Infinity comics right now. It comes from that perspective, and, and learning more about the mechanisms of how they how they tell stories in an infinite scroll format on the infinity format. So I don't know why I'm rambling, rambling on and on when you're the one who's supposed to be talking right now. Um, but uh, yeah, that's just some of the stuff. No, it's true. Um, I I was oftentimes a per- like I I was so basic as a comic book fan. I don't mean that. I don't know what I mean by that, but in the sense of like Jim Lee is a great comic book artist. This guy is like the obvious ones and I was sometimes overlooking really quality storytelling because the art didn't wasn't as good as this guy's graphic design of something Mm -hmm. and when you when you start to interview people or when you start to read a lot of different things you really start to see why casting on a book is is important and just the little nuances that each artist brings to the table that's that even like a John Romita Jr. that some people criticize now that he's kind of phoning it in but his storytelling I still think is unmatched mm-hmm. like there's nothing there, it's easy to understand what's going on in one of his stories and that is a, a whole skill onto itself where there's some guys who are just great cover artists mm-hmm. but when you're trying to follow their story it's great pictures but you don't know where property to look or how to feel about what's happening absolutely and how good how good of a comic book artist are you then if that's what is what you can do so 
the podcast definitely opened my eyes to those subtleties that I probably overlooked a lot more before. Yeah, because it's easier. Oh, yeah, because there's something about it. Actually, the biggest thing for me as a learning, as a comic book fan, is being able to now more clearly decipher when I read an issue if it's the art or the story that's not working for me. Because I think as a kid, it was like, well, this this issue's garbage, or I don't like this, you know, like it doesn't work. And now being able to look at it again and say, like, and I think the biggest revelation for me was Chuck Austin's X-Men run, which I have not re- reread in its entirety, but I reread a couple issues. And I was like, you know what? I think a lot of it was the art. I think the art didn't work for me, and it was a tone, a tone that I didn't like that I think skewed how I interpreted the issue. I don't think it was necessarily all the script. I think a lot of it was the art was skewing me in a different direction. And so when when I didn't like the art, it was informing how I felt about the story, but that wasn't fair to the writer. Um, and the same is true, you know, happened vice versa, where sometimes, you know, you'll read an issue and the art's so great, but then when you look at it afterwards, you're like, the story's not good, but it looks great. No. You know, and it, it, but but it's not easy to sometimes decipher those. And again, when you are used to making snap judgments when you're a kid, it's either good or bad. When you're a good, when you're a kid, it's either the best thing you've ever read or the worst thing. There's not usually a yeah. middle ground. Um, it's only when you're an adult when you could figure out the nuance. Yeah, it was. It's kind of like uh, Mark Wade and Brian Hitch Justice League. For some reason, mm. it's not as good as it should be. Yeah, something about it. Yeah, so sometimes Everything not, about not every... that, those two names seem like this is going to be amazing, and it's not. It's not bad. It's not bad, but it's not what you think it is based on the names on, on the billing. No, that's true. Mark Wade, Brian Hitch, Justice League should be the best Justice League of all time. It's not the best Justice it's the, it's the, like doesn't even come close to the Ultimates, and it's the same artist... Yeah. And the same a, a writer who is a different writer, but of same caliber quality. I would, knows say, I would say higher quality, actually. There you go, right? And it just didn't go together for some reason. Whose fault was it? I don't know. But it's it's that casting, right? There is something. There is a magic to it. So what you're saying is you're just mad at that editor. <laughs> yes. Who was it at the time? Jay Mike? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would probably reread it again and like it myself, but I remember finding it like a bit difficult to get through, and I was super excited to read it. Hmm. Do you find you are more forgiving now that you go back and read things? Uh, It depends. There's some things I'm a little bit more critical on because sometimes I go into, like I was saying to you before the show started, a lot of the all-new, all-different Marvel era. I read quite a bit of it, and I did like quite a few things, but there's a lot of stuff that I thought I liked when I reread it. And I'm like, I don't know if I like this as much as I think I do, or I'm telling myself I like it, one, because I bought it, or two, because you're supposed to like it because everyone else did. Maybe I don't really like it, and I'm just trying to tell myself I do. And there's some stuff like Ta-Nehisi Cole's Black Panther. I thought I liked it. Don't care for it. Don't care for his Captain America anymore. Um... Not sure how I feel about Avengers by Hickman, but that's not all new, all different. But like, there's stuff in my collection now where maybe I'm a little bit harsher, if, if not, maybe I'm not as forgiving to answer your question. Interesting. What What do you think about? Do you think you're just more discerning now, or like, what do you think has changed in you that has allowed some of these books that maybe you gave a bit of a pass on before to suddenly, you know, you're like, no, I don't like this, or this isn't working for me. Um, I think discerning. 
is definitely a thing. But also there's that, I, I can become a victim to the hype. I can become a victim to the, um, if a name is associated with something like that's, it's good. That's a good thing. So it's, it's, it's a good book. It's, it's just, if I don't get it, it's because I don't get it. Like Ta-Nehisi Coates writing Black Panther with Brian Stelfreeze just seems like, yeah, that's right. This is going to be great. It wasn't great. It, it doesn't come close to Christopher Priest. Right. Now, let me ask a question for you because this is one I struggle with, not struggle with, but I, I, it's been a personal journey for me is to understand more like, is, is so let's take that Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, Black Panther. Is it not good or is it just not for you? Is it, is it not to you? Like, is it not the type of story you want to read or is it just not something that, that works for you as a story? Like, or is it actually something about the mechanics of how it's put together or how, how it's written? Like, is it actually bad or is it actually just not for you? And that's been, again, I, I'm, I'm not putting any judgment on you here because I'm working through this myself. There's books where I'm like, I don't really like this, but I'm glad it exists for the people who are going to love this because it's not bad. It's just not for me. And, right, and and is that um, perhaps the case? The the stuff I did a whole episode on the intergalactic stuff that he was doing with Daniel Acuna, and I actually liked that. Could that not stand it. <laughs> right, you, but I, you but like it wasn't for me. It wasn't for my taste. Right. And I found the it, first, although I will say, I wonder. I was reading it monthly. I think if I read it all collected, I might feel differently. Yeah, so I was reading it in collected form, and I really liked it. And, and I don't know if we had a difference of opinion on Acuna's art. I like it. I don't mind it. And I felt it worked for what they were, that intergalactic feel. It wasn't Wakanda. It was a Wakanda in space. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, this kind of works. I like that stuff better than what he opened up with, the series. Mm. I just found one. I had the first uh, deluxe edition. I was really excited about it. And I just didn't find myself being that interested to continue for the next volume for some reason hmm. just didn't pull me in um captain america was okay it was coming off of the nick spencer stuff it was a little bit boring and then when he the way it ended i didn't even want to continue reading it at that point that's where it's like this isn't for me hmm. um a lot of the comics that they make today they're not for me so that's i go a- back and i read stuff that i missed and I'm like, there's a lot of good stuff throughout the history of comics that I can enjoy and I can read and not worry about the weekly stuff or try Because that's the other pressure when you're trying to podcast. Do I want to do the stuff I like or do I want to be that guy who's trendy and up to speed and has watched every trailer and has a hot take on this, that, and the other? And at some point, it's like, I don't even like what they're making. So why am I going to be that Wednesday warrior who's buying a book to just be married to it? I'm going to buy what I want to read. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. Now. I think my first uh, major divorce divorce from comics, per se, in in terms of buying something because I always bought it and then finally stopping the habit, um, that would have been Exiles was the one I think that broke it for me. Like I had jumped off of Uncanny X Men before, um, but Exiles was the one where it was re- just actively making me upset. Like it just it wasn't the book I signed on for. I didn't enjoy it anymore. Um, it wasn't bad, it was just different. And I was used to shorter arcs, um, you know, I, what I would say a better character selection, um, and, you know, not being as overwrought. And then Claremont took it over, and it became a Claremont book. And I like Claremont, but it just, I didn't want that flavor on my Exiles. And so that was a tough one. And my wife was like, why are you still buying this if you don't like it? 
And I'm like, I don't know. Like, it was just, it was a habit. It was like, I, I was there since the first issue. I got to keep buying it. And that was really tough to kind of let go of. Um, and that, that's not an easy one. Um, any final thoughts? Because I do have to let you go, and I do have to get back to my evening as well. Um, you know, this is this is part of a, a giant extravaganza of an episode. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird to think that we won't be having any more of these chats on my show because uh, you you know you're a centennial warrior for me. You come back for the right. anniversaries, just like Dan Gavazdin. But uh, you know, any any do you have any final thoughts about putting comic shenanigans to bed? Because you've been a part of it. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of crazy how many how many years now it's been. I think my uh, my first centennial episode was six hundred. I, that sounds about right. I'd have to double check. And then episodes in between here and there. How do I putting it to bed? Well, I'm sad that you're putting it to bed, to be honest with you, because uh, it's a good show. You get a lot of good guests and like those people. Like, man, you found you found Roger Stern. Like, that's so cool that you're able to do that. <laughs> and you don't have much of um, much footage from some of these guys that you've been able to get on. So. Uh, for that I'm sad but at the same time I'm happy that you're finishing it the way you said you're going to get to a thousand I felt it was a good round number and uh, I'm happy for you good on you I'm happy that I, I found friendship with you through the podcast and stuff and episodes that um, ended up costing me a lot of money don't tell <laughs> me why <laughs> no I'm just kidding but yeah there's a lot of stuff that I ended up reading that I may not have ever enjoyed if I didn't listen to your show so thank you for that and of course, like, man, all the baseball games we've went to over the years, like, it's going to, I hope we still could continue that tradition, whether the comic shenanigans is going or not, but congratulations, and, um, hey, sneak in another episode here or there, do a thousand and one, mess with everybody. <laughs> you know, I do think about that, like, I think about it, like, would I come back? Not. Would I just drop one, you know? Uh, yeah, get up your OCD, have fun. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, yeah, that's easier said than done. You know, a thousand's a nice, uh, a nice round number. So something about that. Although, as I said before to you, I have two episodes that are sneaking in there that are a part B and a point one episode. So technically speaking, I'll be at a, a thousand and two. But from the proper numbering, it'll just be a thousand. Classic Marvel why you, style. Why don't you start counting down? Oh God! A thousand. And the next episode is nine ninety nine, and <laughs> just go back to one. Oh, that that wouldn't <laughs> screw with anyone at all. No. That's hilarious. Well, Eric, thank you so much, first of all, for being on the show again. Uh, it's been, you know, we, we you know we met through the podcast, obviously, where our first fan expo together was five years ago. Um, I was, it's funny because I'm so, it's funny because I, obviously I do the podcast, I'm always talking to new people, but in real life, I'm actually more of an introvert, I'm very kind of shy. So you're like, hey, we should meet up. I'm like, I don't know. I like I was trying to come up with reasons not to just because I was shy about me. You're a nerd. That's all. Yeah, just well, a nerd. And then uh, you know I met you, and uh, you know I had nothing to be shy about, and it was, it's been nothing but fun, and being able to you know have so many conversations with you, and uh, I feel like I, I get less texts from you now, but which collections to buy because you're you're asking Dave instead. No, um, <laughs> it's because I don't. I can't buy collections anymore. That's why. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been a tremendous to be able to again the. This, this a real gift of this show has been the, the relationships and the friendships that have come, not just with creators, but also with other people like yourself and Curtis. And so that's been tremendously rewarding. And even Dan Gavazdin, you know, like, um, I 
don't even know how we started talking, but I think I just, you know, I liked his show, and I was like, come on my show, and then come on every year on our anniversary episodes, and it just became a thing, and so it's really nice to, you know, have more people in your kind of, your web um, that you can talk to, and so... You know, it's, it happens to be nice that we happen to be able to be local and that we can go to baseball games, you know, uh, every couple, uh, you know, once a season or so. But, uh, yeah, no, it's been tremendous fun to get to know you and have you on the show. And I look forward to making many appearances on the Cave of Solitude podcast uh, for the Book of the Month Club because that's a nice monthly tradition to to be able to do. So I'm very excited about that. So thanks again for, for being, part of, uh, being part of the end. Thank you for having me, always. And you're always welcome back on uh, the Cave of Solitude whenever you want to talk comics or just talk anything, man. You're always welcome. Thank you so much. All right. Congratulations, buddy. And that was Eric Anthony of the Cave of Solitude podcast. You should definitely check out that show. It's a it's a lot of fun. I always make a lot of fun of uh, Eric because he's got such a, a great co-host these days uh, in Dave Molyneux. But uh, and uh, I always use mock jealousy. Of, and uh, but uh, honestly, they put together a nice show. They work really well together. They have such great repartee, and so I'm glad just to be able to be uh, invited once a, once in a while to show up for uh, you know the the book of the month clubs that I've been doing with him. So uh, it's always been fun. Uh, next up, um, longtime friend of the show, making his tenth appearance on the show. If you can believe it, uh, we have uh, you know your friend and mine, Ron Friends. Ron, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Uh, this isn't uh, you know an episode un- unfortunately devoted to you this time. You're you're part of a, a, a greater whole. You're part of my episode a thousand, where I have many different segments, and I I would be remiss if I didn't somehow find a way to bring you back on. Uh, this actually, if we total it up, is your tenth appearance, and I was like, you know what, we got to go for ten. So it's always a pleasure to have you, and so thank you for agreeing to do a, a short segment for this episode. That's uh, my pleasure, Adam. Uh, round numbers are always something I. I aspire to <laughs> so I just want to check in with you um, I, as I've said many times in the past I'm a huge fan of your commissions uh, when you when you post them and I've kind of made a, a mental promise to myself that you know I think for my birthday this year I want to, I want to get myself at least on the wait list for a Ron Friends uh, commission so I have to finally figure out in the next three months what I'm going to ask you to do but I'm just curious like what, what has been kind of uh, juicing you up lately in terms of some of the commissions you've gotten because there's so much fun to look at but are there any particular ones that have really you know uh, made you more excited about drawing them? No, uh, not necessarily. No, um, I've, I've I've had a few that have been lingering on the board because I did a couple of conventions. Mm. Uh, I did one here locally in Pittsburgh, and then I did uh, Heroes Con in Charlotte, and uh, those are very very busy and very work intensive, and uh, so I I kind of got home and crashed uh, work-wise and uh, had some thumbnailing I needed to finish up for Blue Baron and uh, did that. So I'm just now getting into finishing up uh, another batch of, of commissions. And the one I'm working on now is is one of those uh, 10 by 15 uh, full background, you know, uh, kind of, I, I guess you could call it a mock cover without a logo and everything, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's black costume Spider-Man, black cat, versus uh hobgoblin over nice. the city now that those those tend to <laughs> you know that those are all the the, the uh the main uh 
characters that I'm usually asked about anyway, and uh, so it's kind of hitting all the all those notes. Uh, the other one I'm working on right now is a callback to an old Marvel team-up annual I did way back in the day with Spider-Man, Cloak and Dagger, and uh, the New Mutants. Um, and it doesn't show all the New Mutants, but it shows Cloak and Dagger and Spider-Man uh, and uh, Sunspot, the, the mutated Sunspot, and the mutated Wolfsbane from uh, from the story. So that was... It's strange trying to reconnect with such a, a, job, a job that I did so early in my uh, in, in my career that it, it, that's been kind of interesting too. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, there's always something that comes around to Ben that, that's interesting and everything. And usually it's you know it's it's a character I haven't done a lot, or uh, it's a, a callback to to uh, classic stuff. What you know, whatever. But uh, it. Those things always keep me interested, and, and I've yet to get a load uh, of commissions. You know, I usually take like five or six at a time, and I've yet to ever get a list that there isn't something on it that makes me go, oh, that should be cool. <laughs> you know, so I can't complain. I, I live a, a terrific life of uh, doing what I love so you don't really work a day in your life, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, One thing I don't think I've ever heard complaints. One thing I don't think I've ever really asked you is that, you know, of your original art, like how much of you have you kept over the years? And obviously I know a lot of it does get sold. Um, and obviously you sell through Catskill Comics and they've represented you for a good while. But just in general, like are, is there anything of yours that you've held on to or that has a, you know, a particular place that you can't part with it? I have a private stash, um, yes. And uh, we actually put it up on Catskill once uh, and we put some decent prices on it because I, I didn't really care if they sold or not type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't. So, uh, I mean, we're talking things like, you know, the double page splash from Thor 400 or Surtur, mm. uh, you know, and, and some, you know, some pieces that were by particular anchors and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there is work that I've, that I've kept for myself to tell you the, the honest truth. Uh, one of the things that kind of ruined it for me is when computer lettering came in, hmm. and you weren't you weren't getting story pages anymore. Hmm. You know, um, you would get the art, but there's the lettering is no longer a part of the original art, so you don't actually get a scene from the story. You just get the art, and I've always been most connected to the actual storytelling, hmm. so it kind of ruined original art for me. When we stopped, <laughs> when we stopped putting the lettering on the board, so it's a it's a quirk, but it's my quirk. So you know. Recently, you put up uh, on your Facebook page. You put a, a double page splash from Thunderstrike Number One, which is just a gorgeous piece. One thing it did really make me um, remember, and really always have appreciated about your work, is the attention that you really do in the backgrounds. Like uh, some people, you know, they don't do the same level of detail, but there's something about, it, especially that spread, where you know, you have the two characters kind of fighting in the foreground, but you do have a lot of detail in the background in terms of where they are actually placing the setting. Has that always just been something like the way you were taught the, or the way that you kind of came up to always really put in the detail for the backgrounds? Because obviously not everyone does it. And I feel like these days it's kind of a lost art because people, you know, they lean on colorists, et cetera, to kind of fill in that blank. But I feel like, you know, whenever I've ever seen your boards or even, you know, some of the original pages I have from you, you always do extensive backgrounds. Is that just how you were, you know, kind of brought up in the industry, so to speak? 
Yeah, um, I, I don't intend to, to do overly detailed backgrounds. I, I, what I feel I do, uh, Adam, is, is just enough to show the, the atmosphere, just enough to show the environment to tell the story. Uh, so and, and whatever that entails. I mean, this, this commission I'm, I'm making right now uh, with uh, the Hobgoblin and Spider-Man and Black Cat, the angle I chose for the background uh, meant that I had to do quite a bit of detail on some buildings. Uh, I didn't go into it going, oh, this will be a great opportunity to do background on the buildings. <laughs> I just I picked the angle and the uh, and the vanishing points, and as I you know sat there and got the figures tightened up, I realized, oh wow, I've got to draw some buildings. So you go and do it. You know that's the thing. Sal Buscema always got the impression that I enjoyed doing cityscapes uh, because he never really did, and he always felt that my work showed a certain. Uh, enjoyment of it that was never true I can't say I enjoy it <laughs> I feel it's a necessary evil especially in a character like Spider-Man because you know the environment is the cityscape hmm. so I you know I, I I always do it at least enough to indicate the environment and to tell the story and, and it pretty much goes that, that's pretty much it I, as I was looking back at this old annual job that I was just talking about of Marvel Team-Up. That was one of the things I noticed was, you know, this was before you had access to the internet. It was, you know, it would have been in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, back then we had to, like, go to libraries and look up reference. And uh, and often I had an extensive library of, uh, of different books for different references and all that kind of stuff. These days it's very easy with with uh, the internet to call up a picture of, you know, uh, the, one of these, one of the scenes in this story, uh, I was just shocked at how little backgrounds I was putting in, is my point. Mm. And part of it was because, where do you find reference for a slaughterhouse? You know, now you can just <laughs> dial it into Google and get, you know, more reference than you could possibly use. So it's... Uh, you know, it, it's it's been an experience. It's been a real lesson in how things have changed and how things have gotten better and easier for illustrators to to find the proper reference. And uh, back then, we were faking the crap out of it, apparently, <laughs> because bet between between dark dark scenes in warehouses where I was doing a lot of blacks and a lot of graphic backgrounds to churches where I was just faking the the heck out of it to a slaughterhouse where I didn't have the proper reference so I just threw in barely enough to indicate where we were it was all you know kind of a mess <laughs> but uh, now we've all taken care of that now we do, now we have no excuse for finding what we're what we're doing here so. from your time as, as being a fan of Spider-Man was there a particular artist that you thought you know, kind of nailed the cityscapes best in terms of making, you know, the, the environments he was swinging around feel the most lived in and, and feel like authentic oh, yeah. New York? Oh, yeah. I think anybody that's ever worked on Spider-Man would bow to Ross Andrew. Yeah, as I was going to uh, say. <laughs> the, 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 stories are, the stories are that, I mean, he went out and shot his own reference. He lived in the New York area and would go out and shoot specific reference for the issue he was working on. 
and uh, you can't ask for more hands-on than that. And his stuff was always right on the money, you know? I mean, whether it was the, uh, the, the tram, the Roosevelt Island tram, or the Statue of Liberty, or you know, Rockefeller Center, no matter what it was, his reference was spot on. So, yeah, it would be Ross Andrew, and I think everybody that's ever worked on Spider-Man would say the same thing. If, if they don't, then they're not educated. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be too. Uh, so, last question before I let you go for the evening. Um, you know, obviously, you mentioned that you've been back to doing cons, and I think last weekend was Terrificon, correct? Uh, actually, I wasn't at Terrificon, oh, but uh, okay. I, there was Terrificon. Yes. Okay. So, for some reason, I thought you were supposed to be at that one. No, Brett Breeding was there, and I, I, there was some talk about doing some kind of a Spider-Man thing, but okay. I was uh, unable to attend. Well, the ones you have been able to go to thus this year, I mean, what is it like to kind of get back out there and see, you know, fellow creators again? Because, again, you know, there's this kind of self, not self-imposed, there was this, you know, kind of lockdown and we didn't have a lot of conventions and now, you know, conventions are happening more and more frequently. Is it nice to be able to kind of have that camaraderie again and actually kind of see some of these people again? It is. It is. Uh, when you can, you know, I mean... Uh to tell you the God's honest truth, uh, I didn't really go out with large groups in the evening, partly because I was heading back to my room to finish up the sketches for the for the day so I could start with a fresh list the next day, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I did get a chance to hang around with my rep, Scott Kress, and uh, Mike Grell, who is also a member of uh, Catskill Comics, and we had a wonderful time, and uh, it's always good to see Mike, and he's a fantastic storyteller, and quite the raconteur so uh, that was a lot of fun um yeah in the pittsburgh show it was good to see pat olive again because he's got a a wife and kid and we don't really run in the same circles anymore so it's always a pleasure to hang out with pat and brett breeding was in for the pittsburgh show and crashed at my place so you know there is definitely a sense of that and i see it on my facebook page as much as anywhere that we're kind of like coming out of our hidey holes and uh you know uh terrificon must have been from what i read on on my facebook page was a terrific place for marvel expatriates to reconnect and uh take group pictures and all that kind of stuff you know so yeah you're absolutely right that is definitely something that is going on these days for sure. Okay, well, again, thank you, Ron, so much for agreeing to uh, come on for my last episode and for your 10th appearance. It's always been a pleasure throughout the uh, the many years to, to chat with you. i got to say, like, um, I've you know learned so much about your craft and what you do and how you've done it, and being able to talk to you about all the different projects you've done has been uh, just extremely uh, gratifying and amazing to be able to actually talk with someone who you know who was responsible for a lot of you know the, the art that I've loved throughout the years. So I can't tell you enough. And again, my, my promise to myself is to finally get on your wait list for uh, for commissions. So I got to come up with a doozy, uh, and I got three months to figure it out. So hopefully, I can get on that list soon. When, when you when you figure it out, yeah, you can go through Catskill, or you could mention it to me in private message. Listen, I, I think I said most of my goodbyes the last time we spoke <laughs> because I didn't realize you were going to be doing this type of a final episode, but it has been a pleasure for me as well to speak with somebody who takes the work as seriously as you do and pays attention to what we're trying to do and what we sometimes fail to do, but what we're shooting for and uh, and and looks into the work 
a little bit more than some do. So it, it, it's always wonderful for a creative to speak to somebody who appreciates the work and, and is, is seeing what we're trying to do. So it's always been a great pleasure for me, Adam. I will always be willing to be a part of any project that you are uh, spearheading. And I wish you all the luck in the world. I hope you're not absent from, uh, from the Internet for long. Okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself, Adam. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. My many thanks to Ron Friends for coming on for his 10th appearance on the show and for celebrating part of my final and uh, thousandth episode. Uh, let's jump into a new segment with Curtis Finley of the Epic Marvel Podcast. Enjoy. Curtis, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing really great. Uh, it, it's it's a pleasure to be here in this monumental episode. I am very thankful that you reached out uh, and allowed me to be a part of this. It's crazy to think it's been uh, you know ten years I've been doing this, uh, a thousand episodes, but now it's it's done. I can kind of take a breath. Um, but uh, I wanted to say th- a personal thank you to you because uh, this year you helped connect me with Lynn Johnston, um, who mm-hmm. obviously was the creator for Better or for Worse, and obviously you're very much uh, you know working with her on the reprints of uh, of her strip. Um, and that was just such a fun conversation to have. And so I really have to thank you for helping to put that together because that would have been one that I don't know how I would have been able to get that done without you. So thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. It thrills me that uh, you are enjoying the book and, and that your son is enjoying the books as well. Like it's just a, it's it's a it's a fantastic strip. It's one of my all time favorite comics, and I'm grateful that I am able to uh, to be an editor on this series and do some some of the actual work on it because I feel like I'm now part of this thing that I've loved for so long. Uh, and and to see you and your son enjoying it so much is just absolutely thrilling. Like that's that's what we all hope for is for uh, comics to be a gateway for children to get in, be be entertained mm-hmm. and and to connect with their parents and to learn how to read better and you know all of this stuff. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> I love it. You told me the other day that he's been reading it so much that the binding it's the binding has suffered and the cover's coming off or something and it's just like yep that is a well-loved book and that is absolutely fantastic i forget which volume of it is uh, it is but the actual like cover of the spine has just completely fallen off and he was yep. so upset about it because he's like don't be mad don't be mad and, and i was like i oh, hope it's yeah. not the one that's impossible to ever get again <laughs> yeah. but uh, which well, was your first imagine. spot too which i thought was very funny yep well of course like if you got to replace it what are the ones that are easy to replace? Um, no, you know that's part of the hardship because th- those books are—they are landscape. They're not—they're um, not, you know, portrait like a standard comic book. Mm-hmm. And they're also like we pack them with five hundred or so pages, and it's they're thin pages. So, but it, the thin pages means that the paper stock doesn't have a lot of bulk, so there's not a lot of give. It is a completely solid block of paper, completely solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, it's heavy. And gravity pulls apart the end papers, and that's probably what happened with your son. Like, it's no fault of his. It's a, That's one of the hazards of doing these comic strip books, because we want to cram as much content into it as possible, but it's horizontal, and uh, so the, the page is just naturally... They're naturally heavy and pull away from from the covers. It's it's interesting. Like again, that you know, 
I, I'm, I'm buying the series that I like, but like I know you and you're the editor of the book, so I can actually like reach out to you and say like, oh, you know, this happened. And then yeah. you saying that about the binding was actually really helpful because then I kind of sat down and looked at all the other volumes that he'd been reading and I kind of sat down with him and said, you know, it's not really your fault. And I think that definitely helped him is that yeah. knowing that, you know, it, it, yes, he definitely could take a little bit better care sometimes because he is only about nine. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, if there's something about the design that might you know, if you do a lot of overreading, that's what might cause this. I think he felt better and I felt better. So I definitely appreciated you being able to kind of say that because that made a lot of sense. Um, it does remind me of an old uh, story about, I forget which comic creator said this, but they were saying that their favorite comic to um, to sign at a convention was one that would look like it had been through hell. Because he's like, that's uh, that's because it meant something to you probably and that you yeah. read it so much that it was dog-eared and, and he's like, that means more to me to sign that than a pristine copy of a book I read, or sorry, a book I wrote. And that's such an interesting perspective and it makes complete sense because, you know, a, a well-loved book or a well-loved comic should look like it and there's just something, there's something gratifying to that. Well, and the way you handled your son is really good, too, because, you know, his first reaction is, oh, man, my dad's going to kill me because he loves his books. Mm. And I think all of us collectors have that mentality of, like, do I let my kids touch these mm. because we don't want them destroyed? And, like, that for better or for worse book is not cheap. It's in Canada. It's $65. That's true. So it's um, – but but you going to him – full of grace and saying it's okay it's not your fault is perfect because if you had a bad reaction to him destroying that book he wouldn't read mm. he just wouldn't touch he, he would you would turn him off of reading you'd scare him and that would defeat the whole purpose so you know way to go for <laughs> for letting him destroy your book i mean it's not something you want to have happen but it's it's creating memories it is well it's interesting because like when so when I first found out, like, obviously you, you talked about a lot in social media and stuff about working on For Better or For Worse, and I was like, oh, you know what? I remember that comic strip, but, like, I didn't yeah. have a lot of maybe super strong memories lingering in my mind. I remember reading it for years on and off because you're a kid, right? But it was yeah. not one of the ones that maybe, you know, sat in my mind in the same way because it wasn't fantastical. It wasn't crazy, right? It was it was slice of life. Um, and I remember, like, pop buying one of the volumes and then just kind of showing it to Zach and uh, reading it through, and he really liked it. And so we would just sit through every night, and we go through like a week's worth of of the strips and he would and he would always be like come on a little bit more and i'd be like okay but we're stopping after the next color strip and that's that was like our, <laughs> our demarcation line and yeah. uh, and then i was like oh this is really good and i had forgotten just how good it was and what impressed me about it was this how well it plays not just to me but also to a child um and i told mm -hmm. this to lynn as well and it's really what makes her work so masterful is that it really does succeed in both ways. So we ended up picking up all the volumes, but I left them all in his room because he would just sit there and read. Like I'd walk into his room, he's just reading for better or for worse. Like it became something we did at night to something he just did on his own. Although when we got the most recent volume, I was like, you cannot read this without me. So it's the only one with a pristine <laughs> binding right now because oh, yeah. that's yeah. the one we like, you can only read it when we read it at night together. I'm like, I don't want you to spoil it because I don't know what happens in this volume. I don't want yeah. you to get ahead. Like the other ones, He's gotten ahead, and there's some things I don't always know um, once I get there. But this one, I'm like, no, we're going to discover this together. I don't want you to, you know, be able to jump ahead. But he's like, oh man, I really want to read more. <laughs> I'm like, so that's I know. volume. Yeah, volume six is the one that's just out now, right? That's and right. So yeah. This, yeah. So the characters age in real time. And for those of you who are listening who don't know this strip, they started when they were the, the kids started when they were 
you know, a toddler and maybe about four years old, uh, three, maybe three years old, three or four years old. And the parents themselves were in their 30s. Uh, or maybe even late 20s. I can't even remember. No, I think it's the early 30s. And so these these characters grow, grow and grow and grow. And now in volume six, they're at the point where Michael, uh, the oldest child, is has graduated and he's an adult living on his own. And this is and then, yeah, Elizabeth is in high school going through some of her high school drama. And this is where the story really kind of takes off. This is where Lynn really puts an emphasis on. Uh, the the overarching long form storytelling. I mean, that kind of starts as far back as you know, volume four, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, and before that, it was more vignette storytelling or just gag a day strips. Uh, but here in volume five and six, yeah, if you, you, I can I can tell that you're at that point where yeah, you don't want to read, you don't want to read ahead because stuff is happening and stuff does get spoiled and it's this ongoing soap opera of a drama that just continues to be unfolded more and more and it's just wonderful to, to experience no i have to ask i mean obviously I, I believe this is going to be what nine volumes when it's all said and done correct that's right yep so yep, nine volumes what so do you have um, this is a, a weird question or a weird way to put it but are you is there any sadness as you get closer to the end like you're farther along than when you started, and so you're you're more than halfway through, and obviously you're working on you know more volumes than we've seen already. So you're probably already hip deep in seven, if not eight. Um, are, does it fill you with any kind of wistfulness that this big project that's you know been really you know really cool to work on, and you've been able to live, work with Lynn and this great experience? Is it bring you any kind of sadness to know that that's kind of reaching its natural end? Um, sadness, yes and no. I mean, I am. Yes, I'm sad that it's going to end, but I'm also excited that it's going to be complete because mm. this is kind of the first time I've done a big project like that. And to be, to have a nine-volume set done, like, that's actually pretty thrilling. I'm very excited for that. And I will say that uh, this isn't the last thing, for better or for worse, that we are planning to do. Um, we have some other stuff uh, we're, we're looking at other ways to bring Lynn's work into, uh, you know, to keep it in the public eye and stuff. So mm-hmm. once we finish Volume 9, we'll start up uh, something new, but I can't say what it's going to be. Now, what has it been like? Because I guess Library of American Congress, uh, sorry, I forget the actual imprint that you guys work yeah. with. Cause that's the changed- Library of American Comics. That, uh, Library of American Comics, yeah. So that's changed ownership as well, has it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has. So what's, yeah, what's yeah. That, that been like to navigate? Well, it's interesting because uh, the Library of American Comics is its own entity, and they have a publishing partnership with IDW, or they have had a publishing partnership with IDW for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that, because the founder of the Library of American Comics, Dean Mullaney, is good friends with the founders of uh, IDW, Ted Adams and Robbie Robbins. They they all they go back to the Eclipse Comics days in the 80s when Dean had his own indie comic uh, publishing company called Eclipse. And so when Dean wanted to do some comic strip books, he went to his buddy Ted and said, hey, um, I don't have the means to distribute, but you have worldwide distribution. Can you help us? Can you help me out? And, and, and you know, they get a cut and Dean gets a cut and all of this kind of stuff. Um, the thing that's happened now is that Ted has left... IDW, Ted and Robbie both, they left IDW and they've started up their own smaller boutique publishing uh, company called Clover Press. Mm. And the new people who are instated in uh, at IDW 
don't really care about comic strips. They don't have a relationship with Dean. And so they kind of looked at the sales and like, you know what? These aren't meeting our expectations uh, because their comic strips is a very small market. Mm. And IDW was like, it's not selling My Little Pony numbers. And so we can't really justify keeping this on the schedule. So they slowly cut back all of the titles that we were doing. Little Abner and um, Rip Kirby and Little Orphan Annie. They all just got canceled. Wow. For better for better or for worse is the last one standing. And I think it's because it's the most modern of the strips. Uh, so maybe it's doing better sales-wise, but they seem to be happy with that for now. So as it stands, you know, after, I'm working on Volume 7 right now, and there's only two volumes after that. So I'm fingers crossed they're not going to pull the plug on that one. But, you know, anything can happen with publishing. So Dean is left in the spot of, well, IDW now doesn't really... Um, doesn't really have a focus on comic strips. What do I do with the Library of American Comics? So he went back to his buddy Ted at Clover Press now and said, hey, um, I still want to make some books. Can we can we continue our partnership? And they said, yeah, sure. And so uh, that's what we're doing. We just released the first volume of a brand new edition of Terry and the Pirates, which is a classic action-adventure comic strip from the 1930s and 40s by Milton Kniff. And it is... A trailblazer of a comic strip. It's the first comic strip to really fully embrace action adventure, and it set the standard for every action adventure comic going forward. Uh, everything from Superman to Spider Man to to modern filmmakers, they all owe everything that they've learned about action and adventure storytelling from this comic strip, Terry and the Pirates by Milton Kniff. I've always heard about it, but I've never actually read it myself. It's very, very good. Uh, and yes, there are definitely dated ethnic stereotypes that are not appropriate these days. Uh, but the, the adventure of it is just, it's, it's so full of action, it's so full of romance and intrigue. And like, it's just a, it's a wild ride. Um, it's, it lasted for 12 years and we are collecting it um, one year at a time in these massive books that are the size of newspaper sheets. Oh, wow. Uh, and so they're, they're really, really big, but they're also pretty pricey, especially here in Canada. So they're not for everybody. It's definitely a collector-oriented book, um, but they look beautiful, that's for sure. I guess it's not for someone who wants to uh, dip their toe into Terry and the Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there are, it's been reprinted a number of times over the years, so you can find other cheaper versions of it out there. Um, this one is definitely the best it's ever looked in terms of the reproduction and the restoration. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... Definitely not for a casual fan or someone who is like no one's going to buy it on a whim. I don't think. No. Yeah. <laughs> for, for over one hundred and fifty dollars Canadian, I don't think it's yeah. going to happen. No, I don't think so. Uh, but yeah, it, but it's great if you are a fan of, of it. And you can probably find it online too. Uh, there's bound to be some websites that have scanned their own versions of of the newspapers and, and compiled it all somewhere. But yeah. Now, on your on your own podcast, I mean, you're still doing the Epic Marvel podcast. Uh, yeah. What is, I mean, obviously, I guess because of the nature of the program, I feel like there's really no end ever in sight, really. I mean, because <laughs> yeah, you know, there's always more volumes and like your room, eventually your library will just be the Epic collections. You won't have room for anything else. Oh, right now, it's yeah. I, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to fit these books on my shelf. Um, when the when the program started, when the Epic collection started, it was one a month. 
And I jumped on that. I'm like, yeah, I can do one a month. There, are, you know, there's six titles, <laughs> and pretty soon I'm going to have a full, you know, many years down the road, I'm going to have a full set of like these five, these six main Marvel titles. And now we're like eight years down the road, and they come out on a weekly basis. And there's like. 40 lines, different lines, or something like that. I don't even know. And there's like, they're not slowing down. In fact, I just got word from Omar that uh, they're making, they're going to be adding some uh, new Epic Collection titles uh, in the announcements that we're going to do pretty soon that are going to like change the way Epic Collections look or something like that. So it's like, <laughs> it's going to be pretty big news. Um, I don't know the details of that. He didn't, he just teased me with that information. I'll find that out in a few days, I think. Wow. So um, when, when this goes up, that'll already have happened. Okay, that'll already happen. Well, then you'll have to Google on new on uh, Near Mint Conditions uh, YouTube channel to, to find the Epic Collection announcements for March to August, no, sorry, sorry May to August twenty. 14, that should be what the thing is called. I have to find out what that is because I don't even know what that is right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you're right. I, was, I, I formed my podcast around the Epic Collections only thinking that I would deal with those six different Epic Collections, the, the, the six different lines. But now it's like, yeah, you're right. I could go on forever. I'm, and I don't make episodes as quickly as they release volumes. So the, it's exponentially... Um, getting harder and harder for me to catch up. <laughs> as, new, as, as new lines just do spread out, are you excited to kind of start collecting, uh, com- uh, not collecting, uh, um, covering them on the show, or are you just like, i got to oh, work sure. on the established lines? Well, I it, that depends on the line. Like, when the Generation, I'm a huge Generation X fan, and so when the Generation X epic collection came list. out, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I pumped that episode up pretty quick right away, and so the second one just came out, so I'm going to have to schedule... Um, my co-host to to do that uh, second episode pretty soon here because I love that that comic book. No, I, I, I I'm very excited always to come on your show because we do Daredevil and Modern Spider well quote unquote Modern Spider Man. Modern yeah. Spider Man is like 30 years ago still, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Still, count, still counts as modern. I'm always curious, uh, you know, wh- when because I forget who's your Silver Age Spider Man co-host, but I'm, I'm always curious at what point do we spell each other off? Like, you know, what's that <laughs> that moment where he has his last one and I have my first one? Well, I mean, the Epic Collections editorially are split. 60s and 70s are uh, the, are are sorry. The volumes that cover the 60s and 70s are edited by Corey Settlemeyer. Oh yeah. And then the volumes that are 80s and 90s are edited by. Uh, Jen Grunwald, and so there's a natural split there, right at the the 80s mark or whenever. So I think I'll just keep an eye out for whenever um, that that spl- editorial split is, and that'll be the split for you two co-hosts as well. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, yep. And so people have asked me like, "What are you going to do after you podcast?" I'm like, "Well, don't worry, I'm still going to be on the Epic Marvel podcast once in a while." Um, yeah, you know, so that that'll still be going, and it's interesting to see those original lines get so filled out now. Um, in a way that you know we didn't, ha- you know, we could never have imagined that it would happen this quickly. Uh, to have that many like Amazing Spider-Man volumes, um, like you know, it was always my dream that I would have all of Amazing Spider-Man in collected form, and that's you know not that far away from happening. It's not, you know, there are I think eighteen volumes of Avengers Epic Collections right now, out of a possible you know twenty-five. I think is where the cutoff point cutoff point is going to be. Um, that's very close to a complete collection. Like, holy cow. 
I wouldn't like it looked so far away when we started this in 2013 when mm-hmm. the epic collections first started coming out and there was like we had volume nine and volume one or whatever is like oh man this is going to take forever but here we are actually you know the end is vi- uh, visibly in sight it's hard to believe I love it I just think it's great no, I'm, I'm curious. You've made me even more curious about uh, Omar's upcoming announcements. So I'm very <laughs> curious about that because, I mean, obviously the big thing that I think a lot of people are curious about is, you know, what what happens with Spider-Man. You know, we have the Clone Saga, which everyone, you know, I already own those eleven volumes of those complete epics. Um, yeah. You know, so I'm, you know, what happens after that? I'm, I love the post-Clone Saga stuff, and which has been almost completely neglected by Marvel. Um, in most ways, so there's been a couple of trades, but it's never been comprehensively collected. So that's always, you know, yep. in my mind, like, is that going to happen? Uh, the one that I both want and also dread seeing is uh, is Thunderbolts because I always wanted it, and I had the Thunderbolts classics, I had the Hawkeye and Thunderbolts, um, and then they stopped, and then it was only at issue fifty, and then they started doing the Omnis, and I was like, all right, well, if this is the only way to get past issue fifty. I guess I'll do it. Um, so I bought, recently <laughs> bought the second volume. I have the third volume. Yeah. I pre-ordered actually at a really good price. Um, and now I'm just like filled with this existential dread that they'll announce a Thunderbolts epic and I'm like, well, what do I do then? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I already own it in two formats and actually a lot of the issues I think I still have it sickle somewhere. What do I do yeah. then? And I, and I don't have the answer for that. So I'm, I'm hoping that Thunderbolts isn't coming, but I feel like it, it must be because especially now that we know there's a movie coming, it feels like oh, the yeah. writing's on the wall. For sure. Absolutely. I have no doubt that Thunderbolts, because there's a movie coming, will come out. In fact, that's probably why we have the Omnis coming out now, uh, because the movie announcement was hot, uh, and they saw that coming, so they wanted the content out in Omni form, and then when the actual movie comes out, the epics will probably start. They kind of hit all of those landmarks, those tentpole moments. Then I'll feel like such the fool. I didn't need these Omnis. <laughs> well, you know, the nice thing about Omnis is that they hold their value. Most of them, at least. Most of them hold their value, and especially with the Thunderbolts movie coming out, I'm sure if you wanted to try and resell that, you probably could. That's actually a good point. I hadn't thought of that, because I, I I'm not usually a, a, a guy who kind of resells or tries to, you know. Yeah. But that's not a bad idea. Um, it's it, it's weird. I've also, so I have a question for you. I mean, you, okay. you are a guy who's going to have them all, so I don't think it really matters. But for me, now that Conan is, I guess, the epics are going to stop, um, and I was only buying the original Marvel years, I'm kind of like, well, do I... Do I still need these? Like, if I can't have a complete, is it the same? <laughs> yeah, I know. Which is a weird, like, mentality. But, like, I'd never really read Conan before. And this was, like, I started reading with Jason Aaron. So I read the kind of the Marvel Conan stuff. I had all those issues. Um, and then I, uh, I started buying these these epics. And now I'm kind of like, you know, I, part of the enticement was the fact that I was eventually going to have this huge library. And if I can't have this huge library of Conan... Part of me is like, well, will they go up in value because they'll become more scarce because they're not going to be reprinted? And maybe those eventually I could say goodbye to? I don't know. Well, I think uh, I think we're going to have to see what this new company, uh, because I believe the the estate, the the Edgar Rice Burroughs, no, uh, is that right? Who, who was the, oh, the Robert uh, E. Howard? Yeah, <laughs> the Howard. Robert E. Howard estate. Um, I think that they now publish their own material or they're planning on doing that. And we're going to have to see if they use, if they're allowed to use the restored Marvel files Mm. or if they have to restore things themselves. Uh, If, if getting access to the restored Marvel files was always part of the licensing agreement and now they, they can just reprint that stuff as, as they want, then 
I have no problem buying from this new company to finish my set. Hmm. What, a, what a fascinating fine. deal, if that's true, like to get Marvel and people like Corey to do all the restoration, and then they just yep. have these pristine files for after the licensing ends. It's not uncommon because, and that's what we're doing with For Better or For Worse. Mm. All of the, the restoration and the coloring that I'm doing for the Sundays, now Lynn, you know, she's put it all up on her website and she can use that in future books if she wants to. Like, that's kind of, I think, a little bit of how it works, but I, I think it's all contract based or whatever. So we'll have to see. Um, but it's an interesting thought. You thinking, uh, you know what? If I can't have all of it, then I want none of it. <laughs> Which is weird. It's, it's such a <laughs> <I> weird <laughs> thought. But I, I think that, for me, was part of the enticement. Because Yo, for sure. Yeah. I know that there was this huge, you know, I, again, it was not something I'd ever touched. Um, like, I think I had one issue of Conan, you know, for fairly late in the run from sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. But, like, mm-hmm. I'd never really read much of Conan. So, the, for me, it was complete blind buy. So there was an excitement about being able to, you know, go into this full world that I've never seen. Um, yeah. And obviously I've heard a lot of good things about it, but I've also heard that, like, some of the best stuff is later, and I'm not going to get there. Um, yeah. So, you know. Unless you buy the Omnis, I guess. Which I just, that's such a, a it's harder to make a blind buy of that. Um, cause yeah. it is so much more, um, you know, um, money intensive. Um, but yeah, yeah it yeah. definitely is a thought and yeah. So it's interesting to kind of see how the hobby is going to be changing when we have these types of things like, um, and the epics are kind of there to take over and try new things. And it's interesting to see how people handle these new lines when they happen. Uh, whereas at least the classic Marvel stuff, we know that, you know, those rights will never go away. Yep. Yep. That's fine. Uh, I think that if, you know, if you're having trouble fitting everything on your bookshelf, then if Conan is something that is not at the top of your list and they've canceled the line, then sure, get rid of them and make room for something that you treasure more. So I'm going to ask you a question about something um, okay. I'm curious about. So it's been pushed back and pushed back, but what if Volume 2 has an omnibus that's supposed to be coming out at this point sometime next year? It's supposed to, I think, be out last year originally, and it just kept getting pushed back. Um, do you think that would be part of an epic collection at some point? Um, I mean, we've had complete collections for the what-ifs, um, but do you think you know they'd ever get to Volume 2? I was always surprised that the Omni came first, whereas the other ones all had complete collections first. Uh, yeah, I think that the what if ones actually sold well enough that they were like, oh yeah, we could do omnibus of these, which is odd because they'll throw anything into an omnibus like all of the month of March 1961 or whatever that was. <laughs> but uh, but they didn't do it for what if. I I am thankful that we got those complete collections of what if because they contained the Conan issues. Mm. If they if they do a um, a epic collection, a what if epic collection now and they don't have the Conan license, they're going to have to skip those issues. That's true. Yeah. But I'm, I I think we will eventually see what if in epic form. Um, some of those early volumes are even get going out of print now. That's true. And with, with the what if TV show still going on with another season coming, uh, we're going to see trade collections of that second volume, I'm almost certain. And then hopefully, I think that it, it would be great if we got, you know, what if Epic Collection Volume 5, which is the first volume of the second What If series? I'd be there with bells on. <laughs> Me too. Love that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love Volume 1 too, but it's not the same. Volume 2 was more what I was reading and growing up with. Oh, me too. Yeah, you look at it and like volume one has some great ideas and great concepts. Volume two set the tone of, you know, one thing changes and it has 
catastrophic ramifications, like exactly. worlds explode kind of a thing, <laughs> uh, which happened over and over again in that volume. And that didn't happen in those early days. It was like, you know, what if Betty Brant was bitten by the radioactive spider? <laughs> it was like, yeah, not as hard-hitting, but no, still fun. To, almost, to, yeah, almost to a laughable extent, uh, what if yeah. it became like everything was bad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but it was great, yep. Yeah. So oh, before cool. before we, we wrap up, so we we have talked about working on something um, after my podcast, and I guess we can kind of briefly talk about that. I only have a couple minutes left, but um, you know, you, you kind of came to me with the idea of you know, hey, you've been doing all these interviews for all these years. Have you ever thought of kind of putting it together? Um, and so I guess you know, unofficially, we're kind of moving forward on starting to work together on actually kind of taking some of these interviews, figuring out how to transcribe them and kind of break it all down, and actually start putting them out into a book format. Um, what, yeah. what, what made you kind of think that this was something first of all to do, and what made you say, "Hey, Adam, we should do this"? Well, I think the the main thing is when you announced that you were stopping your podcast, I thought to myself. It's only going to be a matter of a time before he doesn't want to pay for this domain anymore. And what happens to all of these interviews? You have done some absolutely incredible and important interviews uh, over these thousand episodes, and they can't be lost to time. Nothing on online is permanent. Hmm. And so they need to be put down in, in on paper in order to preserve this information and to make sure that it is accessible uh, for people who are doing scholarly research uh, for years to come. And I have uh, quite a few interviews under my belt now as well on my podcast. And so I thought it made sense for us to combine our forces and use our uh, both of our you know collective knowledge to try and make this possible. And I think that it's going to be really, really good. We're going to look at... Um, doing books that are centered around themes. So we'll take all your Spider-Man related interviews and all of my Spider-Man related interviews and put them all together sort of in a linear form so we can get a whole book that kind of tells Spider-Man's history from as early as the interviews would allow to modern day. Like you just, you did a Zeb Wells interview. Like that'll be really, really cool to see. Uh, And then we'll, you know, or we could do a creator focus. Like we could have, Probably a number of volumes on just on Ron Friends. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Because we've, we've both interviewed him multiple times or like Tom DeFalco or something like that. Like it's – it'll be great. I think this is going to be a lot of fun putting these together and it's, it's going to be uh, important to preserve all of this history. And I want to thank you actually, Adam, because um, I don't know if you remember, but before I started my podcast, the Epic Marvel podcast, um, I was emailing you. Because I was listening to your podcast and I was asking a lot of questions about how do you get your interviews or what do you do? Mm. How do you approach these creators and stuff like that? And like I learned a lot and got a lot of information from you before I started up my podcast. And that's led to a, a great you know, internet relationship, friendship here. <laughs> <laughs> We've never met in person, which I hope you will be able to do at some point. Absolutely. Um, but uh, but I'm very thankful for your guidance and for myself in those early years and uh, and and what has followed the the friendship that we've kind of formed because of that. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I'm very excited about this kind of new chapter. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it takes a different muscle to kind of go through. You know, you sent me some of the initial transcripts to kind of go through and start, you know, kind of editing just to kind of uh, start paring it down. But it's going to be a really fun process. It's going to take a lot of time, obviously. And I've yeah. done more interviews than I realized. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's, yes. it's exciting. And it, the idea that, you know, I spent 10 years doing this and the fact that there'd be some kind of record of it um, is really exciting. So I, I really appreciate yep. you kind of coming up with the idea and reaching out to me about it because I don't think I would have thought of it on my own. I was kind of like, well, it's over. That was fun. You know, <laughs> like I hope some people out there enjoyed the interviews and, uh, you know, and, and that was about it. But the idea that we could actually kind of get it written down and, you know, there's some, I don't even know how we would, you know, package them or what kind of theme, but, you know, I, and just for me personally, being able to talk to creators before they passed away um, yes. has been really interesting. You know, like I interviewed Justin Ponser, my favorite colorist of all time, and then he passes away. Um, yeah, Norm Brayfogle. Yeah. And I was like, I should stop interviewing people because I'm obviously a curse. <laughs> um, but you yeah, know, that I was... have a, I've got a Denny O'Neill interview that I absolutely love. And I'm, you know, that, that was hard when he passed away as well. And I have an interview with Larry Lieber and he hasn't passed away yet, but he's getting up there. And I'm thankful that I was able to talk to him twice actually. Um, and get some, get some of his voice down on, uh, in, on the podcast. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. You know, as you said, it is part of this historical record and, you know, yep. podcasts are kind of the new fanzine. Um, you know, that, you know, you yep. hear, you see all these books and they quoting all these crazy fanzines that are around in the seventies. I'm like, that's us now. Like, you know, we're, yeah, it is. we're yeah. those guys. Um, so, you know, if someone eventually is reading, uh, you know, some of our, our, whatever books we put out about some of these interviews, it's been really cool and gratifying. And again, to be able to have it on my shelf personally, um, yep. you know, even if no one else buys one and I just have, you know, a complete <laughs> library of, of, of our books would be more than enough for me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure people listening will be interested in purchasing a copy. We, we haven't uh, worked out the details yet, but, you know, either we'll go print on demand at Amazon, but I'm also connected with a few publishers, so we'll sure. see what happens. All right. Yeah. Well, Curtis, again, thank you so much for being part of the final episode, the thousandth episode. It's been great having you on. As I said, it's been great having this uh, this friendship blossom because of the podcast. I've been very lucky that you know I've had these uh, kind of relationships come about as a result of doing the show. So, uh, again, thank you so much for spending your time with me today, and uh, I look forward to being on your show in the future when I still have something to say about comics. <laughs> yes, I look forward to that, too. Thank you for all your work over these years. You deserve a break. Thanks, Adam. Thank you so much. And that was Curtis Finley from the Epic Marvel Podcast. Uh, thanks to him for joining for the uh, thousandth episode. Uh, next up, we have Tibor Mate, a longtime friend of mine and friend of the show, uh, coming back to talk about endings and uh, what the last 10 years have been. We get a little bit, uh, you know, talk about what 10 years has been in terms of our personal fandoms and how things have uh, progressed or regressed, depending on which fandom you're talking about, over the last 10 years. Uh, so this is Tibor Mate joining the Comic Shadigans podcast for the... He, he refuses to agree that it's the last time, but at least for the 10th anniversary, 1,000th episode, here is Tibor Mate. Enjoy. Tibor, welcome back for the final time to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm not going to say it's the final time, so I, don't, I refuse to believe it. <laughs> well, then, then you're here for the 10th anniversary, 1,000th episode. How about that? There we go. That's it. And you may know me from such past guys as the Wolverine. Yeah. That was one of them. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. That's the one thing that really hit me was kind of looking back on 
things that we used to do or episodes we've done and like 10 years and i mentioned this off podcast earlier today but the fact is that, you know when we your first time on the show we were talking about you know iron man 3 and like star trek into darkness and that feels like fucking eons ago yeah it is crazy man 10 years is a long time like i i have very um like ingrained memories of doing the wolverine podcast it was just you and i and uh, like I think it was pretty late night for whatever reason we we couldn't get out earlier and then uh, but it was a fun night I remember that that was a very late one I think if I go back and listen to that podcast I'm pretty sure most of it we don't talk about Wolverine at all it's just other stuff yeah but I mean that's not anything different is it like, well I guess not right off the- that might have been one of the first times where we went where we truly veered off okay fair enough it's, it's been a long time I have to go back and listen to it. So I, it's it's so funny because there was a period during the pandemic where we actually did a lot of episodes together. Um, in the in between eight hundred and nine hundred, we did a we, we were talking about Marvel TV. We were talking about all sorts of stuff. And then I don't know what happened or what happened with my dance card, but somehow this is your first appearance since episode nine hundred. Um, so somehow it's been you know a long time since you've been on the show. Yeah, it's kind of funny, man. I, t- I actually kind of forgot that that was during the pandemic that we did the uh, the Marvel TV stuff. We did a lot of them. I think you're the actually. I, I would have to go back and check for sure, but I think you might be the only person who had an episode in every hundred, um, to, to, without missing any. Or like, because you were in, you know, a bunch in the first hundred, and then a bunch between hundred and two hundred. You had one episode in the two hundreds. You had a few in the three hundreds, and and so on and so forth. So um, I think you're the only one of all the uh, the kind of co-hosts to be able to boast that. There we go. It's in. She's like Johnny Carson, man. What's that? Like uh, all the weird accolades. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd have to go back and check, but I, yeah, I think you might be the only one who actually was able to achieve that. Maybe Paul. So, um, but yeah, no, it's it's been crazy. It's been a lot of fun. It's it's been great having you on so often. And uh, you know, I, w- I was saying to someone else that going to movies is going to feel really weird now because it was always in my back of my mind I was going to podcast about it. And then now that's not going to be there anymore. And that's kind of a weird, like, eventually when we can start doing movie gatherings again and actually going, going to see movies in big groups again, uh, it'll be weird not having kind of a, a post-movie discussion because I did look forward to that and talking about a movie because part of that, I would see a movie and then that was just kind of it. It just kind of died inside of me. Um, but it was nice to be able to talk about it with people. Yeah, I mean, it's not like we can't do it just without a podcast. It's still possible. Oh, yeah, we can still do it. I mean, it, and it's more likely with a couple of people. It's having having seven or eight people go see a movie and then chat about it afterwards, probably more, uh, probably less likely to occur. Uh, but you never know. And there's so much. You know, Marvel obviously recently announced a huge slate of films coming out in the next few years, and there's some gigantic films coming out in a few years. So I don't think I'm going to bring in the podcast back for you know, hey, let's talk about Avengers: The Kang Dynasty, but it could happen. Yeah, well, I mean, whatever. Play it by ear, see what happens, right? But it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is. It is. I did look forward to those, and yeah, the pandemic unfortunately did kind of ruin it a little. And, uh, I mean, we didn't have movie theaters for a long time, right? So it's kind of weird. Like it's only just starting to really kind of kick back in, right? So yeah, well, especially in Canada. I mean, I guess in in the states, it was probably a little bit more open because we were a little bit more uh, careful and hesitant and. Uh, and cautious, but uh, what, what really struck me, and again, I'm doing a lot of this kind of, you know, I can't believe it's been 10 years type of thing, but it's interesting to kind of look back at, you know, 10 years ago in 2012, where did, where was your 
your fandom for Star Wars and Star Trek? Because obviously, like right now, it's a great time to be a Star Trek fan in some ways because we have Strange New Worlds, you have Lower Decks, you have some really good Star Trek content. But like 10 years ago, we had no TV shows on the horizon and we really just had, you know, the J.J. Abrams movie verse. Um, and again, when, when the podcast first launched, we didn't even have that second movie yet. So where were you feeling about Star Trek about 10 years ago versus now? Yeah, man. Uh, it's weird. Yeah, at the time, it was kind of like a dark time for, for Star Trek for me, in a way. Like, yeah, we just had 2009, which was all right. It, was a, uh, well, it didn't feel like anything super special or anything, right? And then uh, then Inner Darkness went shit all over that. It's a, uh, <laughs> and that was an awful fucking movie, still is. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, man. I mean, really, it's kind of crazy, because even up until strange new worlds i didn't know what was going to happen right like like you know strange new worlds kind of feels like star trek's back finally which is nice absolutely like i you know i don't think i've been that into reading watching kind of a, a weekly star wars show when i don't even remember like probably mid- you said star wars sorry star trek sorry i meant star trek <laughs> yeah it's all right they're not the same they are not the same um but uh, I, I guess for Star Trek, sorry, um, it was probably like I guess Voyager was maybe the last time I like I watched Enterprise. But I know, I know you were a huge fan, and I definitely enjoyed it afterwards. But when it was first on, I don't remember really kind of being that interested in a week to week. Whereas Strange New Worlds, you know, I was really jazzed to watch each new episode, and you know, it helps that you know they're only making what nine or ten, and so the the quality is obviously a little bit higher, and they're not pumping out twenty two, and you're not going to have as many kind of potential duds. Um, but it's just such a solid show, and I, and it feels like I'm just ranting to people, everyone I see, being like, "You haven't seen this? You really need to try this." Like Star Trek's back. Yeah, I know it's funny. A couple people, like a buddy of mine, actually reached out like this week and was like, "Dude, this is fucking awesome!" And I was like, "Yeah, just keep watching. <laughs> like, it gets better because it's a. Uh, it really is. It's it's kind of nice. Like people are like, holy shit! Like this is the way to fucking do a Star Trek show. And it's funny because um, you say like you weren't as excited as I was about Enterprise. I'm like, yeah, I, I liked Enterprise on the first run around. I know, and it's funny because. Um, Sort of like the Star Star Wars prequels, like people are coming around and realizing like Enterprise wasn't all that bad, which is kind of funny. No, for sure. It's got that, I mean, it's it, got it, that same sort of effect. Absolutely. Now, here's a, an interesting kind of factoid. Again, we talk about how ten years is a long time. So when the show first launched, um, you know, it was only a few months later in October 2012 that uh, the Disney bought Lucasfilm. Like that's. It's only been ten years, but think about how much content they've churned out of the Star Wars carcass. Yeah, well, and I think I might have said it on the podcast. Is like the one thing that worried me about that is that Star Wars won't be that special anymore. Hmm. And to me, it kind of happened. You know, what I mean, like it's it's not the same as it was in a way, right? Like, it's like I know there's Star Wars content coming, um, and sadly, the majority of it's been bad. So, in my opinion, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to knock anybody that likes it. Good on you, but. For me, it's just that that new trilogy was awful. So, but thankfully, it's interesting because like since that trilogy, I mean, you've had more Clone Wars TV, you've had Bad Batch, you've had you know the Mandalorian, which is obviously kind of a runaway success, and I think they're probably even surprised at how much people love that. Uh, you have the kind of you know lacklusterly received uh, Book of Boba Fett. You have the Obi Wan series. Like it feels like you know maybe maybe uh, Star Wars TV was the way to go the entire time once they could actually spend the money to to make it work and make it look good because maybe it's just something about um, you know long form storytelling but it could actually really work in a Star Wars universe in a way that you know we were just kind of 
meant to believe in movies as being kind of the, the core Star Wars content, but now suddenly the TV shows, uh, you know, you had Clone Wars for so long, but it wasn't like, you know, anyone's prime Star Wars stuff. It was like kind of ancillary, but now, you know, some of the core Star Wars stuff is, uh, is the stuff that's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I mean, Mandalorian is interesting. I mean, what's what's funny to me is that, like, Mandalorian, basically, they didn't want to blow up Boba Fett, right? So they didn't want to risk Boba Fett, the character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in in, in, the, in doing so, they kind of fucked Boba Fett, the character, because they took everything cool that Boba Fett could have been and, and put it into Mando. And then Boba Fett was kind of like, meh. <laughs> it's kind of funny to me. Exactly. No, it's... Yeah, I, it's interesting because when that when Mandalorian first came out, it was kind of like, you know, are we going to care about this other Mandalorian? And apparently, the answer was fuck yes. Yeah, because I mean, it, they made that like mysterious element interesting of, to, towards the character, right? Like, whereas with Boba Fett, yeah, you got some cool moments in the in the movie, but ultimately, the way you went out was pretty goofy, right? Like, I mean, oh, it was yeah. like slapstick comedy when you really look back at it, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I guess they kind of redeemed him a little bit in this in the series, right? But it's uh, it is kind of funny when you look back at it. When you look at, at a show like Mando, um, and we've only had two seasons so far, somehow. But which which season would you say is is the superior season or your favorite? Um, I don't know. I really like the first season, man. It sets up a lot of cool, good stuff, like and a lot of cool characters that come back and stuff. So it's a uh, I'm a big character guy, right? So. I like when you got good characters and, and things get set up nicely and it comes back and pays off. For sure. And it has such a fascinating aesthetic and the, the music is so good. Like, there's just something... You can tell that there is... And I guess this is true about Strange New Worlds, too, is that you can tell when creators passionately love the project they're working on and it channels all the way through. And, like, Strange New Worlds, every time that that cast is on screen, like, I buy them. I want to see more of these people. Yeah, I mean... The thing about Stranger Worlds is, yeah, it, it, it's not always though that they're you know just because they're passionate fans that works out right. There's a lot of combinations that have to take oh, place. Sure. But, but it was Stranger Worlds. Like it's funny because after Enterprise, I was like, yeah, you know, as much as I liked Enterprise, I was like, it's also proof of why you shouldn't do a prequel, especially with Star Trek. Like Star Trek should just go forward, like because the technology is never going to line up perfectly, right? Like it's a, the, things are always going to be a bit off. If you want to fit it into canon, it's always going to feel awkward. Um, so to me, like Enterprise was the reason not to do prequels again in the future, but then Strange New Worlds just totally proved me wrong. Because mm. Strange New Worlds, in a way, is interesting that it's um, it actually enhances the canon we know, and it's self aware of that, which I really like. Because the whole season is about like Captain Pike knows his destiny, right? But just because he knows his destiny doesn't mean that it can't be interesting along the way, right? Like that's sort of the whole. It's kind of self-aware and poke in front of the audience a little bit as well, but like totally takes us on the ride, which is great. With a show like that, I mean, obviously, you know, Pike is pretty awesome. But who who would you say is kind of your your MVP or your standout from that cast that really um, helps make it for you? Is it is it Pike? Uh, honestly, like Pike is awesome. But um, if I had to pick one character that I enjoyed out of the first season the most, in the sense of like character development, it was Uhura. Mm. Right, like her storyline is so great that, uh, like, you know, there's this character that really we don't know that much about. You know, like, uh, unfortunately, in the original series, it's just the way of television back then, right? You had your principal stars, which were the three, right, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, mm-hmm. and then your secondary characters didn't get all that much to do when you think about it. Like, her first name was never actually said in the original Star Trek. Oh wow! 
right? I'm pretty sure it's 2009 Star Trek, J.J. Abrams, actually, where the first time you hear New Yoda. Really? It's That's crazy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. If anything, I, uh, my understanding is it came from one of the novels, and I think uh, Michelle Nichols had a hand in it. Which, uh, it was one of the Shatner novels. Okay. But um, I may not be 100% on that. But either way, it was a, uh, like, really, it's up until 2009. She doesn't even have a first name. So... You know, it's kind of cool. Here we are. We get to see a, a cadet version of Aurora and, like, you know, why she was on the Enterprise in the first place, which is kind of cool. It's a, it's kind of a neat uh, neat uh, way to do things. Mm-hmm. But that's what I like about Strange New Worlds is it's uh, it's adding weight to the canon we already know. Like, Ethan Peck was impeccable in this season. Like, he, his, his Spock was so fucking good. Um, and just playing with the character in the sense of, like, it's a younger version, right? He's not quite... 100% solid and controlling himself, you know, that he would, the way he would in the original series, right? We're not quite there yet. So, uh, he sometimes will show a little bit more emotion or he'll do things, but he's still so much Spock. Like, it's so crazy. Like, Ethan Peck's portrayal is so good. Absolutely. But, uh, adding, adding more weight to Spock is, that's also an, an, an achievement because Spock had so much screen time, right? Mm hmm. What's interesting is that and one thing I really appreciate about the show is that it has a sense of levity um, and isn't afraid to have have fun because I feel like, you know, when we had Discovery, and admittedly I only really watched the first season of Discovery, but it just didn't ever feel like there was any sense of fun there um, or like either the characters ever having fun or, the you know, or anyone really having fun. Whereas you watch Strange New Worlds and like there's, you know, a bunch of comedic beats throughout the episodes. Like there's... Um, the episode where you have T'Pring and Spock switch bodies, uh, which is, you know, the hijinks, um, which is very funny. Yeah. And, and Freaky Friday. Yeah, like a, a classic trope, but even funnier when you have Vulcans involved. Um, and the acting that those two had was absolutely phenomenal. Like, And it was actually struck me that it's only like, I think, episode three or four, and yet already the characters were so set and you're understanding how they were portrayed on the show that they were still able to so perfectly, you know, match you know, their scene partner in terms of how they would respond or how they would act and how their portrayal would look. So it was, it, that was fantastic. And then there was also the, you know, the kind of, uh, the fairy tale episode, which has kind of a heartbreaking ending, but, um, in some ways, but again, a different type of different, you know, it usually feels like you, you get more seasons of a show in before you can kind of experiment like that. But here first season, you're already trying things. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, they were they they weren't uh, they they were pretty bold for sure. Like it was, a, I guess, to to bold to go right. It's something they did because uh, you're right. They don't they, usually something like that. Like I mean, like the uh, the fairy tale episode is almost reminiscent of like the Buffy musical kind of. Mm, that's true. You know, and look how long it took them to convince them that they could do something like that on on, on Buffy, right? Mm-hmm. So you're right. It is interesting that they were just willing to say fuck it and play with the. You know, the play with the genres, right? Because you have like, and the Gorn too, like you know, bringing them in and making them this badass villain that, like, you know, from this hokey rubber suit in the original, you know, series where the guy can barely fucking move his arm across the screen fast enough to punch Kirk, right? Like, <laughs> and, and and then making these guys like the ultimate badasses was such a cool idea, right? And like, yeah, sure, they stole a little from Alien, and you know, but I would say it's not really stealing; it's more in the, the in the homage category, right? Oh, for sure, and, and I guess part of what really made that work too is that you had illusions throughout the series, and you had the you know the 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 Soon character keep talking about it. 
and in kind of mentioning the Gorn and her kind of PTSD about it. So by the time you actually get that episode, which is, I think, what, episode nine or so, it felt like they'd been kind of building it up just through casual mentions here and there. So again, it, it felt very organic to the process and it felt like, of course, we're going to get the Gorn now. Yeah, well, and don't forget they had the whole episode where they're just a ship to ship, right? Oh, that's which right, was, uh, that too, yeah. Which was also really cool. It was a, um, a great way of like reintroducing them, not actually showing them. It was a really clever idea, I thought. I found I, uh, I I love the the doctor just because he has such a, a fascinating way of speaking. I don't know what it is, but just his tone and his cadence was so interesting and in how he articulated words. I don't know if I'm describing that properly. So it added a certain element or extra dimension to the character. Yeah, well, like all the characters are solid, like from top to bottom. Like they're all, you know, like you said, they had them all like well uh, thought out and clearly like the the actors that they picked were, you know, embodied the characters really well as well so it's uh yeah it's it's a, it's a lightning in a bottle scenario you know just everything lined up beautifully and, and what a fucking first season um even i think you said this before again off podcast to me um earlier like weeks or sorry months ago but it was just so interesting how you know you get to know these characters really quickly. You know their names. Um, you can say who they are. Even you know the uh, transporter guy uh, Kyle. Um, whereas yeah. when you watch Discovery in that first season, you know it's hard to pick out names of people or remember who they are. Whereas it felt like this show kind of more fully realized who its cast members and characters were, so you could really enjoy them. And even like um, the engineer Hemder was a really cool character and very different. Um, so it felt like every every step of the way, it felt like they really give a lot of thought and depth to the characters even if they didn't necessarily have a lot to do when they were on screen you felt their presence yeah well and Hammer's kind of neat too because he's an A&R not a uh, it's an Andorian right so mm. uh, that species only showed up in Enterprise which was kind of neat I didn't realize that yeah well the, the, the interesting thing is now Enterprise is the glue that holds the entire Star Trek universe together because before 2009 Star Trek like Enterprise exists hmm true Right. It was a, like and it, like the, the timeline is the same, right? It was a, the, up until the divergence in two thousand nine with Spock, you know, it's a the, going off, right? So it's a the, so Enterprise exists in all these timelines, which is kind of cool. Even in Discovery, right? Like it's Discovery takes place after Enterprise, which is kind of interesting. That's right. So my last question about uh, Strange New Worlds for you is with that that fantastic season one finale, which is obviously uh, a very you know, wonderfully, painstakingly put together kind of a homage to a classic episode of Star Trek. Um, you know, how, how did you feel about the casting choice for Kirk and how they portrayed him? Because it feels like online, it feels like a mixed, a mixed uh, reception. I personally liked him and thought he was good in the role. But what did you think of Paul Wesley as uh, as Kirk? Yeah, what I liked about him is that, like, obviously, um, you know, people now have this 2009 Chris. Uh, Chris Pine Kirk in mind, right? A lot of people, I'm sure. So he's a bit more cocky, a bit more arrogant, but that's also the younger um, Kirk. Mm-hmm. But it's also interesting because, like, in the original series, they talk about young Kirk, and he wasn't the cocky, arrogant Kirk. Like, that's also older Kirk. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of funny. So in 2009, they kind of took a, a sort of overall picture of Kirk and was like, okay, let's turn up the cockiness and turn up the arrogance a little bit. But that's not the Kirk from the original like series as we know it from things that have been said, right? Like we know that he was a uh, bookworm kind of nerd, was uh, very focused on his duties, right? And that's why he became the youngest captain in Starfleet, mm-hmm. right? And then later on, he he becomes more 
you know, a little bit more loose, and, and, and you see it in the movies, right? Oh, yeah. So, so I thought that the choice that they made here was interesting because it is that younger Kirk, but he's also slightly older, right? Like, because he is captain at this point. It's just that he's not captain of the Enterprise because Pike's still around. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought it was a really interesting choice, and I liked the acting of, um, was Paul Wesley, is it? Paul Wesley, yeah. He was previously, yeah, so a- previously well-known for being on the Vampire Diaries for like nine years. Yeah, see, I never watched that, but um, I, I enjoyed him as, as Kirk. I think it's an excellent choice. It's a, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more. And I love the, the, uh, that they kind of played a bait and switch on us where I'm wondering if now that was intentional, the leak, because mm-hmm. um, there was leak footage or a leak photo of him uh, shooting season two, right? That's right, yeah. Maybe they threw, so I'm wondering- they threw that out there so we wouldn't expect him in season one? Exactly, yeah. I'm wondering if that was intentional. I do really enjoy that, you know, in that first episode, they keep talking about Kirk and you don't realize it's Samuel Kirk, which I thought was a brilliant idea, too, because I had completely forgotten that the character had a brother. Like, it just was not something in my mind. So it was really cool to kind of have them play with that. So you still have a Kirk on the Enterprise. It's just not the Kirk you're expecting. Yeah, no, I mean, that, too, was a clever bait and switch. And also, it's a, um, I mean, Samuel Kirk literally showed up in one episode of TOS, right, where he, he dies. Mm-hmm. Like he's a de- and it was literally Shatner wearing a mustache. <laughs> like that, that that was his brother, right? Like it was shot with him, you know, a death scene. It was Shatner with a mustache. So I mean, that was really funny. I mean, that was the joke was um, if Kirk shows up, is it going to be the same actor? Mm, that's funny. <laughs> play it. That would have been kind of funny, but I'm glad they didn't go that route. I mean, this guy did sport a sweet stash. Yeah, no, it was a uh, it was a cool way of, of bringing in another Kirk, and again, expanding on the the canon that we know, right? It was a, and adding weight to that Kirk, right? Giving him something was because we really didn't know, him, right? Like it's like, oh, that sucks for Kirk; his brother died. Yeah, you know. But that was the nature of, of TV back then, right? Like things didn't get in as depth, uh, you know, with certain stuff stuff you just rolled with. So um, so it was cool to to add, and that's what they keep doing is they keep adding. To existing canon and making it more rich, like bringing to Pring in, it's a uh, it's such a big rule, right? Because again, to Pring is in one episode in the whole series, right? That's right. And it's just about breaking up with Spock in an extremely elaborate way. <laughs> but uh, but here, you know, you're giving like they're giving to Pring, like it's like now you're understanding why Spring gets there, you know. And it's kind of sad because you're kind of rooting for them to be together, but you know it's not going to happen. But that no, that knowing actually adds value to like you know the whole the whole experience and that's what they're doing is your knowledge is actually helping you enjoy what you got now for sure which and is interesting it's an interesting dance right because it still works on the level of if you don't know where these characters are going you don't lose anything but if you no. do know where they're going it adds something and that's a very delicate balance to be able to do where it's not you know you're not making someone you know, feel like, oh man, I don't know what's going on, and like I don't get this extra layer. But if you do know it, it adds so much more interesting depth. Oh, totally, and it's funny because like now, I'll, honestly, it was a, uh, if someone asked me like, oh, where should I start with the Star Trek universe? Before, I would usually just say like, I don't know, try try Deep Space Nine. It's my favorite series. So if you want something serialized, right, it's a, that's the way to go. But uh, now my go-to is Strange New Worlds for sure. Try yeah. that if you like that. Go from there. It's very easy to understand. It doesn't feel like it, you know. I, I like DS Nine as well, but if you watch those first few episodes, especially, I'm like, if you're not already ready for something like this, it's going to be difficult. Like, whereas yeah. I feel like Strange New Worlds eases you in a little bit more gracefully. 
yeah, I mean, uh, like, Emissary is still such a great fucking pilot. But, yeah, it's pretty heady compared to, you know, other things, right? So if you're not used to that, then it might not be your thing, right? So before I, I, I kind of let you go and bring this segment to a close, the one thing we didn't talk about with Star Trek is obviously Picard. And so now we have an upcoming third season, I guess third and final season, uh, which looks like it, you know it's finally going to get the, the entire band back together from TNG. Um, how do you feel going into that? Like, you know, were you happy with season two and how it kind of picked up off of season one? Um, are you excited for season three or where are you at with regards to Picard and his journey? Yeah, I'll be honest. Um, season one and season two to me are, are kind of similar in execution. Mm. Um, start out with great ideas, kind of like fall off and not quite like figure out all the ideas and then end, you know? Um, and it's too bad that like both seasons are kind of like individual stories. Like they're not, it's a, um, they don't link together as nicely. No. You know, like they're very much like season one is its own thing, season two is its own thing. And now, obviously, season three is going to be its own thing. Um, with that said, like I, I definitely think it's a, it's a weaker written show than than Strange New Worlds. It's not quite there. Um, I didn't mind the darker Picard, though. I do feel like it kind of dragged out a little bit in season two, mm. and I think that's part of the serialized nature of it. Like the way it's like all connected, it has to. It's the same with season one. Like certain things kind of drag, right? Like, oh yeah. You, it doesn't feel as smooth but I mean a lot of TV suffers from that now right because it's a, a serialized format um, where the nice thing was with uh, Strange New Worlds in one way the, the episode to episode um, format actually does kind of help it like gives it you know it's like a refreshing what are we getting this week you know oh yeah I, I, I love that I, I forgot how much I missed it that if you didn't like that adventure don't worry another one's on its way um, there's yeah. something really refreshing about that i mean um the closest we've ever had to that in comic books is that in the early uh, sorry late 2000s um spider-man they just kind of changed the book and they said you know what instead of having three different spider-man titles we're just going to have one spider-man title but we're going to give it to you three times a week and so yes that's a lot but also it felt like stories moved so much more quickly so something that you know if it had been you know a three or four part story before it would have been three or four months but now it was done in like a month month and a bit and so it definitely felt like it moved. You were able to kind of churn through things. And if you didn't really love something, don't worry, it's almost over. Um, so there's just there really is something nice to that. And I I miss that kind of you know standalone format. I mean, the characters are still evolving and growing. So it's not like it was in the old days where it was a little bit more staccato. But um, yeah, no, it's fantastic to be able to have uh, a show successfully do a week to week different adventure format to show it can still work. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, what's cool is that the characters are still evolving, right? Like, that's the whole point. Like, in that show, is that, like, all the characters are getting richer as we go on, right? So it's like, when you can manage the balance of that, too, or those two things, like, they've totally nailed it, right? Whereas um, Picard, I think, it's still a bit of a slow burn, right? So now that we have, again, like, you know, we have a lower decks, we have Strange New Worlds, do you think, and I have to admit, again, I haven't watched enough or really almost any of the current season, but do you think there is as much of a place uh, for Orville in this kind of post-Strange New Worlds world? Because it felt like Orville was doing what Star Trek was refusing to do. It felt like they were back to telling standalone adventure stories and that were really thought-provoking, had really, you know, interesting concepts. Um, yes, they were slightly comedic, but they toned that down as the show went on. Um, and it felt like it was really scratching an itch that wasn't being scratched by actual Star Trek anymore. And now it feels like actual Star Trek is starting to itch those itches again. So do you think there's as much of a place for Orville in that context? 
I was thinking about that too, actually. It's a, um, like, yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting because I mean, I could totally see the, uh, the studio maybe thinking the same thing, right? It's like, well, what are we trying to compete with Star Trek for? They've obviously nailed a bunch of this stuff, right? Um, but I, I, I hope not. Like, I, I would like to see, um, another season of the Orville. The only thing that kind of suffered this season is, uh, I feel like because they're not sure if they're getting another year, like, they did kind of like rush through things, mm. unfortunately. It's a, um, but it was still really well done considering like, but a, a lot of stuff happens pretty quickly and you're like, Oh shit. Like this would have been cooler. Had they had a little bit more time to, to sort of sort that out. Right. So it is, it's a weird balance, right? Cause sometimes it's like, you wish they would have a little bit more time to do things. And then other times it's like, okay, this is dragging. Right. Mm. So I guess it depends on the series. Right. Whereas like Picard kind of feels like seasons one and two kind of had like a lot of drag. And they had a lot of great ideas, but they didn't quite execute on all of them, right? And then it doesn't all pay out at the end, right? Yeah. Um, whereas Orville still pays out in the end. It's a, uh, it's just I wish they would have had a little bit more time, but I think clearly they didn't know whether they were getting another season. They still don't. Nobody knows. But um, I would hate to see that show disappear because it is a shame. Like it took up so long between seasons too. Like it's. Uh, it's crazy how between season three and, and or season two and three is it's such a big gap because of COVID and everything that happened. Oh yeah, there's a, a full three-year gap. Like the the, the second second uh, season finale was like the day before Endgame came out. Like that's how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy when you think about it. But I, I still want to see another season, especially with the way they they did this year. Like they did some of their best work this year. And they had more money and more time and probably less oversight from, you know, a network because now they're going to be on a Hulu as opposed to being on traditional, you know, network television. And they got to be longer when they wanted to be. Although I guess one of the complaints I had seen online was that at times, you know, they could have maybe made it a little shorter or didn't need to have as many glory shots of, you know, the special effects in action or their money well spent. But, uh, yeah, no, it just definitely felt like that, that was a show that would benefit from not being as constrained by network TV anymore. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it did. And, like, the, the episodes felt like mini-movies. Which is good. I mean, you want that. That's, I mean, that's the the best way you could probably make that show. So, I guess that, that brings us kind of to a close on this segment. Are there any kind of final thoughts you have for this uh, thousandth episode? Yeah, what I will say is um, I came around to Discovery in season four. So, it's a, uh, finally the first season I actually enjoyed. <laughs> So um, I'm, I'm, curious to, I'm curious to see what uh, Discovery 5 will have. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually excited for it, which is kind of wild to think. Is it because, I mean, it, to go back to your earlier comment um, of kind of being tired of Star Trek going backwards and, and instead of forwards, and now the show is so forwards, um, is that part of what makes you a little bit more interested and excited because you don't know what, 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 what it leaves? No, I think uh, I think they just finally nailed the characters, mm. you know, like uh, in my opinion, right? Because uh, like Burnham's captain now, right? It was a, uh, there was literally scenes this season where like Burnham would have done something she would have done in the past, but she actually stops herself mm. and realizes that not to go down that route. So it, if anything, it justifies my position from before that she was a shit <laughs> officer and like was a um, you know like it's kind of self-aware and acknowledges that she wasn't very good mm. you know even though she was the bestest at everything which is they took that a little to the extreme like she was the best at this she was the best at this she was the best at this like it was like okay data level like yeah yeah you know it, it was a bit too much right like it's a um, but also like the other characters are now like she literally calls them out by name right so you actually know the cast now it's a which in the first couple seasons they were like furniture basically mm-hmm 
Um, so that's nice too. And like they're getting moments now, right? Whereas like before you didn't. Also the um, the other thing with Discovery is that like if you're not in on the story, like it's the same sort of thing as like Picard where, you know, if you don't like the season story arc, then you're not going to like the season most likely, right? Oh yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so they've still been like, and, and then, you know, the stakes are always so high and like, this one felt justified for the universal stake, you know, like the entire galaxy's at stake. This one actually felt like it was justified, whereas other ones is like, oh, really great. Here we go again. The universe is over, you know? So I think they nailed it this season. So I'm hoping that season five continues. Interesting. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the show and for being on it so many times. Again, you were the, the third most... Um, um, the third guest, the guest with the third most appearances. So again, thank you for being um, so engaged and having some great, uh, interesting insights to Star Trek and Star Wars and so many other sci-fi things and movie things. So again, thank you so much for being part of this, you know, kind of ten-year journey that I was on. And uh, it's uh, nice to be able to um, have you on the final episode, or at least the thousandth episode. If you're refusing it to call it the final, it's the the thousandth episode, the tenth anniversary spectacular. Yeah, I'm not saying it's over until it's over. Okay, well, we'll see. (laughs) All right, man, it was a lot of fun. All right, thank you so much. Have a good one. For this next installment of episode 1000, I'm joined by my special co-host, Zachary Chapman. Uh, he's been on the show a few times in the past. The last one was on the episode where we talked about Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Um, you know, it wouldn't be a final episode if I didn't let him come on board. Um, you know, it's funny, I uh, was talking with my wife the other day and she'd made mention that, you know, where this idea of coming to kind of end the podcast, and I realized I never really talked about it with my own family uh, as to why it, you know, it was time to end it. Um, and Zach was a little sad about that. He, Zach also thinks that he will eventually have Comic Shenanigans 2.0 that he will uh, at some point in the future be the host of. So you never know. Um, he's he's at least dreaming big. So Zach, first of all, uh, welcome to episode 1000. Did you know that uh, this episode is going up? It's not only the 1000th episode of the show, which is crazy that there's been a 1000 episodes of this podcast. Think about how much time Daddy has spent talking into a microphone. It's crazy. Um, but not only is it the thousandth episode, this is actually the 10th anniversary of the podcast, which means the podcast turns 10 today. Um, so the podcast is older than you. When I first started the podcast, uh, did you know, Zach, that when I had that first episode, first of all, do you know who came up with the comic shenanigans name? No. Mommy. Mommy and Aunt Sarah, because I was like, I'm going to have a podcast. What should I name it? And they were like, comic shenanigans. I was like, done. Uh, if I could, the, However, shenanigans is a tough word to say when you were a little boy. You could not say it. You'd be like, shenanigans. <laughs> and in your sister's the same way. She cannot say shenanigans either. It's a very tough word. Uh, it was not a simple word that we chose. In that first episode, I had mommy sit down. Uh, I used to have a laptop. I don't really have a laptop anymore. But we didn't have iPads back then. It sounds like forever ago. We didn't get actually our first iPad till you were uh, about three or four months old. Um, so we had no iPads, no way to. Con- so we had a, um, a laptop at our dining room table in our old house. Um, so not where we live now. And we sat down at the table, and uh, I was like, "We're just going to chat for a bit." I think it was like 30, 40 minutes, maybe, maybe only twenty. I can't even remember. Um, and we just chatted about Batman and uh, comic book media and her favorite Batman being Adam West. 
from the uh, old uh, uh, TV show back in the 60s, the one where they when they punch each other, giant words come up that say, bam, piff, pow. I think um, that's my favorite, too. I, I don't know. Maybe the Lego Batman. I, don't I think Lego Batman's your favorite. Yeah. Lego Batman didn't exist back then. This is how old this is. No, um, no, uh, no, 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 please, God, no. So, and we sat down, and I had a, a, a simple... Um, Microphone. I eventually would upgrade to something nicer. Remember the microphone that's sitting on our at our desktop? The, Ew, I don't like that. Well, you don't like that one, but it's much better than the one I was using at the time. And we just chatted for a bit. And then she was like, are you going to post it? I'm like, ah, yeah, maybe. And she's like, but I, then I did post it. And I was like, oh, by the way, I put up the episode. And that was the beginning. Um, and that was the first episode of Comic Shenanigans. And then I remember when I had my 100th episode, I think it was, it was, it was right around when you were born. I think it might have been just before or just after. I think I took like a week or two off from the podcast um, because you were born. And then there's early episodes in the, I think, around 120 or so, where I think you can hear you in the background because I'm literally holding you in my arms as I'm in the basement recording and talking about <laughs> comics. And you are like a little, little baby half asleep. And then once in a while you'd be like, ah. And that's about all you can hear. So you can hear like very faint, ah, in the, in the background. I think I did actually did with one with Uncle Paul. And uh, we could hear you in the background. So first of all, thank you for being on the last episode. You were not on the first episode, but you're definitely on the last episode of Kama Shenanigans, episode 1000. So I have some simple questions for you. So you are about to turn nine. So when I was nine years old, or the year I turned nine would have been uh, 1992. Um, so I don't think I read a lot of comics yet in 92. I think I, I can't remember if Maximum Carnage was that year or the year after. I think it was the next year. Um, so you've read a lot more comics than I've ever, you could have imagined when I was your age. Um, so I want to ask about some of them. So earlier in this episode, actually in, in episode 1000, um, I was t- talking with Curtis Finley, who is the editor of a book series you like a lot, which is the For Better or For Worse books. And we were talking about how um, you read the book so much they started falling apart because you love For Better or For Worse. And, uh, and he was saying that that's a mark of a book that someone really appreciates. Now, he also said that the way that it was bound it was part of the reason why it's falling apart. So it's not your fault. Um, and he said, it was a good thing that I didn't yell at you for the book falling apart because he said that if I was to yell at you, it would create um, this idea in your mind that reading is bad or that reading leads to being yelled at and i told you i just love that you read i love that you read the books and i love that you love the books and i love that you read comics so what is it about for better or for worse that you enjoy so much it's a classic comic strip uh it was it was on when i was growing up i was just a kid and i remember reading it in the, in the sunday newspaper but you actually get to read it all at once what is it about for better or for worse that you like I kind of just like how it shows that, like, there's um, two kids, which later, spoiler, there will be a third one. Spoilers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I just kind of like how it appreciates what we go through every day, like the changes that happen in our life. Mm-hmm. I do think that they made Ellie a little bit too, like, too much... Too much of a cleaning person. Like, that's all she ever does. Oh, really? Yeah. It just feels like she's always cleaning? I mean, to be fair, I'm going to ask you a question. Does it not feel like Daddy's always cleaning? Uh, um, I feel like she's more matched to... My favorite show 
Full House. Mm-hmm. I think it's the dad in that. Oh, Danny? Yeah, Danny Tanner. I think it's that because he, he's like, see dust on the floor? Dust placed. That's true. That is a good point. So you like that it, it's real life and it feels normal. What I when One of the things uh, that I love about reading it with you, Zach, is how much you laugh at some of the stuff. And it's funny, and this has been happening because we've been watching Boy Meets World lately. And it, I, it's funny because it's a show about an 11-year-old boy at the beginning, and you're nine, or about to be nine, so you're pretty close in age. But the character you respond to most is the younger sister, and you think she's hilarious. And when we read the book, you love April. Because she's the, especially because when we started reading the book, it was when April was little, a little kid, and the other two kids were older. Um, and obviously, we've gone back and seen, you know, the other kids being being really young too. So it's really fun to see you laugh so hard at all the antics. And so, is that what you like about it as well? That it's it's really funny. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of why. Yeah. Do you find that the the color books? So the color strips are even funnier. Yes, because some of the dark, I mean, black and white strips mm-hmm. are like connected to a whole story. Yeah, but I like when it just takes a pause in the action for the like di- like the funny stories, mm-hmm. which are the colors. Yeah, you know, it's funny. That's exactly correct. Um, so really smart and intuitive, Zach. That's exactly what they did. Um, because the idea that um, most, you know, not everyone read the paper, right? Even less these days. But back then, people would read the daily paper. And so if you wanted to follow the strip in that, you'd have, you know how like we we have a number of strips on one page. So one of those uh, horizontal lines would be in each in each newspaper. Just one. So you would get a little bit of the story every day. But then the the time when the most amount of people were going to read the newspaper was on the weekend. And that's when you'd have it in color. So that's part of why they're not connected to the main story in the same way. Sometimes they're a little bit funnier because that that's the true gag. Um, because that's the uh, the moment when they, had, they knew they would have the most eyeballs on the strip. So they made it even funnier. Daddy? Daddy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you say eyeballs, that sounds gross. It sounds gross to say that they have their eyeballs on it. Yeah, stop saying it. Okay. Um, what, so you've read a lot of comics, or and uh, at the beginning I think you, you flipped through most of them, but now you're actually starting to read read the words and understand the words. Um, what are some of your favorite comics? Not necessarily issues, but like, you know, characters or titles that you've, you've read over the years um, um, or that we've read together. I think Young Justice is a close to For Better or For Worse because it's like, Impulse, Superboy, and Robin all coming together. Mm-hmm. And then with other characters, too. So I also like the Sonic the Hedgehog series that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do like it because just Sonic's and his friends. Um, and, it, and it always wasn't just, like, simple, like, taking down a bad guy. Like, the metal virus and stuff. I like mm-hmm. how they kind of got creative with it. It's really cool, yeah. Um, what were obviously you mentioned the the main trio in Young Justice? Were there other characters that you particularly liked seeing in the book, or on the team, or just, or even villains? Maybe like who else I did you like? Did like that they had like I think it's like in the beginning. They, is it Red Tornado in the yeah? yeah it is Red in Tornado. The beginning, yeah, it, they are like Red Tornado. 
And I do like how in the first issue they kind of saved the Justice League. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think they're good. I also do like Wonder Girl. And what's, what's the girl with the arrows? Arrowette. Arrowette. And Secret. I think they all bond together really fun. Yeah. And, yeah. Do you remember reading any of the Teen Titans that comes afterwards? You mean with Superboy and Impulse yeah. and yeah. Beast Boy? Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember reading a lot of it, like with like Raven and stuff, like how they all get to see each other again. Then it's, it's awkward, yo. <laughs> awkward. <laughs> it's a uh, definitely. It's it's not quite as kiddy either, because um, a uh, a little bit more adult stuff happens in terms of, like what happens to to Impulse when it becomes Kid Flash and fighting against Deathstroke. It's a little little uh, little harsher, but still fun. Uh, yeah, Young Justice is a great book. I'm, I'm so glad you're enjoying it because, yeah, it's it's a tremendous amount of fun. Any other books that uh, kind of jump to mind or things that we've read together that you know that you think are is worth mentioning? Oh, Doc, what's that book that we keep reading? Which one? Every night, like with the X Men and stuff. So that is an X Men trading card book that was just released by Abrams and Marvel. Yeah, I kind of like that because it has trading cards in it. it. Shows the origin of the X Men kind of stuff. It's funny. So as we read those, I, I realize that like I have a whole like I, I don't have a lot, but I still have a bunch of like my old cards, and I'm like I could just read you cards every night, and then you would just like learn how people were. It is funny because um, you know we're going through it, and so we read the the. Uh, the forward. We didn't read the introduction. We, we read the forward, and now we've been going through the actual cards and kind of looking at them. And it is a lot of fun because there's like obviously there's text on it, and there's like a, a weird fact below it. And then one of my favorite things as a kid was seeing the ratings on you know how smart someone was or their fighting ability or their energy projection, and then looking at that. And some of these cards are just like you're a dud. Like you have one thing, like Professor X, I think he had like, you know, um, you know, uh, mental powers, mental powers and and intelligence. And that was really it. Everything else was like the most basic, you know, he's not good at anything. He's worse at fighting. I can't fight. It's funny because um, uh, a version of Batgirl was also in a wheelchair, but she was an amazing fighter because just because she was in the chair didn't mean she couldn't, you know, use her her arms. Right. Um, So she could still attack people with like. Like sticks and that? stuff. So, yeah, what? Batgirl. Barbara Gordon. Um, there was a version Why? of her that was shot and she didn't, she couldn't move her legs anymore. So she became Wait. known as Oracle. Was in Little Gotham? Oh, I, I don't know if that, that, I don't know if it's in Little Gotham. I, and I, it okay, but it adult. is in Little Gotham. Yeah, it might be. I'm not sure. It is. Okay. It is. Okay. One book that I love that you love it, and I wish we have had more opportunities to read it, but the issues are so long when I'm trying to put you to bed, is What If? Because um, I bought the omnibus, and now we have two omnibuses, and actually there's a third one coming next year, and that book I love. It, like, I like these What Ifs, but like, that's the What If I remember as a kid. Um, so that's always a lot so of fun. I'm going to start reading number two by myself when it comes out. When number, number three, three comes out? Uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, you've read some surprising stuff too. Like I think you've read a bunch of Thunderbolts, or am I wrong? I used to, but then I stopped because I didn't like it. Didn't like it? That's okay. Um, what about Spider Man? Do you realize Spider Man? You're in there. Uh, I can't read it if I'm bored. If you're bored, oh, it breaks I'm my bo- heart. I'm busy, okay. You're busy. I'm reading Dire of a Wimpy Kid. Yeah. Stuff like that. What else do you read? Mm-hmm. Got to read more book books, right? I'm never reading those. Never reading those. Well, 
I started reading a little bit more of those. Once the summer's over, I think we can get back to, to reading, <laughs> back to reading actual books. No, it stinks. What characters that you do you find that you really like? Daddy. Yeah. Um, I don't know, and what, like, and what. Like, which combo characters are your favorite? Is just the characters in like Young Justice, etc. Are there other characters that you haven't um, mentioned that you really like? I'm going to ask you a skill testing testing question. Okay, you're going to ask me a skill testing question. Okay. Yeah. Turn the tables on me. Okay. Would you rather make a brand new, really good DC character or a very, like, not so good, but new character and new comic in Marvel? DC. Marvel. You're a big Marvel fan. You're a traitor. Traitor. It's funny. So when I was growing up, yeah, it was one company or the other. Um, When I was in university, I realized that DC had a lot of good stuff, too. Um, No. 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 They do. No. You don't have to agree, but it is true. Um, So we're going to end in just a second. But um, let me ask you a different question. What, What is it about comic books that you like? I mean, and you've read a lot. Oh, that's easy. They have superheroes in them, not like not like normal books that have problem get solved. Everybody lives happily ever after. Mm. No, nobody's fighting. Nobody, 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 nobody dies it, or anything. I will say it stinks. Not, not all comic books are superheroes, you know. Like for better or for worse, is a comic book, but there's no superheroes. Yeah, in it. see, but book books have no pictures. Yes, they do. That's correct. They don't. Comic books are better forever. Because of pictures. Ever. Because of the pictures. And ever a million years later. Okay. Uh, well, Zach, again, thank you for being part of the podcast. Uh, let me ask you a question before we sign off. What, um, like, what does the podcast mean to you? Like, it's ending, and I've, it's something I've been doing since you were born. Um, you know, and it, it might be weird to imagine that Daddy's not running to the basement with your iPad anymore to uh, to help record a, an interview or, or record for the podcast, and or uh, yeah, to gesture at you wildly that you have to be quiet while I'm trying to record, and you're walking down and when you should be sleeping. Um, what does it mean to you for that to be over? Well, uh, some people just have like normal dads. I like having a dad that will have something to do. I like other dads that have free time a lot. Yeah. But they still don't work. But I like how you have like your own ch- like, co- like podcast. Most dads don't have that. That's true. A lot of dads don't. Um, it's funny because I know that when you're older, you definitely want to be like on YouTube or something. Uh, or at least for a bit. You want to try it out, right? You want to have like a channel or you want to have... Mm-hmm. And you've been practicing how to say, you know, punch that like button uh, and make sure you subscribe, all that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, that's really... I never thought of that. That, you know, you would think that, oh, you know, my dad does a podcast and other dads don't and that makes him different. And so mm-hmm. I never realized that until you kind of, you know, thought about that and said that. So I, I you know, um, this podcast will always exist. It'll always be this thing that I did for 10 years. And uh, who knows? I wish it was 15. You know what's funny? So Tibor was earlier, earlier uh, he was on the show. And he was mentioning how he didn't believe me that I was ending it. I'm like, this is the last episode. He's like, no, it isn't. I'm like, it is. And he's like, no, it's not. And I'm like, I'm like okay, well, you, will you at least agree it's the 10th anniversary, hundredth, sorry, 1,000th episode? He's like, fine. But I won't say it's the final episode. I'm like, all right, well, it, it is. So he thinks it'll come back. Do you think it'll come back? Yes, 2.0. 2.0? Zach and Sunshine. 
Zach's in charge. Oh my god. Comic shenanigans with Zach in charge? I don't know. It's gonna be wild. One, you know, one thing that we, um, one book series that we maybe would never have read if it wasn't for the podcast is Hilo. And you're looking at me with a weird look in your face because What's I don't think that Hilo, Hilo, the series, the book series, your your books downstairs. Oh, I don't get it. What's going on? Okay, so the guy who writes that and draws it, he is a creator of. He used to work in comics and had a long run in comics. So I wanted to interview him for the podcast, and I found out he had this book, and I was like, oh, I want to talk about the book with him. So I ordered the books, and you and I read them. And you love Tylo, and I love Tylo, and it was a great book series. And then every year, but I only bought it because I was going to have him on the show, and I wanted to do some research, and I didn't realize that he was doing a kid-friendly book, and I thought maybe you'd like it. And you loved it. And so, yeah, you did, right from the beginning. And I think when we first read it, we read like three or four volumes all at once. And you're like, where's the next one? I'm like, got to wait a year for that. So like every year in like February or March, a new uh, installment of Hilo comes out. And then I would talk to him about it. So I would, you know, I'd buy the comic. On the podcast? I would, and I would interview him on the podcast about the book. Yeah. So when all the podcast ending, you don't get to talk to him anymore? No. I know, isn't that weird? But I am very thankful for the podcast because we may not have ever discovered the Hilo books. Pardon me? I don't know what Hilo is. Hilo. Are you really, you're, you're forgetting what the Hilo... What is Hilo? The book. Remember, there's Gina and there's Hilo and there's DJ. Are you really not remembering the series that we literally read like six months ago? Um, you're not remembering. No. Really? What? What? It's a tremendous book series by Judd Winnick. But, uh, What? And you have these books literally what? on your bookshelf downstairs. And they're all called Hilo. And the, the, Hilo and the Great Big Boom. Uh, there's Gina and the Girl Who Broke the World. Huh, Hilo, the Boy Who Crashed years. Earth. Yeah, Gina and the Last City on Earth. That one's not out yet. Uh, Hilo, Saving the Whole Wide World, etc., etc. Everything went wrong. So they're fantastic books. Are you really telling me that you don't remember them now? I don't have those anymore. They're, They're not- all downstairs on your bookshelf. This is shocking to me. We literally have like eight books downstairs of oh, this book series. Goodbye, guys. It's bedtime. <laughs> it's bedtime. You better go read these books. Um, well, that's the funny thing about kids, Zach, is that your memory is really short sometimes. Because there are episodes of TV that we've watched in the past, and then I'll be like, oh man, we watched you know, the show, and you're like, I don't remember that. I'm like, but you were like coherent, but you just, you know, sometimes your memories are really short. So there's this, again, Hilo is a tremendous book series. I've loved reading it with you. Every year we read it. We, I, I thought we read the most recent one that came out like six months ago, um, but you already forgot what it was, which is crazy. So you got too much stuff in your brain. We got to fill it back up with Hilo, which is again a highly recommended yeah, book series. So and uh, again, Judd Jed, Winnick is an amazing personality and writer. And forgetting uh, stuff too. I do forget stuff. Yes, a lot. A lot. I have very bad much. memory. I guess. Any final thoughts before we let you end? This installment of the of, or this segment of the podcast. Um, will there, but there, will there be other segments? Will there be other segments? Well, this is one of the last ones. I'm hoping that mommy's going to record a segment, and then that'll be the last segment on the show. Mm, There's like five or six stop. segments before this one. Hmm? I don't want you to stop. You don't want me to stop the podcast? We can talk about that later, but I think 
this is supposed to be the final episode, at least for now. And uh, I have really appreciated being able to talk with you on the podcast. And uh, we've reviewed some movies in the past. And it's funny because now you're getting old enough that um, you can actually speak in full sentences and actually have a conversation on the podcast. So I will miss that as well. Um, but um, Zach, thank you so much for being a part of uh, Comic Shenanigans. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you being part of this last episode. Thanks, buddy. Say bye-bye to everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this uh, incredibly long episode of the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Uh, that was obviously a segment I did with my son to kind of close out the show. Um, you might, if you listen to that segment, you'll notice that I mentioned that uh, my wife... Kelly Chapman was probably going to be recording a segment of the episode, which was originally the plan, but now um, she's going to be on a bonus pod. So yes, I'm announcing it here. This is, quote-unquote, the final episode, Um, but really there's going to be one more bonus episode. I don't know what the numbering is going to be, if it's going to be 1,001 or if it's going to be 1,000 dot bonus (laughs) in the proud Marvel tradition, but uh, there will be one more bonus pod, a short one, uh, that will come out uh, soon. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, basically we couldn't get it recorded in time for the posting to be on the 10th anniversary, which was important to me. So I wanted to be able to, uh, to have the thousandth episode on the 10 year anniversary of the podcast. So, uh, there will be a bonus pod at some point in the near future. Um, but in the meantime, you have a lot of episodes you can go back and enjoy. Um, as I mentioned before, there's three... This is, what, 1,000, so there's two other episodes, so it's 1,002. So as of now, there are three episodes that are not available on on Apple Podcasts, but um, every other episode is. Um, so you should go enjoy uh, a lot of episodes to uh, to jump into the back catalog. I want to thank all my uh, guests from this episode. I want to thank uh, Dan Gavazin, Eric uh, Anthony, Curtis Finley, Tibor Mate, Paul Scores, um Ron Friends, of course, Nathan Struck, and uh, my son. Uh, so thank you to everyone who was on this episode. It was a, a tremendous blast recording it over multiple different days because uh, there's so much content to, to wedge into one episode, and there will be a bonus pod. Um, so look for that in the feed soon. Uh, you can you should still technically be uh, subscribed to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Uh, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, and you can rate and review us on iTunes, of course. Uh, thanks again for listening, and it's been a great 10 years. Bye-bye.